Chapter 45 Darrow Venus Once upon a time, Venus was the evil sister of Earth, swollen from solar dust to similar shape and size. But while Earth was blessed with water, sweet air, and a temperate disposition, Venus had a more quarrelsome spirit. Her surface, cruel enough to melt lead, was marked by interminable days and nights, each numbering 243 of her sisters. Under her foul breath nothing could live, nothing could grow, nothing could move but winds of carbon dioxide and torpid clouds fat with acid rain. And then man came from the blackness, and drank up the hydrogen of the gas giants, and breathed the fresh breath into her skies. The ensuing rains fell to cover eighty percent of her surface in oceans. With high-altitude mass drivers, man scalped away the withering atmosphere and cooled her surface. With asteroids hurled from the asteroid belt and mass drivers at her equator, he spun her out of her torpor and into an agreeable dance, her days now like her sister's. Mankind dressed her in green and blue, and she waited, eager and fresh, for the humans to come down from their floating cities to join her in her new dance, which had been four and a half billion years, plus ninety, in the making. House Carthii of Luna was the first to arrive. Now, for the first time in my thirty-three years, I dare to see Venus in the flesh. Her clouds are thin, and clutch her mottled blue body like the tails of a tattered nightgown. Diadems of ice and snow dust her poles. Emerald islands rise from her temperate blue seas. And about her neck is cinched the might of gold, a Byzantine necklace of ships and orbital dockyards, sparkling with landing lights and loaded with half-completed frigates and destroyers, all made from Mercurian steel. Around this necklace glide dark-hulled ships, painted with the crowned white skull of the Ash Lord inside the pyramid of the society. There are far fewer ships than Intel suggested. Most must be on the far side of the planet. Hmm, into the mouth of the beast, Alexander says from beside me on the bridge. Then, even then, Cassandra's lips unsealed the doom to come, lips by a god's command, never to be believed or heeded by the Trojans. To my other side, Rona sighs in exasperation. Can't we damn well go five bloody minutes without commentary leaking out your ass? He chuckles. Like you'd know what to do with the silence. Anything would be better than you quoting Nilton. Milton, for your edification. Only that wasn't the blind Englishman. It was the attic. I turn to look at them, and they shut up. Rona into a moody silence, Alexander into a luxurious one. He finds a scuff on his black chest armor, and pulls out a silk handkerchief to wipe it off. Lancer, which fleet is that? I ask Rona. She shakes off her irritation, steps forward and pulls an image from her datapad into the air, and magnifies the hulls of the capital ships. It looks like the first and third. 
There's the columns of House Carthii, and the dogs of Serana, their bannermen. Alexander makes a polite sound of disappointment. Rona scans the image in frustration, not understanding what she's got wrong. Shut up, Alexander! I said nothing. Alexander, do you know the answer? I ask. First, third, and eleventh. Eleventh? Rona asks. Alexander continues smugly. Serana is no longer with the third. Intel suggests that the Ash Lord has continued his reform in fleet management and his favouring of smaller, independent forces with greater local autonomy. House Serana was spotted operating in Martian orbit three months ago, without additional support. Starhall believes there are now at least twelve main subdivisions within the societal navy. He pushes his long hair from his eyes. The lattermost fleets, of course, being of smaller size. The rest of the fleets are likely concealed behind the planet, as per the Ash Lord's modus operandi. How many capital ships are in the Eleventh Fleet? I ask, becoming annoyed with him. Estimates say two destroyers, six torch ships, ten frigates, sir. Correct. Thank you, sir. Rona goes into a dark silence. I turn to her and say quietly, What do you think I'm going to say? That I should read my briefs? Yes, but why? She doesn't answer, but looks over my shoulder at Alexander. Rana, the first rule of war is to know where your enemy is. How can you know where he is if you do not know how many he is? Say you spot one torch ship with Serana dogs in the asteroid belt. How can you decide your course if you don't know how many ships she travels with, how many variables are at play for ambushes and counterattacks? I lean close and nod back to Alexander. And more importantly, don't let him bait you. Yes, sir. And you? I turn back to Alexander. He freezes as I pull a hollow from my datapad, showing the ship's bridge. I rewind it and replay the self-satisfied smiles he was giving Rona when my back was turned. I make him watch it three times till his pale cheeks are rose-red. Don't be such an asshole. It's why there's war in the first place. Yes, sir. From his perch in the pilot's chair above, Colloway chuckles in amusement, though still no smile. He's never been fond of Alexander, or many golds, for that matter, but he takes particular joy in seeing my dashing lancer humbled. It doesn't happen often, except for his mouth. The boy would make Lorne proud. He'd like everyone to think his gifts are Jove-sent, but not a moment of his life since I met him has not been spent studying or practicing the martial arts. Sometimes Lorne would let him sit in on our secret lessons in Aegea. He would bring his sister's hazelnut bread and watch with wide, enamored eyes. I motion Alexander closer. I want you to keep your distance from Apollonius. With all due respect, sir, the man has a bomb in his head. He's a madman. He meant it when he mentioned the blood feud. Won't throw a gauntlet because he knows I'll stop it, but he still might take his chance if you turn your back. He won't. He knows you'll blow his head off, and I rather think he likes his head. He'll probably wager that he's safe, 
that I won't sacrifice the mission in order to avenge your death. Of course you would. A slow look of pain grows on his face. Wouldn't you? Of course I would, I say, catching Rona's eye. She knows I'm lying because, unlike Alexander, she does not suffer the shared delusion of grandeur under which all golds secretly live their lives, that they are the chosen one and their time is nigh. Rona would expect me to put the mission above her. With that single look between us, I see her in a fresh light. Sorry to interrupt the school lesson, but we're being hailed by planetary security, Winkle says from the sunken communications pit. His white padded chair is tilted back. The ambient light from the holographic controls that float in front of him bathe his spindly arms in a radioactive green. He's done this dance before, as we've already passed through three levels of security with the codes received from Tharsis's buyer, the first coming at Bastion Station, then twice more from gold patrols and sensor drones as we plunged deeper and deeper into the maw of the enemy orbit. Aside from our contact with the society, we have been on a comms blackout. Last code, I say. Prep the engines for max burn if it doesn't work. Into the mouth of the beast, indeed. After passing through planetary security, we touched down beside five older assault frigates on a quiet landing strip set into the shoals of Tharsis's island in Venus's equatorial seas. Helmeted sentries in observation obelisks watched the ship settle onto the concrete and then look back with disinterest over the night water. That's it, several mutters. Five frigates. I thought there'd be at least a dozen. There's probably more off-island, I say. And if there's not... The howlers assemble in the hold near the disembarkation ramp, where they finish donning their armor. Pebble and Milia escort Apollonius from his cell. He doesn't look a prisoner, dressed all in black and wearing a purple cloak that we found in Quicksilver's closet. Severo went on ahead of me and now sits on one of the parked grav bikes, sharing an apple back and forth with Tongueless, who takes small, delicate bites. Severo glowers at Apollonius as a howler tightens the screws on his armor's backplate. You remember what happens if you get clever, Apple? He squeezes the fruit till it explodes in his grip. He wipes the pulp and juice on Apollonius's black jacket. A little promise from me to you. Tongueless frowns at the smashed fruit. How is your wife? Barker, Apollonius asks after a brief pause. A magnificent woman. Tharsis and I shared her sister several times, of course. A venomous appetite, Antonia. But I cannot say I ever had the exquisite pleasure of the elder Julii. From what Tactus told me, she was like an eclipse of the sun. The howlers between them back out of the way but Severo doesn't move. No insult meant, a mere compliment on a fine, if incongruous, coupling. I have a collection you'll be contributing to very soon, Severo replies, tapping his knife on his boot. 
I'm wary of the gold. He's gotten us to the surface and honoured his end of the bargain thus far. But how long will that last once he's reunited with his brother? They're a strange and sadistic pair. Even Tactus, the most faithful of the brothers, couldn't be trusted farther than you could spit. I motioned tongueless over. He's gained almost fifteen kilos since we found him in that cell. Clown and Pebble have started training him in the onboard simulator for starshell piloting. He's not good, but he's certainly not bad. I was hesitant when Severo suggested we bring him on the mission, but we need another tall body, and he knew his way around the weapons locker better than he knows his way around our kitchen. In a way, that's more disconcerting. But I had Winkle put a security measure in his suit as an insurance policy. Inside the dark zone, we won't be able to transmit to the tech in Apollonius' skull. I tell Tongueless now. I want you to watch him. If he steps out of line, you waste him. I gave the same instructions to Thraxa about Tongueless and Apollonius. The obsidian pulls one of Severo's knives from his belt. He must really be making an impression. Casually, as if it were encoded into his DNA as a passive trait, he twirls the blade through his fingers. He smiles and nods. Goodman, I say quietly. Fascinating conceptual model, Apollonia says, looking at my howlers as I join him. So many disparate genesis working with autonomy. I wonder, if not for the golden monster, how long would it take for you to eat each other? Well, hope you end up being around to find out, I say. I turn to the howlers and see Severo watching my conversation with Apollonius. All right, ladies and gentlemen, helmets up. The friendly faces of my tallest howlers disappear behind the cold masks of pulse armor, replaced with the faces of the demons. My men wear none of their menagerie of trophies or their wolf pelts, and the armor, which often is violently painted per the owner's preference, is a society commander squad's matte black with an iron minotaur on the breast. You fascists look like you'd raise a village and liquidate the local populace with particle beams. Ready for a genocide, sir, Clown says, snapping to attention. Remember, run silent, stay tight, where gold's returned with the air. I turn to Apollonius, who alone wears no armor, and grin. Let's go meet the family. The ramp lowers, and we stare down the barrel of an anti-aircraft particle cannon with a grey in the firing chair. Twenty other greys and a clutch of armoured obsidians stand at the base of the ramp with their weapons casually shouldered, expecting to see a crew of motley pirates and not a garage full of heavily armoured golds. On your knees or you will be fired upon, their leader shouts. Apollonius steps forward into the floodlights, his hands held out. Vorkian, is that how you welcome your master home? he asks. A dark-skinned grey with buzzed bright white hair and a face carved from old boot leather steps out from the ranks. Dominus! She falls to her knees, but 
cannot lower her eyes. Is it you? Is it really you? The men behind her fall to their knees before Apollonius even gets halfway down the landing ramp. It seems the void is not ready for me yet. For it is I, Apollonius Auvaliae Wrath, liberated from the depths and returned to command you, good Vorkian. Who are they, sir? Have you so long been idle that you fail to recognize loyal friends, Vorkian? He looks back at me and smiles. I ready to blow the bominous skull. They are my liberators. Sir, forgive me. I did not know you were alive. Apollonius holds up a hand, cutting her off. Endeavor only to serve me now, and forgiveness you may one day find. Will you serve me, Centurion Vorkian? I never left your service, sir. But your brother... Yes, I hear he has been busy despoiling the house of my mother and father. Where is the idle libertine? Swimming, sir. Vorkian's face darkens in disgust. With his entourage. Magnificent. I am known to enjoy an aquatic fete. Apollonius's teeth glimmer. Smile, Vorkian. The end of ignominy draws nigh, for we have glory to claim once again. Tell the guards and servants they are to retire for the evening to their barracks and quarters. There you will stay and rest, for this is a family matter. Some of the men do not know you, Dominus. They're the Ashlord's toads. Can they be overcome? Yes. The loyal stand ready. Her men nod their heads. Good. Pass the word. Take the ashmen to the barracks, douse them with engine grease, and light them on fire. Then cut off their heads and arms and feed them to the crabs. With pleasure, Dominus. Vorkian and her men jog off into the darkness as we press into the main house. Green foliage consumes the place. Jungle vines creeping on walls, trees leaning over walkways. Our path carries us into the complex through the glass doors at the base of a glass pyramid. We pass more guards who, alerted by Vorkian, kneel at Apollonius's arrival. Two are dragging a grey officer beaten half to death. Minotaur Invictus, they say to their dread lord, and carry on their dark task. Soon the complex is a ghost town. There should be more of them, several mutters under his breath. We find a man swimming laps in the back of the complex, where the roof extends out over a rocky cove. The ocean water is lit from beneath with lights. Four other golds lounge by the side of the water on divans, sipping wine and eating from small plates. Two are naked, the others wrapped in silk robes. Three pinks flit about distributing flutes and rubbing sore muscles. When Tharsus has finished his laps, he slides through the water to the edge and pulls himself out. He's naked, and less muscular than Apollonius, all arms and legs and a newly grown belly paunch. He goes to his towel, but picks up the glass of wine there instead. 
Hard to imagine he is one of the only bone riders to escape capture. Last time I saw Tharsis in the flesh, he was trying to purchase Severo's corpse from Cassius. He stands, slouching to sip his wine, while he fondles the breast of one of the golds playfully. She swats at him with an annoyed laugh, but then acquiesces to a deep kiss. He dribbles wine over the gold woman's stomach till it collects in her navel. He stoops, and she moans softly as he licks it out. The pink, who had been massaging the woman's feet, slinks away. None have seen us. We scan for signs of any guards. You said that ship carries Frankian wines? A muscled gold man, wearing nothing but a diamond necklace, says in surprise. Indeed, Tharsa says. It looked like an assault frigate. Wherever did you find it? Stolen from Quicksilver himself by my audacious armada. Treasure, my goodman, lies in the stars. Ever the mogul, another sycophant adds. One of the pinks hands him a flute. We must throw a fate of bacchanalian proportions, the muscled gold says. The new rationing restrictions are draconian. We're practically nibbling on the crust of bread. I feel like a raw. You're as ugly as one, Tharsa says. I dare say a party is a charming thought, Gregarious, the woman says. If Tharsus can control his appetites long enough to save some for the rest of us. We can invite the Ash Lord, Tharsus adds, reaching for his calm. Oh, that old hermit, the woman replies. I dare say it will take more than a fate to lure him from his shell. She shudders. What if he brings Atlantia and her concubine? Vorkian, Tharsus says into his calm. Vorkian, where is the damn wine? That ship landed twenty minutes ago. I'll have you scourged if you make my guests wait any longer. Don't you mean my guests? Apollonia says, stepping onto the shadowed patio. We follow behind him, keeping our eyes out for unaccounted guards. Tharsus wheels on us, unable to make out our faces. Who is that? How dare you wear armor in my presence? Vorkian? Not Vorkian, Servo says. Who are you? Tharsus demands. Don't you recognize your own blood, little brother? Apollonius asks, stepping into the light. Tharsus goes sheet-white and steps back. Severo joins Apollonius in the light and retracts his helmet. Hello, boyo. Long time no see. Still want my ribcage? Tharsus stares at him in abject horror. Ares! One of the gulls hisses, still holding her glass. The rest stare at Severo in confusion. In that moment, they taste a small bit of the fear their slaves endure every day. The pinks gawp at the sight of us. Grins split two of their slender faces. They rush off, knowing what comes next. Take Tharsis. Kill the rest. I say, pulling the railgun from the holster on my right thigh. I squeeze the trigger. The muscled gull's head explodes. Tongueless fires. The woman whose navel Tharsis drank from holds a hand up 
as if she can stop a toroid of superheated hydrogen moving faster than the speed of sound. Her hand disappears. The lower half of her jaw goes with it. One of the gulls charges us, and Tongueless shoots him as well. A huge bloody hole opens up as the plasma eats out the other side of his chest. His body carries on. Severo shoots his legs out, and he spins sideways to the ground to mew and die. Tharsus springs sideways into the water. Mine, Severo says. He shoots his stun fist into the water to the left of Tharsus. The electricity crackles through the wet conductor and electrocutes the man. He spasms in the water and then floats to the top. The rest of my men pour onto the patio, securing it. The last gold uses the body of the first gold I killed as a shield and searches frantically for a weapon. Apollonius, stay, I say. But he ignores me and slips forward, blocking my shot. The hiding man sees him coming and makes a break for the water of the cove. Apollonius tackles him from behind. The two wrestle on the ground until Apollonius rolls the man sideways, then snaps his neck with a single twist. He stands slowly from the corpse, watching in amusement as Severo dives into the pool to retrieve Tharsis's body. With Tongueless's help, Severo hauls him out of the water and onto the ground. Apollonius rejoins me. I told you to stay, I say. Would Athena stay Odysseus's hand when he returned to Ithaca? No colour is immune from my wrath. He pours wine over his brother's unconscious face. Tharsus, run away from the light. No time for dreams. Back to the land of the weary living. Tharsus's eyes open. He spits up water. Apollonius, he whispers hoarsely. Hello, brother. Did you miss me? Chapter 46 Darrow The Brother's Wrath After the patio is secured, Tharsus sits with a robe around him in a chair apart from the bodies, his initial shock having given way to a beleaguered contempt. Appalling company you now keep, brother, Tharsus hisses to Apollonius who sits across from him. Means to an end, Tharsus. Means to an end. And you brought them here, to my home. Apollonius slaps his brother gently across the face. My home, he corrects. I am the heir of Aliai Wrath, not you. I know you haven't forgotten that, or else I doubt I would have been a prisoner for so long. I tried to rescue you. Tharsus says convincingly. Did you, dear brother? I spared no expense. Hired mercenaries, spent half my spies. Sorry, Tharsus, I say. There was one assault made on Deepgrave, and it was not for Apollonius, and not from you. Slag you, half-breed, Tharsus says, spitting at me. Apollonius slaps him across the face, this time so hard he tumbles out of his chair. He waits for him to find his seat again. Manners, brother. When at the mercy of your enemies, petulance demeans your entity. I reserve manners for people, 
not slaves, Thassa says. I stare down at him without pity. Apollonius has a measure of majesty about him, but Tharsus is a deviant with long eyelashes. His beautiful face no more than the evolutionary adaptation of a predator. You're confused, dear brother, Tharsus says with a manic laugh, lost in the tumble of your own mind without me to help you sort it right. He smiles softly up at the bigger man. Now I shudder to think what they want, what they've promised you. But they don't care for you as I do. When they get what they desire, they will cast you aside. He looks at several. Mongrels without code or custom. I might be a half-breed, Severus says, but at the end of the day, you're still a bitch, and I've still got two ears. He pulls the boot knife, grabs Tharsus's hair, and cuts off his left ear. Tharsus cries out in pain, and Tungless steps toward Apollonius. But there's no need. Apollonius watches with dispassion as Tharsus thrashes. Apollonius! Tharsus hisses. I told you. Mind your manners. Mother was right. You're mad. I am not mad. Apollonius growls and steps forward. Tharsus reels back in sudden terror, but Apollonius's anger dissolves as fast as it came. I am not mad, he says quietly, then breaks into a broad smile. I simply lust for life and the thrill sport of war. Why should I deny myself the delight when these two descended to offer me the ultimate play? He sighs. I know it is difficult for you to see me again, dear brother. Why, how easy it must have been when quarrelsome me was languishing in the abyss. But it was not easy for me. Neither the isolation, nor the boredom, nor the fear that my great strand of life would be cut short before my time of glory— but do you fathom what the deepest, darkest lamentation was? He leans forward. Do you? It was the fear that my dearest, loving brother, my partner against the world, was complicit in my incarceration. Complicit! Ridiculous! Irrefutably complicit. That's a lie! Tharsus says. They filled your head with bilious dreck. Is that so? Dreck, bold and grotesque. Come now, Tharsus. Do you really think I don't know your tells by now? You could never hide them from me. Apollonius, I would never betray you. Apollonius smiles. You should be honour-bound to a blood feud against Grimmers. Why would the Ash Lord keep you alive if you were not his creature? Did you think he would bring you to his side? Tharsus, the pink drinker. Tharsus, the torturer. Tharsus, the vampire of Thessalonica. The jackal might have treasured your cruelty, but these others see you, and they laugh at you like the drunken jester you are. They think you a little nasty adolescent with blessed genetics. But 
point of fact. You're an adolescent with an army. So they kept you, and let you distract yourself with idle playthings, and helped themselves to that army. You let Grimace give it to those clammy Tarkathii. His lips curl back over his large teeth. My army. The Ashlord played you like a fool, brother. You knew. Admit it. He leans forward. Admit it. Yes, Tharsus says. He looks down in shame. The blood flow from his ear, now a sluggish trickle. It is true. I knew. He looks up with hopeful eyes. But I had no choice. No? I had to survive. Why? For a facile existence of wetting your prick in myriad holes. You pathetic little deviant. You are not a child any longer. He snatches his hair, and finally Tharsus's rebellious facade cracks. The hint of terror he let slip earlier gives way to a storm of it. Don't kill him, I say. We need him to get into the dark zone. Kill him? Apollonius looks back at me, seeing my apprehension. An ear is just an ear, but a life. He shakes his head. He's my brother. He looks back to Tharsus. My brother who betrayed me. My brother who left his beloved kin to rot. He squeezes his hair, pulling tighter. My brother who wished to be an only child. I didn't. Didn't what? I didn't want to die, Tharsus says pitifully. He said he would kill me if I didn't comply. But if I did... The Valley Irath name would live on. Mother and father gone. I didn't know what to do. Of course you didn't. You need me, Apollonius says soothingly. You need your big brother. He releases his hold and gently strokes Tharsus's hair. All this time by yourself. All these decisions... What horrible loneliness your ambition has brought. Tharsus closes his eyes, sinking into the touch of his brother. I am sorry. I know. If I could take it back. I know. But amends must be made. A pound of flesh taken. He strokes Tharsus's face as the younger man's eyes filled with tears open to look at him in terrible fear. No, not from you, brother. There's only two of us left in all the worlds, and what pleasure would there be there in witnessing the rise of our house if I am alone? I forgive you, my darling. Tharsis looks like he doesn't understand. Apollonius leans forward to kiss the tears from his brother's face. I forgive you, Tharsus, for your sins, for your nature, for everything. Tharsus bursts into drunken tears. The display does not warm my heart. 
It shows the vile, maggoty innards of this family. I feel tainted being here with them, breathing the same air, and want nothing more than to be done with this, to be home with my family, to feel real love, not this weird tapestry of domination and cruelty they've woven. Poor Tactus. What chance did ever he have? Severo looks sickened by the display, and I feel heartbroken, knowing I've taken him so far from his girls, from Victra, into this pit of devils. Maybe Victra was right. Maybe I should have left him behind. Then Wolfgar's blood would not be on his hands, nor mine, and we would not have to share air with these men. Thank you, Apollonius, Tharsis says. Thank you. But why are you here? Why with... them? Because our pound of flesh must be taken from the man who turned brother against brother. Soon the Ash Lord will die. That is the cause that binds the Reaper to me. And you, my beloved, will deliver him to us. How? Tharsis asks. You'll gain us an audience, Severo says. Get us in nice and tight. But the Ash Lord hasn't had an audience in three years. He reigns in solitude. Three years, I repeat, not believing it. That's absurd. Nonetheless, it is true. How the hell is that possible? Severo asks. There was an assassination attempt, so the rumours say. By whom? Severo presses. One of Victor's? None of mine got even close. Tharsus looks perplexed. I assumed by you. No? If anyone wishes to see him, they must go through his daughter, Atlantia. He looks to his brother. Something passing between them. Some unspoken knowledge that I don't like. It was a risk in letting them reunite. Men with unspoken bonds like the one Severo and I have are always the most dangerous. But Atlantia has vanished, Tharsus says. What does that mean? I ask. A woman like that can't just disappear. It means I don't know where she is. If the Carthii are the Saud, no, they aren't telling me. I've been frozen out. Is the Ashlord cloistered on Gorgon Isle? I ask, hoping Republic intelligence was correct about the Dark Zone. At least tell us that. Yes, Tharsus nods, but you cannot approach the island without a summons. The place is a fortress. Severo looks over at me. The air around the island is restricted to House Grimace aircraft for two hundred kilometres. It will be defended by an army. His Ash Legions. You'll never get in. Not unless we bring an army of our own, Apollonia says with a smile. Chapter 47 Lysander, Teeth and Tears I rush to Cassius as Dido sends her men to bring in the safe. He's fallen to the floor. Colour has fled his cheeks. I shake him. Cassius, wake up. Holding him now, I feel how limp he's gone, how much blood of his has stained the white marble. Stay with me, I whisper, checking his pulse. 
so faint I can barely feel it. Cassius! His eyes open a sliver. Julian, he murmurs. I hesitate. Yes, I say, yes, it's Julian. Stay with me, brother, stay with me. He blinks up at me, clarity coming to him. Lysander. I smile, happy to be seen. Lysander, what have you done? Tears leak out of his eyes. What have you done? The accusation puts me on my heels. Robotically, I turn to Dido. He needs a surgeon. And he'll have one when I'm satisfied. No, he'll have one now. His life for the safe. Already making demands? Perhaps you really are a loon after all. Seraphina kneels to feel his pulse. Mother! Very well. The woman motions her attendants to collect the man, but Diomedes steps in their way. The Olympic Order will take custody of him. Do you not trust me, Dido asks. He ignores her. Seeing the worry in my eyes, he says, Our surgeons will do what they can. If he dies, it will not be by their hand. I nod in thanks. The stoic man motions two Olympic knights to carry Cassius out. They hoist him up and pass unmolested through the crowd to disappear through one of the stone doorways. He will survive. He has to. Lost in thought, I flinch as the safe slams to the ground in the centre of the blood-soaked marble. Dido's men back away from it. Your turn, young loon, Dido says. Prove who you are. I pass Seraphina without looking at her on my way to the safe, conscious of the hundreds of eyes that watch and judge not just me, but the worth of my blood. I bend before the safe and numbly turn the dial through the combination. My hands are shaking so severely I have to try twice until the tumbler thumps inside the safe. The lock unlatches. Then the secondary lock, and the door swings open. I back away, Cassius's words echoing. What have you done? I've made a choice. The right choice. I move so Seraphina can replace me in front of the safe. She carefully sets my ivory box and Cassius's oak vessel atop the safe. The sigils of our houses stand out in the dim light on the wooden ivory. It's in my box, I say. Seraphina reverently opens the lid. Inside she finds my grandmother's house loon ring. She shows it to her mother before moving aside my mother's book of poetry. Her fingers glide over the worn green leather edges of the poem book as though she can feel what's inside before lifting up Carnus's razor. She produces a small tool, unfastens the screws smoothly on the bottom of the hilt, and pops open the mechanism. The holodrop is stuck to the chemical impulse unit like a lone drop of morning dew. She deposits it in the receiver plate of the projector Dido's men have brought into the room and steps aside to make room for her mother. Something makes her look back at the box and the crescent moon there. I hate her eyes lingering on it. It feels somehow shameful that my family's last relics are held in so small a box, bare now for the world to see. I did not want this path to be taken, Dido says to the moon lords in a grand, sweeping voice. The sort, great statesmen and tyrants all seem to possess. This violence, this coup against my own husband, she shakes her head wearily. It is a travesty. There are whispers of agreement there. You all know I have laboured for years to convince Romulus that the Pax Ilium was made under false pretenses. I have been ridiculed, mocked that this obsession is a madness born of my foreign birth. Perhaps the hot blood of Venus is not gone from my veins entirely. But I am a child of the dust now. I know I am not above the law. The golds frown down at her. The actions taken by me and my men are not above the law. In fact, they were enacted to ensure that the law is followed, which is why, when I have finished speaking, I will set myself at your mercy. Like my husband, I will set myself before an Olympic trial, and you may judge if I am mad if you like. And if my actions are found treasonous, I will meet the dust 
but until then I ask you for your ears. Greeted by silence and a nod from Helios, arch-knight of the Olympics, she continues. Ten years ago, the dockyards of Ganymede were destroyed. A hundred thousand died on the station. Ten million Ganymede died when the rubble fell upon New Troy. It was a calamity not seen in the rim since the coming of the Ash Lord. We blamed Rock, our Fabii, and his sovereign. She looks at me. But what if I told you there was a hidden truth? Another man responsible for the newest in the long list of crimes against our people. She paces along the floor. Four months ago, I received word from a broker in the Corps who claimed to have information that would be of interest to me. The broker, a white of the Ophian Guild, represented an unknown seller who wished to exchange the data for information in our archives. The information was purported to be sensitive. They could not risk transmitting it for fear of Republic interception. Knowing my husband was required to uphold the Pax Ilium and would do so regardless of the information, I acted of my own accord and sent my most trusted agent, my daughter, Serafina, into the interior. This is what she returned with. She activates the projector. The audio comes first. The sound of metal dragged upon metal, whimpering, metal on flesh. Then the video appears in the air in the centre of the room over our heads with ghostly radiance. It shows the blooded deck of a starship, a grand one judging by the size of the bridge. The mutilated body of a dead gold woman is being dragged by her hair by a pair of huge pale hands covered with tribal runes. They could only belong to an obsidian woman. The hands pry open the gold's mouth, pinning her teeth open with a curved wedge of ceremonial bone. Fingers jam roughly into the gold's mouth and pull her tongue forward with a pair of iron prongs. Then, with a hooked knife, the hands saw at the base of the tongue till it comes free with a grisly sucking sound. The hands pierce the tongue with an iron barb and push it along to join the dozen others already hanging there on the obsidian's belt. Racial indignation rises in me. The peerless at our sides watch without flinching. This is the true face of the world, the darkness beneath civilization that my grandmother warned me about. I have known it, felt it, and in absence of her guidance, watched it leak through her fallen empire. The obsidian leaves the corpse behind and walks past the body of a second fallen gold. At her feet, the epaulets of an arch praetor are flecked with blood, but the body is seemingly unmolested. The face of Rock Alfabii is pale and bloodless. The obsidian joins a coterie of battle-scarred women in spoiled armour who form a crescent around the forward viewport of the bridge. White hair stained with blood and soot hangs down their backs. In front of them kneels the dread woman Sefi the powerful sister of Ragna Volaris. She clutches a battle-axe and gazes out the viewport as the ship slides across space toward a mottled blue and green moon. Two armoured golds stand beside her along with a stocky Asiatic grey looking out at the pride of Ilium, the dockyards of Ganymede. Two hundred, eleven kilometres of metal, bolts, dry docks, engineers, refineries, assembly lines, ingenuity and dreams and labour. One of the two great dockyards of humanity before the Republic's fledgling shipyards over Phobos, all suspended above the pale splendour of Ganymede's equatorial seas and at the mercy of her enemies. Not of Fabii and his sovereign, as the worlds have believed for more than a decade, but of the rising of the despised slave king. Men built this? Sefi asks in awkward common. It took 250 years. It's how old the first dock there is, says the gold woman at her side, the traitor Julii. The grey comes forward to whisper something to the second gold, a man. He stands with his back to us, but I would know him by his shadow or even the faint whisper of his hoarse voice. His helmet is off. His armour was once white, but now it is scored with pulse blasts, 
razor marks and viscera. He slouched, his weight leaning on the rigid single blade at his side. He seems an old man, but the side profile of his face is scarcely older than mine is now. How could he do all this before his twenty-third year? Even Alexander of Macedon would marvel at the slave king of Mars, a creature as grand as the empire he broke. His image glitters in the eyes of the hundred moon lords. The reaper turns to look back with stony eyes at someone in the bridge pits, but the Julii sets a hand on his shoulder. Share the load, darling, she says. This one's on me, she raises her voice. Helmsman, open fire with all port batteries. Launch tubes 21 through 50 at their centre line. The peerless around the bleeding place stand in silence, their faces illuminated by the pale fire that tears into their lost dockyards. The docks were never meant for war. Her ships were to defend her. What horror that her greatest child, the Colossus, would return upon the brink of independence to destroy her. Tungsten iron rounds shear through metal bulkheads like hail careening into wet bread. The dockyards die in silence. Oxygen vents, spheres of fire gasp and drown in space, and dead metal drifts off, pulled inexorably to Ganymede's bosom. As the destruction reigns, the reaper turns from the viewport, his face a death mask of grief and pain, and I feel as if I hear his heart beat across the years, across the space, and know how far he's come from the man he wanted to be. He reminds me of my godfather. While the room disintegrates into fury, I marvel at the boldness of Dara's charade, even at the shrewdness of his cruelty. In the last moment of his victory, he saw an opportunity to win a war against the Rim that had not even begun, and he took it with as bold a manoeuvre as I've ever seen. But it is certainty, I feel, not respect or horror. This is the man I once idolised, an unpredictable gambler of savage intellect with a limitless capacity for violence. I respect his capabilities, but I do not respect the man. And here, in the wake of his destruction, I understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that to protect mankind, the Reaper must die. Dido, it seems, was not mad after all. The slave king betrayed us, Dido says, lifting her razor high till the bitter blade trembles in the air through the projection of the dying docks, the metal shiny and opalescent, like a strand of tears frozen in time. The Pax Ilium is broken. When his tattooed, mechanised horde is finished with the core, they will come for us. Your families, your homes, you see it, you know it. So now, my noble friends, I call for war. The moon lords look to old Helios, who sits with Diomedes. The old man stands slowly to his dignified height, the picture of dignity and cold resolve. He pulls his razor from his hip and extends it into the air. War, cries their truth knight. War, thunder the eleven others, unsheathing their blades, while they thrust them into the air. Diomedes barely lifts his hand. With the Olympics, having spoken, a fever spreads through the assembled moon lords. A host of razors unfurl and shine in the dim light, the teeth of so many dragons. Seraphina looks at me. Finally, she has what she sought. With a look of religious satisfaction, she unravels her razor and, like her mother, like her brother and generations of kin, she lifts it into the air. War, she says softly, as if declaring it only against me. Chapter 48 Lysander, The Boy and the Knight In the bedlam that follows, I am spirited away by Diomedes and a coterie of his men. They take me back to my room and push me inside. Diomedes, I say before the door closes. The knight turns. Cassius, I want to see him. I need to know if he's alive. It is not safe for you in the halls. I helped you. You are still a loon. Whether he lives or dies is up to him. And your surgeons. 
realization dawns. Do you think we would not care for him? He showed his honor. I will stand vigil myself and send word when I know his fate. Thank you. He hesitates. He betrayed your grandmother, yet you travel with him. He saved my life from the rising. I am bound to him. I understand. He nods, his first sign of respect to me. But if he dies, you will be free of him. Then to what will you be bound, Loon? He leaves me with that and shuts the door. It locks from the other side. I pace the cold stone, unable to think of anything but Cassius on the floor asking me what I've done. I feel the walls closing in. I retreat inward, forcing myself into the willow way, imagining my breath as the breeze that moves the branches and sways the grass and kisses the water. A second movement of breath now comes, which moves the lavender and pushes the bees and tinkles the wind chimes of summer at Lake Selene. A third movement is that of fall, the fourth breath that moves the curtains and twists the flames in the braziers and brings the snow of Hyperion in through an open window and makes Cassius's cape dance in the wind is that of Luna's winter. Deep in that distant pool of memory, I see him again for the first time. The young Bologna stands with his back to me, looking out at the citadel grounds beyond the balcony. Sun glints off the gold tip of the Legion Pyramid headquarters in the distance. His hair is coiled and shines with scented oil. Snow melts there. His coat is dark blue with feathered silver epaulets and a silver-fringed collar. He wears a silver razor on his hip and silver buckles on his boots. He looks like a storybook knight, and it makes me distrust him. Though capable, he is a petty, spoiled creature who lured my favourite House Mars student onto the bank of a river and there betrayed him. Why? Because he could not absorb what Grandmother extols as the highest lessons of the Institute. The bearing of loss. If the loss of a single brother in the passage broke him, what good would he be under the grind of war? So you are the favourite son of Tiberius, I say in the memory. He turns around to appraise me. In a white cashmere jacket with pearl buttons holding a book of mathematics in my hands, I stand no higher than his waist. A condescending smile spreads across his lips. Salve, my good man, I say. Lysander, isn't it? Cassius asks without attention to protocol. It is. He waits for me to say something more. I do not. Well, you're an eerie little creature, aren't you? He leans closer, his lively eyes narrowing. Jove, you look eighty and eight all at the same time. My grandmother is wroth with you, I say. His eyebrow arcs. Is she now? Have I done much to be wroth about? You have killed eleven men in the bleeding place since summer, and your villa has been a constant source of debauchery and media fodder. If you were attempting to encourage the stereotype of Martians as war-makers, you succeeded most admirably. Well, he flashes a smile, I do like causing a stir. Why? Does it make you feel important? Alice Aquilae? The words of your house? On eagle's wings? I suppose an air of self-satisfaction is natural amongst the apex predator of the sky. Who would contradict them? His face darkens. Careful, little moon boy, you may wag that tongue all you like on this hill, but on Mars, that's how men meet their end. I blink up at him, knowing I have nothing to fear. Does truth disconcert you so? Call me a pedant for manners. Manners? Well, if it's manners you wish to discuss, I can call Arja in, and you can debate the particulars with her. They are different on Luna. He wags a finger at me. Using the claws of others is not brave, nor is it the same as having claws. I would have thought you of all people would know that. I'm not sure what he means, me of all people, so I fight the instinct to shrug, knowing it a foul habit, and incline my head to dismiss his puzzling insult. 
One day I will have claws, and I will learn to use them, my good man. Until then, I do believe the claws of others will suffice. Gory hell, you're a terror. He watches me a moment. I've decided to like you, little moon boy. Thank you, I say. But do not be offended if I withhold similar sentiment. I told Grandmother the other Martian would be better. His mood swings to darkness once again, a feeble trait to be so protean. Which other Martian? The orphan, I smile. Andromedus. Darrow. Yes, he was Arch Primus, was he not? He stormed Olympus. Unheard of quality, despite his parents being of such humble acclaim. The Andromedases were Martian, bannermen of House Aquilus before they tried their hand in the belt. Your bannermen. Did you know them? House Aquilus, he smirks. Haven't even heard of it. It is in eastern Samaria, but of course he takes nothing after them in features either. He's inordinately durable and clever. Most importantly, he inspired loyalty. You, despite your natural gifts, did not. I won't be lectured by an unscarred brat, no matter his last name. You're not even supposed to know about the Institute yet, little cheat. You prove my point. You have no humility. Andromedus would be better. Better for what? Now, Cassius, didn't Lady Bologna teach you patience as the utmost virtue? A young woman wearing my house colours but speaking with an Aegean brogue leans at the doorway to my grandmother's office, smiling nastily at Cassius. Virginia, he says with a strange, pinkish smile. Hello, handsome. She smiles sweetly at me. Lysander, did you write any poems for me today? I blush and suddenly wish I were as tall as Cassius. None of worth, I fear. That was not what Atalantia told me. She's much too forgiving. Well, I'll be the final judge of their quality. Shall you read them to me after supper? Arja was going to take me to see the falcons at Gossamere, I say. May I come? I nod, despite knowing Arja will be annoyed. Wonderful. I do love falcons. Eagles are better, Cassius says. He looks her up and down admiringly, and in an objectifying manner with which I immediately take umbrage. Heard your man went off to play with ships. Subtle, she says. In any matter, I don't have a man. Well, not for long anyway. Carnus has been enrolled. Perhaps my brother will have a better go at him than yours did. Where is that bronzy miscreant these days, anyway? How should I know? They stand in awkward silence. The sovereign's waiting, Cassius. Virginia gestures him to follow and winks at me. Tell Arja not to leave without me. I will, I say distantly. The memory evaporates as I open my eyes. The room is quiet and so far from home. Cassius's blood has dried on my hands and begun to itch. I wash them in the basin in the corner till the spigot tells me I've reached my daily ration of water. I pump the spigot once more. Daily ration exceeded, it drones again. My hands are still pink. I sit back on the sleeping pallet and wait, focusing on slowing my breath till I slip into a shallow slumber. I wake at the sound of my door opening, hoping instinctively that it is Serafina. But why would it be? The pink... Aure stands there nervously, her hands clutched together, her eyes on the ground. There's blood under her nails. Dominus, she bows, the storm knight sent me. Is Cassius alive? She shifts on the soles of her grey slippers. Is he? Be plain. No, her eyes flutter up to meet mine. He has passed. I see nothing for a full minute. When? Not long ago, I'm sorry, Dominus. I drift to the window, the darkness and cold outside creep in. That long, I didn't even feel him go. It was while I was sleeping. The roar of my crumbling world drowns out the woman's voice. This is not how it was supposed to end. I thought I had saved him, that I would have a chance to show him that he was wrong, 
to help him realize the mistake he'd made choosing Darrow and convince him that there was still good he could do in the world, still peace he could bring. Somehow I thought our lives would go on together, and one day he would follow me as I follow him. Instead, he's gone into the void, his last moments spent thinking I betrayed him and stole his redemption. I'm weightless there against the stone, floating, and at the same time crushed by the weight of my choices and the impossible question I ask myself. What would I have done differently? In some other world, the pink is still talking. I was told that he died of exsanguination. I understand, I hear myself saying. Stand astride the sorrows. Do not let it touch you. Thank you, Ari, I say. May I see him? She looks back at my guards, and I realize they are not the same Diomedes left. These are Dido's men. I'm afraid that is impossible, Dominus. Why? She looks at the ground. Answer me. His body was taken by schoolmates of Bellerophon to desecrate in the waste. Diomedes went to pursue them. So he sent you? I have his trust. I see. Is there anything else? No, Dominus. When the door closes, the composure shivers. First a crack like a plate of glass struck by an errant pebble. The crack stretches and spreads and proliferates to the whole plate of dignity shatters all at once. My legs cave from under me as I think of how Pytha will suffer from this news. A single sob escapes. It is alone in the room. No sound follows it to give it company or comfort. Just one long lament of a wounded animal, and I am quiet, rocking there on the cold floor with my knees hugged to my chest like that distant child who heard from Aja that his parents had perished. Her dark arms held that boy as he trembled. Her whispers soothed his heart. This stone is cold like that stone, this pain is deep like that pain, this moment like that moment. Only now, with the passing of Cassius, there is no one left to hold the boy. All that was left of him is dead, and the life of the man must begin. Chapter 49 Lyria, Enemy of the State The Barker boarders abandoned their attack on the shuttle, soon as the Telemannus and Augustus' forces from the citadel threatened to overwhelm them. Now the knights guide us to an elevated landing pad atop a spire in the Citadel of Light. The soldiers drag me from the assault ship out into the rain. I lower my head, afraid to meet anyone's gaze. These are not the greys who guarded my mine, or the reds who came to 121, or the ones who pulled their guns on me in the promenade. They're colder, harder creatures. I look up at the night sky and glimpse the stars through a break in the cloud layer. The air is cool, wet with rain. I try to feel it all to mark these sensations, knowing a cell is where I'll spend the rest of my days. In the mine, I thought sky was stone. And after a month in Camp 121, I forgot the stars were there. But now, as I know it is the last time I will see and feel them, I wonder how I ever survived without them. I'm escorted deep within the citadel, till we reach a pale wood door. Obsidians larger than any of the Telemannuses stand to either side. Holiday drags me through the doors into the room and shoves me into a chair in front of a long table made from a single slab of black wood. Across the table, under the golden angels on his bald head, 
Daxo, Otelamanus's huge eyes dissect me. He wears a violet tunic with a golden fox lapel. Next to him on the table sits a small aquarium filled with water and a maggot-coloured animal. A carved creature with spindly legs and a gelatinous torso that reminds me of the mud leeches in the river outside 121. I shudder. A spoon clicks on China. I tear my eyes from the monster to look at Daxo's companion, the elderly pink woman I saw with the sovereign at Quicksilver's. Elegance in beige robes. Her grey hair is spun up above her head like a frosted rose and held together by a simple silver clasp. Her motherly eyes, set in an old, distinguished face, watch me with a more human interest than Daxo has ever looked at anything. No one speaks. My fear deepens. After a moment, Daxo peers at his datapad and uncoils himself from his chair to walk to the balcony door. He opens it just as a streak of metal slams onto the stone parapet outside. I flinch as Niobe, fresh from the sky, walks in smelling like mine brimstone. Her armour is slick from the rain and leaves puddles on the floor as she stalks past her taller son into the room. Her snarling fox-head helmet stares at me with electric blue eyes before slithering from her face into the collar of her armour. Bloody hell! The pleasant, welcoming wife of the man who brought me from Mars is gone, replaced by a violent warlord. Bags gather under her eyes and her neck fat pushes against the collar of her too tight armour. It's been some time since she wore it, I know. Take off her muzzle, Daxo tells Holiday. The woman undoes the metal arms around my mouth and extracts the plastic tongue depressor. I gasp air in through my mouth and work my tongue over the raw spots the plastic made on my gums. Holiday undoes the imprisoning armour jacket. I exhale in pain as my dislocated shoulder jostles. Lady Niobe, I say quickly, do not speak, she says, barely able to look at me. His cavix, silence, she roars. She slams a metal-clad hand down on the table, cracking the black wood. I reel back. You will speak when spoken to, or Jove help me, I will... Her words falter, and she steps back. Her son reaches back to comfort her. I tremble, not just from fear, but from the inability to explain, to put into words how sorry I am. Rain patters against the windows. A fire crackles in the corner, and I shift, unable to meet their eyes. Is Kavix alive? I ask. There's no response. Belly, Niobe whispers. He may still die. Lyria of Lagolos, Daxo leans toward me, his chair creaking under his immense weight. His voice alone is twice the size of me. Your life, such as it is, 
depends on what you say in the minutes that follow. Do you understand? I understand. I got information. I saw them. The people that did this. I can help you. Good. The truth is your only refuge. He nods to Holiday behind me. But if I discern you are lying or being less than forthcoming, other measures will be taken. His hand brushes the aquarium. The creature inside slams against the glass, seeking the heat from his skin. Invasive measures. There was a man named Philippe. I begin. Daxo holds up a hand. We're aware of what you told the watchmen about this Philippe. But horse before the cart. Are they alive? I nod. Thank Jove, Niobe murmurs. Were they hurt? Not badly. Where did you last see them? Daxo asks. In an industrial building, after they slagged the shuttle, Philippe took us there and gave over the children to the others. Where were they taking them? I don't know. I didn't hear. It's clear Daxo and Niobe don't believe that. I want to explain about Philippe, but their questions come in a sudden spit. Were they girls? The pink asks. These others? No. What colour were they? Mostly obsidian. Grey. Thought I saw reds and a pink. Obsidian? Niobe says in fear. We should tell Sefi. We can't tell Sefi, Daxo says. Who knows what she would do with the information? They won't even meet with Virginia any longer. The pink was in charge, I say. Could be a society black ops, the old pink says to Daxo. Perhaps lurchers or night stalker. Daxo nods and looks back at me. Did they have Venusian accents? No. Martian? I don't know. Mostly Lunese, I think. Did you recognize any of them? I shake my head. Who was this pink, the leader of the group that took the children? Didn't hear his name. Listen, I tried to get closer to hear clear like, but I nudged a pipe, and then they came storming after me. Who did? The crows. Daxo smiles in amusement. You expect us to believe you outran obsidians. Didn't bloody run into them. I jumped into a vent. I gesture to my shoulder and bloody hands. What? You don't believe me? They exchange sceptical glances. Where did this supposed chase happen? Daxo says. The trail will soon grow old. We must catch them before they go off moon. They may already be gone, the pink says. We should freeze all air traffic, Niobe says. Search every ship across the whole moon. What they did to your father. Mother, I wish we could, but that would expose the whole affair. Virginia would have to step down. Her judgment would be in question. The vote is scheduled for next week. This must be dealt with in silence. It was in one of the reconstruction zones, I say quickly. There were cranes everywhere. Which one? Daxo asks. Which zone? I, I don't know. I've only been to Hyperion twice. She was picked up at an Alpha City checkpoint, 21B, Senator, Holiday says. I initiated a search before you were brought in, 
the old pink says. Ten teams are scouring the area. All Martians? The pink looks at Holiday for an answer. Yes, sir, Holiday says. Loyal men all. Good. But we don't even know what we're looking for, Holiday adds. And the longer we look, the more attention we're going to get. The Vox Populi will hear about it if we increase our presence. That is not an option, Daxo says harshly. They mutilated your father, Niobe growls. And we will find them, he replies, with precision, not an army. Then we need to refine our search, the pink says. Daxo waves a hand, and a map of the reconstruction zone grows out of the table in three dimensions. Thousands of buildings. Show me the building, Lyria. My eyes scan the hundreds of half-completed skyscrapers. They all look the same. How am I supposed to do that? All these look the same. Wasn't exactly looking back at the building with crows after me. I told you what would happen if you did not cooperate, Daxo says. God's Daxo, give the girl a damn moment, the pink says from her side of the table. She's clearly been through an ordeal. Do you need pain medication for your arm, Lyria? I nod in thanks. Coffee with morphone, she says into a calm. A moment later, a servant enters and sets the tray of steaming coffee down in front of me. My name is Theodora, the pink tells me after thanking the servant. I was the steward for Darrow of Lycos. His steward? Then she knows the reaper better than almost anyone. Thank you, I say as I sip the coffee and feel the cool relief of the morphone as it dulls the pain in my shoulder. We're all people in the end. Good to remember that. See, this isn't just about getting the son of the sovereign back. Pax is dear to all of us, such a soft soul. You've met him, I nod. So you can understand how much we need your help. Now can you remember a logo? A tram depot? A monument, perhaps? There was a tramway, I say, broken, I ran there when I escaped from Philippe. I was trying to find a way up out of Lost City. How far did you run? Kilometre? Two? Daxo asks. Maybe four. Couldn't have been more before I found it. He filters out all buildings more than four kilometres from a tram line. I followed it along like this. I sketch a finger along the tram line toward the pedestrian stairs that lead up to the checkpoint. I remember the crumbling numbers crawling with lichen. I started near station 17, I think. Daxo nods to Holiday, and she steps away to radio teams to search the buildings in the area. They'll have gone by now, so send the forensics team. He looks over to Theodora. I want satellite footage showing all ships entering and leaving that district. You're doing wonderfully, Lyria, Theodora says. This is the only way to help yourself, by continuing to cooperate. I don't like the way she says it. Now, she says with a soft smile. When did the society recruit you? What? The society? 
It wasn't working for anyone. You expect us to believe that, Daxo says. My father brings you in, shows you kindness, shows your nephew kindness, and you betray us to the society. Or was it the Red Hand? Tell me the truth. I am. We have video of the device used to disable the transport before it fried the cameras, Daxo says. Preliminary forensics tell us that it was a custom build made at great expense, far beyond your means. If you have the video, then can you see my face? I snap. Did I look like a person who expected my necklace to burst into a bloody robot? If you weren't complicit, then why did your Philippe take you with him? Niobe says softly. Rain falls on the window behind her. Why not leave you behind? Or kill you? Why save your life? Do I look like a low-life thug smart enough to make fools out of the lot of you? No. So how the hell would I have a bloody clue? Ask him. Was it during your time in the assimilation camp? Theodora asks. Is that when someone contacted you? Asked you for a favour, or promised you something so long as you helped them. Is that when you met Philippe? I glare at her. I met him here. Is your name really Lyria of Lagalos? Daxo asks. You know it is, or you wouldn't have let me work in your father's house. Daxo watches me for some sign of duplicity, his hand stroking the aquarium again. I've played this game since I was a boy, Lyria. Half-truths. Hidden hands. The Ash Lord is a master at this subterfuge, as is his daughter. It would not take much to massacre a Red Camp, even less to place one of his agents amongst the survivors. Wound her. Have her impersonate a Red of Largolos and then play upon the sympathies of my father so that you could slide into our house. Discredit the Sovereign's judgment just before the vote on the peace. He looks me over. You look a lamb, but perhaps a wolf lies under the wall. I was born in Lagalos. I can tell you the name of every head talk and hell diver for the last thirty years. Try me! But of course you can. Society intelligence trains its agents well. Perhaps you even believe you are who you claim to be. Perhaps they conditioned you. Your memories, your history, your grief for your dead family could all be a fiction. Slag you. My sister was not a fiction, and neither is Liam. You think he's a spy too? I try to breathe the quick anger out, remember my sister the smiles and warm embraces. I am a red of Lagalos. I am not working for the slavers. No, of course not, Theodora says. The society killed her mother. Isn't that right, Lyria? They denied her the medication that would have saved her life. I nod. At least she understands... I'd rather die than help the society. Her blood, along with so many others, is on their hands. That's right. And the blood of your family is on the hands of the Republic. My gut twists. The Republic should have protected you. Her eyes glisten with empathy. She leans forward. She understands. 
We liberated you from the mines, promised you a new life, and then we let murderers take everything from you. We hurt you more than the society ever could, didn't we? I wipe the tears of anger that fill my eyes. You're right to blame us, Theodora says softly. You're right to blame the Sovereign. Their deaths are her fault. So it's only right you want revenge. Was it the Red Hand? You aren't listening to me. Daxo takes over. They died because of her. Your father, your sister, your brother, your nieces and nephews. You wanted to hurt the Sovereign. No, to get her back because it was her fault. Her fault that they are dead. Her fault that you are alone. You blame her, don't you? Yes, I blame her. The rage oozes out of me, dark and nasty. That bitch brought us up from the mines and put us in the camp to rot. The red hand took everything and she didn't stop him. She didn't even try cause she had bigger shit to worry about like birthday galas and walks in the bloody gardens. They're dead because she promised freight she couldn't deliver. I stab a finger on the table but I'm not working for anyone and I would never hurt a child. My composure cracks as the last word comes out. I've bottled it up inside this anger thought I could keep it down and forget the pain. But it wasn't ever forgotten. Being closer to these people has made it worse. Philippe saw that something inside me is broken, and he used it. The pink watches me with pitying eyes. Use the oracle, she says softly. The oracle, Niobe whispers. They have Pax and Electra, Daxo replies. You saw, father. What do you think they're doing to them? His mother's shoulders slump. It has to be done. Holiday, hold her down. The Grey hesitates. Does the Sovereign know? We are her council, Theodora says. You told Darrow you would protect his family. When he returns, do you want to tell him you failed? Holiday's hands bruise my shoulders as she grabs me. Daxo reaches into the aquarium and pulls free the carved monster. Its legs claw at the air as he approaches me. The scent of its pale flesh is sweet, like candied almonds. Its scorpion tail is covered with a plastic cap and waves as it sees my exposed forearm. I shiver in fear, begging them to stop. They don't listen. I knew this would happen. I knew the Sovereign would have her own men peel me apart. But it doesn't make the horror any easier. In Daxo's other hand is a small knife. He draws a shallow wound on the underside of my forearm. Stop, I beg. Please, I'm telling the truth. We will soon find out. The creature lunges for the blood and begins to suck. Its cold, slippery legs hug my arm like the fingers of an old woman. I jerk in horror, but go nowhere under Holiday's hold. Let us begin again, Theodora says. Who? What are you doing? An angry voice says from behind. 
Niobe sweeps into a bow. Daxo follows, his less deep. Virginia, the girl is intransigent, he says. We need what she knows. I crane my neck around and see the sovereign standing at the door in a tunic of white. Did I say you could torture her, Daxo? He meets her gaze without flinching. There's no need for you to see it. This is why you have us. Because I'm such a frail flower that I need bold souls to do my torturing for me. She sneers. Niobe, even you. After what was done to Cavix. Yes. And what he would say about this? She waits. Then whipping out her razor, she storms to my side and grips the barbed tail of the creature sucking my blood. She stabs it in the back of the head. It screams like a human child, tail thrashing in her hand. She flings it to the ground where it crawls and finally shudders to death. She turns on Theodora. I told you to kill all those monsters years ago. Did you not hear me? Or is insolence now to be expected from my spy master? I preserved a little, Theodora says. To protect your family, I would do anything. If Darrow were here, I would look him in the eye and tell him I will not stop till his child is found, without apology and without remorse. And will you tell him that his child is lost? Theodora is taken aback. Oh, you thought I didn't know you helped him get into Deep Grave to release a war criminal who tried to murder my family in our sleep? Virginia, no. The sovereign raises a hand. I tire of being treated like a child by my own counsel because I have chosen to obey the laws. You're no different from Victra. You mistake morality for naivety. Now get out. I don't want to look at any of you any longer. It's time I talk with the girl alone. Chapter 50 Lyria Mother The sovereign watches me from Daxo's vacated chair. I feel shredded and thin from the interrogation. The horror of the oracle has not fled. I still feel its legs around my arm. Only Holiday remains with us in the room. I glance at the grey nervously out of the corner of my eye, Knowing if there's pain to come, it'll be from her. The sovereign is dressed simply, her hair held back from her head in a ponytail. Unlike most golds you see on the street, she doesn't wear jewellery, only a gold lion ring on her left middle finger for House Augustus, and an iron ring of a howling wolf on her right. She's younger than I thought she was when I first saw her, but her youth doesn't make her look vulnerable. It makes her look alive, powerful. No wonder a boy from the mines fell in love with her. I used to think it a betrayal. He should have stuck with his own. But how could he resist a woman like this? I apologise for that, she says softly. They are afraid. I nod, barely hearing her. Your son, she interrupts. Why did you return? 
Whether you were working for someone or were simply used, you knew the dangers in coming back here. What does it matter? I ask in frustration. We're wasting time. Your son is out there. You think that fact is lost on me? I shake my head. Understand that you are a stranger to me. I have seen you twice, in Quicksilver's meeting room and again on the landing pad. She saw me watching her there. I was a hundred metres away. What doesn't she miss? And both times you were listening and seeing more than appropriate. That and your dossier and testimony from Telemannus' servants and their steward are all the information I have of you. They say you are angry, judgmental and isolated, the picture of a terrorist. So, to your question, why do your motivations for returning matter? Because any information you give is suspect. If you want me to believe you, you must first make me believe in you. If you fail, then you torture me again. No, I stop wasting my time. Why did you return? Because it is the right thing to do. She shakes her head. Not enough. Try again. I don't know what answer she wants, but I understand there's no point in bluntly answering her questions like I did the others. She's not like them. So how do I reach her? How do I make her understand? I search her face and find no hint. But there's something we have in common, perhaps the only thing. Your husband was a red, I say haltingly. He is a red, she corrects. No matter what the Vox Populi say... If you saw my dossier and talked to Cavix, you know how I came to be here on Luna. What, what happened to my family? And you know I brought my nephew with me and that he is in the Citadel school. I touched the sigils on the back of my hands self-consciously. If I ran, Liam would grow up without a family, thinking I was a terrorist. And he'd feel small the rest of his life. He'd think the evil's in his blood that he deserves shame. And he'd believe what they say about us, about Reds, that one of us was worth more than the rest of us combined, about Gamma, that we're greedy in the blood. I shake my head. I'd sooner rip my eyes out than let him feel that. I... I promised my sister I would protect him, and I will... Liam will be proud of who he is, who his family was, and the gamma blood that runs in his veins. So throw me in deep grave. Kill me. My life doesn't mean shit. Your son's life does. The girl's life does. And if I can help save them, then Liam can hold his head up high. I pause. And so can I. She watches me without a smile. The moment stretches. I've not reached her. I'm not smart like them. I know it deep down. But then she smiles. That is something I can believe. I breathe in relief and let my hands relax, not realising I'd been clenching them into fists the whole time. The key to this seems to be the man you call 
Philippe, she motions to Holiday. The woman opens her data pad on the table and waits for her instructions. Where did you meet him? On Hyperion Promenade outside the museum. I'd just come from the exhibits there and a gold... A woman accused me of pickpocketing her. I hadn't. I think it was another red. I got thrown in cuffs and they were hauling me up when Philippe came and talked him out of it. This was Tuesday the 17th, she confirms. How did you... Realisation dawns. My flexi pass. She looks at the projection from Holiday's data pad. Various angles of me touring the museum glow in the air. On which side of the museum did you meet him? The west entrance. That's our black spot, yes? The sovereign asks Holiday. The grey nods. The cameras there were scrambled with laser disruptors. Just like we guessed. Something happened there. It's likely the red pickpocket was working for Philippe. I watch her mind work, wondering what else they've pieced together while I've been running for my life. If Philippe took the officers down, then there would be no incident report. But the officers would have body cams. Holiday? Already in Watchman Central Command, searching for officers on duty in the area. She pauses. Shit, there's more than a hundred. If we had his name... Officer Stefano, I say abruptly. He was the older officer. From what he said, he was Warden Cohort. The Sovereign looks at me in surprise. Holiday. Found him. Stefano T. Gregorovich, first sergeant. He was on duty around the museum that day. Holiday glances sideways at me. Very good, Lyria, the Sovereign says. Holiday pulls up Stefano's body cam and blurs through his day, starting in the precinct locker room, whizzing past interactions with vagrants and young hoods spraying graffiti of the Sovereign mating with a wolf. Before coming to me, they speed through my arrest. And just when I'm loaded into the wagon, the camera distorts. Feed's dead for ten minutes, Holiday says. His partners, too. So, we have a ghost, the Sovereign says. A gravwell, a blast door, zero DNA. Citadel itinerary information. Oh, this isn't some low-level operator. But at least it narrows the field. I don't think it's Red Hand, despite their mark. They don't have the resources. Did you go anywhere else with him? I tell her the sites we visited. As Holiday works, the Sovereign continues. And at what point did Philippe give you the EMP drone? It wasn't that day. It was later on. Under what pretenses did he offer it? Sorry, pretenses. Why did he give it to you? More importantly, why did you take it? He said it was because we were friends. I admit in embarrassment. Should have known something was wrong. Got security clearance training. I know we aren't supposed to take gifts, but... I don't say it, but I think it. I was lonely. Don't blame yourself. If he knew to target you, then he knew your position in the Telemannus house, well enough to know when on the itinerary you would be with my son. 
and in the proper position for his plan to come into effect. That would mean he had access to your personnel files. He knew about your family. She grimaces. He knew how to play you. Play me like I'm not even a person. When I told him about my family, he already knew. It makes me nauseous. Got the feeds from Aristotle Park in the restaurant, Holiday says. Then she curses. They're slagged. She throws them into the air from her data pad. A score of videos of me in the streets and the monuments appear. Philippe is there in his dark suit, but in place of his head and face is a flaming sphere of white fire. What is that? the sovereign asks. Glider, Holiday says, surprised the sovereign doesn't know. New black market tech, giving the watchmen a hell of a time. It uses a prism of high-frequency light waves to create an invisible mask around the user to slag facial recognition. Not as thorough as Jammer, but more range and more elegant with a fraction the power usage. Same breed as the ones used on Earth last month. A knowing look passes between them. Could they be connected? Holiday asks. I really don't see how, unless it's meant to draw him out. If that's the case, we can expect this to be public soon. If it's not public, then we know the ransom will be political, and I'm the target. Or Victra. Holiday absorbs the consequences of that deeper than I can. She looks back at her screens a shade paler. He also paid at the restaurant with a ghost debit card. Anonymous account now with a balance of a hundred credits. The card was used only on that day, once at a tech vendor for a data pad, twice at museums, at a coffee shop, at the restaurant, and at a shop on Alamade Street. What did he buy at the shop? The sovereign asks. Item 22342C, cross-referencing with their online catalogue. She pauses. A toy lion. He's mocking us. The sovereign watches out the window as a ship passes, thinking. Since the question began, her face has guarded her inner workings. But now I see how afraid she is. I saw the same look on my sister's face when I told her the red hand had come. There's nothing like a mother's fear. I feel sudden pity for the woman. We found a red at the scene of the accident. Dead. Body torched. Did you see any other accomplices? He had a crow with him, I say. He had an obsidian, Holiday asks tensely. What did he look like? It was a she. She parses the word. A she. Saw her from behind. Big, white hair. Sh she shot Kavix. Do you have any idea why he took you with him from the shuttle? The sovereign asks. That's the one piece of this that doesn't measure up. No, he was going to kill me. Had his gun to my face and all that. But then he didn't. He dragged me out and said he was going to set me free, give me some money to start a new life. The sovereign frowns. The men that Philippe delivered the children to. 
Do you remember anything about them aside from what you already told us? I couldn't see most of their faces. It was dark and they wore black. But there was one, a pink, the boss. Is there anything else you remember about him? A name, a scar, a ring, anything? No, wait, I search my memory. He had a cane. Were there any embellishments on it? I squint, trying to remember. It was white, the length of it, the top was black, shaped like a monster. A monster? The sovereign repeats. What sort? I couldn't tell, but it looked like it had arms, loads of them. The sovereign pulls out her own data pad and throws an image of a fleshy, multi-limbed creature into the air in front of me. Is this... The monster? I think so, yeah. The sovereign stares at me. You're certain this was on his cane? Sure, I mean, yes. Why? What does it mean? She doesn't answer. Holiday shifts in worry. Ma'am. The sovereign rises from her chair and walks to the window where she stands for almost a full minute before speaking. It's not a monster, Lyria. It's a cephalopod, an octopus. It is the symbol of the syndicate. She turns back to face us. The syndicate has my son. Dark fear seeps from her eyes into the room, and for the first time she does not seem in control, not of this room, not of this world, not of the fate of her own son. The syndicate, I repeat, even on Mars we've heard of the syndicate. Reds will pay three years' wages for them to smuggle their families to Aegea or Attica or even Luna. Many never make it. It's a criminal organisation, a highly evolved one that ruled the underworld of Luna for years, the Sovereign explains. When the society fell, there was a civil war among them until a new leader bound the survivors together and then purged the rest of the gangs. She's known as the Queen. The man you saw was likely one of her dukes. In all likelihood, it was the Duke of Hands, her Prince of Thieves. As far as I know, you're the only person outside the Syndicate ever to have met him and lived. Your Philippe was likely a thorn. It can't be them, Holiday whispers. They're just criminals. They wouldn't dare cross the Sovereign. They wouldn't have dared against Octavia, no. But they're not afraid of me. Just like the Vox Populi. She's quiet and looks at the door her council went through. Maybe Victor was right. I invited this. I gave away all my teeth. Damn Victor! The Republic should never be the Society. Holiday says firmly. Isn't that the point of all this? What was it that Lorne once said? Mercy emboldens evil men. Why do they want your son? I ask. Leverage. She has an epiphany but doesn't share it. Holiday, we need Theodora to contact Darrow, call an emergency meeting of the Sovereign Council, then find me Dancer. I want him in my office in an hour. What about the girl? The sovereign looks down at me. I will need you to testify. 
and there will be more questions. For now my steward will see that you have food and a room. Holiday motions me to the door. I'm dismissed. I want to wish the Sovereign well, tell her I'll be praying for her son, but I doubt the words will be well received. I hope the gun helps, I say. I didn't think about fingerprints till after. Mind was mud, but maybe some of his are still on there. Gun? the Sovereign asks, turning around. What gun? Holiday looks as clueless as her master. The gun I had when I came to the checkpoint, I say. I stole it from Philippe's car. It's his. The Sovereign wheels on Holiday. Where are the watchmen? In holding. Send a team to the checkpoint now. Tell them to turn the place upside down. What's happening? I ask. We weren't given a gun. I told them it was his. Well, they didn't tell us, Holiday says. The Lion Guard teams arrive at the checkpoint by air. We watch via their helmet holocams as they search the building. They find the pistol stored in a boot bag at the bottom of a watchman's locker. That's a Vulcan omnivore, Holiday says distantly. They only made one line of them about sixty years back. It's a collector's item, worth tens of thousands. One of them must have nipped it to sell. I'm a second behind the Sovereign in noticing the strange tone in Holiday's voice. Running forensics, one of the Lion Guards says over his calm. A hollow of the gun appears in the centre of the Sovereign's conference table. My fingerprints show up on the barrel, trigger and hilt, but a second set from larger fingers stands out on the battery pack. Filtering through the index, Holiday says in a dead pitch. Match found. Piraeus Insurance Company, Register 741 PCE. She swallows. Ephraim T. Horn, claims investigator. The swarthy face of a man in his thirties appears in the air. His eyes are narrow and mischievous, his mouth pinched in playful derision. He's much younger than Philippe, his nose smaller and his face thinner. Is this your Philippe? Holiday asks. His nose is smaller, his cheeks are different. He might have worn prosthetics. I lean forward toward the hollow as she plays an interview clip from his personnel file. The man sits with his feet up on his desk, talking to the camera in a bored Luna lilt. It seems the case of the missing Renoir comes down not to the cunning of a cat burglar, but to a mere case of bankruptcy due to moral putrescence. This is fraud, plain and simple. I recommend denying recoupment and throw the fucker in Whitehold. That's him. That's the bloody damn bastard in the flesh. Holiday lets out a heavy, wounded sigh. Do you know him, Holiday? The Sovereign asks. The stocky woman nods and laughs a sad laugh to herself. You could say so. He's my brother-in-law. Chapter 51 Ephraim Skyhawk It's my last day on Luna. Still dark cycle, but the sunrise stains the east, 
I sit watching the fledgling dawn with a glass of vodka from the heated terrace of a hotel suite I've rented. Tomorrow, Volga and I will take the private shuttle I chartered to Earth, where all enemies of the state go to disappear. Digital monitoring on the old planet hasn't quite caught up to Lunas. Mars was an option, but it's too unstable for my taste. I've been drinking since word reached me earlier that one of the syndicate heavies killed a red girl near the warehouse. I poured a glass of vodka for the little rabbit. Add a Zolodone for myself. She'll have died bloody and scared in an alleyway, hacked apart by hatchets and blades, just like her family. The ache of it in my chest fades as the Zolodone spreads its cool, careless fingers through me. Over the sprawl of the mass and the flickering cityscape, I see Hyperion. Beyond her, a faint stain of pink that bleeds into a bruised sky littered with skyhooks and blinking satellites and the vein of starships from the aid that make their way into space. Soon, I'll be on one of them. Not soon enough. Lionheart's killers, holiday included, will be peeling Hyperion apart. I look up as Volga trudges out onto the balcony. We came directly from our meeting with the Duke and paid cash for one of the suites at the penthouse level. They are sound-sealed and come with autonomous security systems, as well as smoked glass for privacy. I reach under my armpit for the reassuring feel of my omnivore, only to grip empty leather. I'm naked without that gun. I look back down at the city that has been my home since my mother spat me out, the youngest pup of six. I was just a government check to her, and to the government I was just another dog for the pack. I never tricked myself into thinking my city cared for me, but I cared for it in a way I never cared for the society. I fought to free it. I fought for it when gold came to reclaim it. Now it changes around me. Old, swallowed by new. And at the heart of the new is something I don't understand. Some wild, frenzied clamour for power, for riches. A war of all against all. I played along. It wasn't me. The more I think about the syndicate, the more I understand it was only natural that they would grow bored of running the petty crime of this moon. Of course they would reach for the next rung, for politics. I gave them a boost. Why do they want the children? I thought I could close a book on this job, just like the rest. But this is different, bigger, and I can't fool myself into shrinking it down. Sira and Dano are dead because I pulled them into this. Not just the job with the syndicate, but this life. I look across the deck at Volga who has her arms barricaded around her chest like bulwarks. My only friend. She wasn't a criminal till she met me. She was in love with the idea of the city. So many people from so many places. Then I pulled her into the shadows because I needed a guard dog. She'd be better off without me. Everyone is better off without me. In the grip of the Zolodone, the idea is served cold, wrapped pristine in logic. Sound from the hollow news trickles from the suite's living room out onto the balcony. 
A rainstorm is coming for Hyperion. The Reaper has been spotted on Mars, and obsidians are disappearing all over the Republic. There's been no news of the kidnapping on the Hollows. Nothing but a blip of how a government ship went down from mechanical failure, and that all on board survived. The silence is part of the game. The Sovereign is compromised. They have her son. But she keeps it a secret to keep Dancer and his ilk from getting the upper hand on her. So what will the Syndicate demand as ransom? That is the trillion credit question. Do you regret it? Volga asks. Be more specific. Selling children? No, love that. Be mocked by a psychopathic crime lord? are now hunted by sociopathic goals. Fun stuff. Or maybe having our colleagues butchered in front of us. Feeling the tension in my neck and bubbling in my brain, I pull out a second Zolodone and roll it around in my palm. I'm about to down it to feel the sweet numbness when Volga knocks it out of my hand and takes the dispenser off the table beside me. Volga, don't be a twat. No more. Give me the dispenser. Volga, I am tired of you walking around asleep. Tired of seeing you numb. It's too easy for you. Feel bad, pop pill, snort dust, drink booze, feel good. Do I look like someone who feels good? No. Her big lips curl. You feel nothing. Give me the dispenser. No. Volga, you pale shit, give me my dispenser. You are not my master. Come take it if you want it, she says with a shrug. I lunge for it, and she pushes me to the side, so I trip over one of the chairs and crash down, blinding pain going through the old wound in my right knee. She doesn't apologise when I crawl up from the chair. Give it back. Fetch. She throws it off the balcony and it spirals down into the aerial traffic beneath. I rush to the edge and watch it disappear from sight. You little monster, I mutter. Her nose flares wide. She pushes me again with her left hand, her huge strength sending me stumbling back. My cracked ribs lance with pain. I can't breathe. She comes after me and hits me in the chest again, knocking me off my feet. I fall hard on the marble balcony, shoulder blades smacking into the stone. Do you feel anything now? She asks. Oh, fuck. Off. I cough. She puts a boot in my stomach and begins to push down. Now? With my right hand, I reach into my boot to grab the stunner there. I jam it into her leg. Her skin underneath her pants crackles as it burns. She grimaces in pain, her eyes going dark as the pain summons the bloodlust hidden in her jeans. Volga, I say. Volga, no! She lifts me up in a rage, easy as a pillow, and holds me with both hands, about to throw me over the edge of the balcony. I stare at the aerials, hundreds of metres below. Do it! I sneer. Go on! Do it, you monster! The grip loosens. My world reorients as she sets me down. I sit there on the ground, breathing heavily. She collapses into the chair, almost breaking it, and stares at me with tears in her eyes. I'm not a monster. I'm not. 
She looks up at me, her eyes puffy and swollen. But you are? They were just children? You knew what we were trying to do, I say, rubbing my ribs. She definitely cracked a few more. That someone could die? Now you cry about it because you can't handle the guilt? I snort. Grow up. You did the deed, same as me. Now go buy yourself a spine and a good fuck with all that blood money. Jove knows you need both. She stares at me as if she can't believe what she's hearing. I don't know what else she expected. The deed's done. Time to move on. Why'd you even go along with it if your panties were in such a bunch? I did it for you, she says in a pitiful voice. I did it because you needed me. I've always needed you. You brought me here. You're my family. And I've never been able to do anything for you. Every time I try, you get angry. Go home, Volga. Fuck off, Volga. But here, this, it was something I could do to help. I could have your back, like you have mine. I did not know it would be so hard. She sits there trying to stop crying. Her huge shoulders heave up and down. I don't know what to do. Just think of the new adventures we are about to begin, I say distantly. A tour of Africa, the seafood, the animals, the whores of the Barbary coast. She looks up with puffy eyes. Do you think they will kill them? No, they won't kill them. You heard the Duke. No rough stuff. What use is a dead hostage? They want more money or something, I guess. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's not our business. Not our business? We are part of this, Ephraim. Part of the Republic? Why? Because we'll live here. That's the sort of shit they want you to think, so you go along thinking you've got skin in the game. It's all a scam, Princess. You're never fighting for yourself. You're always fighting for them. Loon, Augustus, Reaper, what's the damn difference? Why are you like this? Like what? Evil? I sigh. I'm not evil. Then what are you? Self-aware. You can't take care of anyone. That's not how it works. All you can do is take care of yourself. No one else is going to. I would take care of you. I roll my eyes. You think those children care about you. You think they will grow up into people who would care about you? To them, you're just a weapon. And what am I to you? Volga asks. If I was not a weapon, you would not keep me with you. Well, as sure as hell don't keep you around for the conversation. By the look in her eyes, I know I've finally gone too far. Something breaks. Something important. Vulgar. My hand reaches out half-heartedly like she's falling as she takes a step back from me. But then I lower my hand and she sees me lower it, and she turns and walks away. The door to the suite slams and she's gone. And I know, deep down, under the cool tide of the Zolodome, that this is how our story together ends. Alone again, 
and better for it. I leave the hotel room soon after Volga has gone. I don't go back to my spot, fearing Republic intelligence or maybe Gorgo might pay a visit. Instead, I find myself in the street outside Sira's apartment, staring up at the glass building that billows up into the sky like a piece of string on the end of an air duct. I wanted to see where Sira lived. I don't know why. Maybe for closure. To see how she lived, so I can understand why she put a dagger in my back. But I can't go inside. There's retinal scanners in the lobby, and the building has private guards. So I stand on the street as the rain falls, looking up at the building, wondering which glass window Sira looked out and will never look out again, and realising I never understood who she was, not really, not her, not Dano, because I kept them on the street looking in, and they returned the favour in kind. I walk the streets, passing through steam coming up out of the sewers, through a forest of noodle vendors and flesh-tech salesmen, all calling to passers-by, they transmit a kaleidoscope of sex advertisements from holo broadcasters perched on their shoulders like metal gargoyles. I walk the old route Trig and I used to take from the promenade past the gravity gardens all the way south to seedy old town. I outstrip the path we walked together and continue into the early hours of the morning, long enough to witness the changing of the guards from the nocturnal men to those of the day all of it bathed in the hazy pink of the long sunrise. As the city wakes, I eat a breakfast of doughy cinnamon noodles and coffee at one of my favourite old stands on the edge of the wharf and feed the seagulls like Trigg used to. Below, in the water of the Sea of Serenity, large scrubbing robots collect litter. Afterwards, I catch a cab to my storage unit. In one of the private rooms, another slender robot with forklift arms sets the metal box onto the table and leaves me. In the box are my ready bags. Two of them, both slick black leather. I'm surprised how much it depresses me, thinking this is all I have of my life. A thief with nothing worth packing. Sounds like a bad joke. Maybe this is what I've been looking for. A chance to start clean. I've got nothing aside from stacks of hard plastic currency in the bags, IDs, several DNA sleeves, two suits, the two pistols, and a stash of backup Zolodone pills. I pocket those, but I don't take one yet. Save it for the ride. I take a cab to the private aerial skyhook, a floating star-shaped port for the rich and famous, three kilometres above the city. It's suspended there on grav lifts, room enough for ten private yachts to dock. It's offensively expensive chartering a private ship, but I need to be armed, so commercial is out of the question. I'm deposited on the top level of the skyhook, at the reception level. The taxi takes off the concrete runway and dips back down into the flow of terrestrial traffic, leaving me in a park-like expanse above the clouds. A fashionable pink stands behind a reception desk in a white uniform with a tilted cap on her head and a fur coat. I shiver in the thin air. Good afternoon, citizen. 
Welcome to Zephyrus Trans-Terrestrial. Will you be checking in for your flight today? In my pocket, I slip one of the transparent DNA sleeves over my finger. I pretend to lick the finger and I swipe it through her sampler. Ah, Mr. Garibaldi. She smiles obligingly as her computer registers one of my false IDs. We're so pleased to have you today. The Eurydice wind will be ready to receive you in 30 minutes. Your pilots are performing pre-flight checks. Am I the first passenger to arrive? She references the manifest. Yes, Miss Biol has not yet arrived. Notify me when she does. Of course. You may depart whenever you like after the pre-flight checks have been performed. But we welcome you to enjoy our world's famous services in the terminal until then. She pushes me a holo map from her data pad. Mine catches it. You'll see that we have two spas, a salt water pool, alt reality pods, massage and pleasure staff on hand. We also have a game room, two lounges, the twilight and the sky. I follow a bellhop who takes my bags to the well-appointed bar. A man plays a piano in the corner of the sunrise-washed room. I sit on the creme leather, my back to the window banks of clouds and eerie pink sky, my eyes on the door, waiting for Volga's immense bulk to fill it. Other passengers come and go. Most are gold and silver, and their conversations tinkle like spoons on rare china. Some are actresses, I recognise, and one or two famous racers. Soon it sounds like the buzzing of gnats to my ears, claustrophobic, irritating. The cramps from Zolodon withdrawal are starting. Still, I don't take one. After my third drink, Volga hasn't arrived. I retire to the ship, where I meet the blue captain and flight crew and settle my bags in the sleeping quarters. The flight stewardess makes me a vodka lychee, and I wait for Volga in the ship's lounge. An hour, then two more. By midday, I finally digest the fact that Volga is not coming. A loneliness settles in me. Not a pang to which I'm accustomed, but the deep loneliness of knowing that this is it. This is the bottom. A two-bag life for one. The end of a friendship set to the sound of droning hollow news and the slam of a door. My newest vodka lychee seems suddenly very tasteless. The gravity in the cabin, eerily absent. When booking, I had asked the captain to put on null grav for the pre-flight. I did that for Volga. It was something she missed from our first flight from Earth to Luna. No point to it now. I've always hated the feeling of space. I asked the stewardess to kill the null grav and tell her that I'm ready to depart. Miss Biol isn't coming. I head to the lavatory to relieve myself before the main engine ignition. I take anti-nausea medication, and am about to go back to the lounge when I remember I should alter my destination now that Volga isn't coming, in case her conscience gets the better of her and she goes to the authorities. Goodbye, Africa. Hello, Echo City. I climb the stairs to the flight deck. It's empty, quiet. The flight crew that had been preparing me a meal in the kitchen's gone. 
I checked their small bunk rooms. Nothing. This isn't good. I creep past the kitchen toward the cockpit and peer inside. The pilots are gone too. Nothing seems amiss out the cockpit viewports. The landing pad is deserted and it's clear sky beyond that. Still, something is wrong. I pull my snub-nosed pistol from under my armpit. Have the syndicate come back to finish me after all? I move through the hall. The gun is slippery in my sweaty palms. I clear the top level and look down the flight of stairs, listening for movement. Hearing nothing, I creep down the stairs. In the lounge, I hear something. Voices. Vulgar? I burst into the lounge with my pistol out in front to find two women staring at me from the leather flight chairs. Holiday. The word sticks in my throat like a shattered chicken bone. She sits with her elbows on her knees in civvy clothes, black pants, boots, and a hunter green leather jacket that looks like it's got some sort of concealed pulse shield generator sewn into the fabric of the left sleeve. A heavy railgun pistol is strapped into the holster on her right thigh. Woman is ready for urban warfare, and at her side, in new clothes and freshly washed hair, sits the rabbit, with blinding hate in her rusty eyes, her arms in a sling. Ah, oh, shit. Sit down, Ephraim, Holliday says. I keep the gun on them and look down the hall for others they might have brought with them. They seem alone, but there's likely a squad of lurcher commandos waiting just inside the terminal. It's over. I laugh bitterly and point a finger at Lyria. You're supposed to be dead. That'd be easier for you, wouldn't it? How did you get past the obsidians? She makes a face at me. Magic. I grunt. How did you find me? We are the state, Holliday says. How long do you think you could hide? Longer than a day, I admit. Do you mind if I make myself a drink, or four? I ease toward the wet bar. Shut up and sit down. I frown and look at my pistol. I'm the one with a gun. I'm the one with a stain in the cargo hold. Talk about overkill. I slump into the seat across from hers. I'm surprised to notice that I don't feel defeat or fear. If anything, I feel relief. I engage the safety and put my gun on the table between us, pushing it toward Lyria. You'll probably want to use that. Already got one, she says, pulling my omnivore from her jacket and setting it on her knee. There's a finger lock around the trigger. I smile in seeing it again. Escape the obsidians. Somehow prevented yourself from being skinned alive by Republic intelligence. Now, sitting here with a gun. Must be magic. Ephraim, Lyria starts. Call me Philippe, if that makes you more comfortable. Slag you. Original. I lean back and cross my legs. So, what happens now? Commandos burst in and drag me to an interrogation tank, peel off parts of me to give to the Reaper when he gets home, 
Or will it be chemical torture, experiential? Lock me in a hollow immersion for a relative century? Or do I have a one-way subaquatic ticket to deep grave? This is the part where you tell us where the children are, Holiday says. Then you tell us who you sold them to. What you know about the pink with the cane and how we get them back. For your sake, I hope you know enough to spare yourself being booked for treason. Fortunately, capital punishment is no longer an option, I say. We might make an exception. How noble. She leans forward. You're going to have to get used to the idea that you're going to spend the rest of your life in a cell, Ephraim. How big that cell is depends on what you tell me. Holiday, you spent too much time in the military. You can't go at a man like that. Give him no means of escape, no incentive. Remember the 11th Legion? You were there. The Golden Basilisks? She remembers. What happens if you surround an enemy force with no path of surrender or retreat? They fight to the death. And that's not good for anyone. Trapped by that dam, weren't they? You remember how we just kept firing into them? Eight hours to kill 50,000 men because we didn't want to break the dam with bombs? Who knew it could take so long? I never saw the reaper's face after that, but you must have. Do you like it? This isn't a game, Ephraim, she says. If you hate life so much you want to die, then be my guest. I'll give you the bullet to eat but don't take two innocent kids with you. Innocent? Everyone keeps throwing that shit around. Their parents put them on the board. They didn't have to attend functions of state. They didn't have to parade them around like the paragons of progress, but they did. They made them the targets, not me. How many little kids do you think died in the Battle of Luna? I saw whole blocks disintegrated by valley wrath particle beams. Schools turned to dust by termite munitions with Republic stamps on them. Dead kids are the loose change of war. Don't come whining to me because the man and woman who started this don't want to pay out of their own pocket like the rest of us. I've never seen her look at me with so much disgust. What happened to you? Life. Same shit that happens to everyone else. Trigg would spit on you if he could see this. Well, he died on your watch, not mine. Holiday looks blankly at me, as if I've slapped her across the face. All the days we met on Trigg's birthday, that truth hung between us, unspoken like some weapon of mutually assured destruction. And now that I say it, I taste ashes in my mouth. To use Trigg like this as a weapon is the ultimate perversion of who he was, what he meant to the both of us. But he followed her everywhere, and she led him to his death for a cause that doesn't even remember his name. Holiday can't meet my eyes. But Lyria shakes her head. That's not fair, and you know it. Save the speeches, love. You're just a little girl who thinks she's a hero. You don't know a thing about me. You're right. I don't, she says. You've gone hard to make that clear. But I know my ma died of cancer in the mines. Ate her lungs right up. Pa thought it was his fault. That he couldn't get her the right meds. 
saw it squeeze the life out of him, and by the time we got out of the mines, he was already dead. All he saw, the sky, the world, he hated, because she didn't get to see it. You think she would have wanted that for the man she loved? Never been a slave, wouldn't know. We were promised everything when they brought us up. Then I lost my family, my whole family. You can whine about your nicks and scrapes, but you got no idea what that's like. Should I turn nasty because I saw evil done to them? Should I blame the walls? I blamed myself. I blamed the sovereign. And what luck did that get me? She clears her throat, emotion welling. You asked me if I believe in the veil. I don't know. I don't know if it exists or if they watch me. But I know it doesn't matter if they can see us. What matters is that we can feel them. Remember them. And try to live to be as good as we were in their eyes. I look away from her to the window where pink clouds twirl. Trig might be gone, yeah. I know you feel robbed. But you've got to remember that he saw something to love in you even if you can't see it. He saw you as a good man, Ephraim. So if you ever loved him, be a good man. That man never even existed. It was just something Trigg made up to make himself feel better. Then why did you not kill me in the shuttle? I did. I pulled the trigger. The safety was on. It was just luck. You could have pulled the trigger again, but you didn't. You let me live. And look what happened. This man you're playing at. You sure he's not the one you made up to make yourself feel less? I feel everything now. As I stare out the window at the ship's bound for orbit, I see Trig in the waters of the Aegean Sea when we took our first vacation during his leave. I remember him playing his little guitar in the hammock behind our bungalow. He sounded terrible, but I loved watching the sweat beading on his temples, the freckles on his shoulders, the childish laugh in a man the world kept trying to make hard. He was patient with me, slowly breaking down the walls that had stood tall since my mother looked at me and said she loved me for the thousand credits a month. He proposed on that vacation. All the good memories of him have been held hostage by the horror of his exit. Now the bars crack, the doors open, and they flood me. All I want is to say goodbye to him, to let him know he was mine and I was his. But sitting here, surrounded by the ruinous shit I've made, I still can't feel anything but anger. I look at Holiday and I don't have anything to say. I can't apologise. The words just won't come out. Just as she will never apologise for letting him die, not even to herself. But she sees the animal pain in me. He would have wanted you to fix this, she says. I don't know where they are, I say. Holiday's more comfortable talking about the kidnapping than she is about Trigg. Who was it? Syndicate. 
My contact was the Duke of Hands. She already knew. Could you identify him? Yeah, but I doubt he's in the census. He was a rose, high, high end. Private stock of a loaded gold. Start your search there. And there was an obsidian named Gorgo, definitely military, not fresh from the ice. She takes notes. What's your exposure, Holiday? What could they want? You tell me. There's been no proof of life, no demands. They didn't kill them, I say. The Duke said they were for the Queen. Did you meet her? Holiday asks. No. Word in the game is that she's an obsidian warlord from Earth. No one knows for sure. Really? Holiday frowns. Public intelligence has been operating on the assumption that she's a Red for more than a year now. A Red? Lyria whispers. You think obsidians would follow a Red? I laugh. There's also a chance they're working with the society, Holiday says. That seems unlikely. Why? The Duke was a slave. He loathes the slavers. If he's working for the Ash Lord, he doesn't know it. Is this about the peace? Maybe. Holiday looks out the window nervously, or as nervous as a woman with a head like a cinder block can look. Expecting someone? You should tell him, Lyria says. He's got the right to know. Know what? I lean forward. Know what? We aren't the only ones looking for the children. It's like me. I half stand from my seat. He's back, the reaper. I look out the window, feeling the colour drain from my face. Ares? Worse, Holiday says. The Lady Julii is on the hunt, and she's out for blood. She's eight months pregnant. Forgive me if I don't shake in my boots. Holiday smiles. She attacked an Augustan shuttle over Hyperion in full war armour because Lyria was inside. I stare at her. I didn't know they made maternity armour. They do. Does she know it's a syndicate? Holiday shrugs. We don't know what she knows. And she's not sharing information. We caught some of her investigators breaking into the crash site. I scratch my head. Fingers are getting itchy for a burner, stomach knotted for more Zolodone. Well, if that woman declares war on the syndicate, the kids are as good as chopped. They'll start sending body parts to the Citadel in thorn-wrapped boxes. Which is why we are here, and Republic Intelligence is not, Holiday says. You know the syndicate better than we do. We need you to come in and help coordinate the rescue effort. Not a chance. They have people in your government. Holiday squints. How'd you know that? We were given the boys' itinerary more than a month in advance, but they didn't volunteer any other insiders. Holly didn't want to burn them. Which is why I had to recruit you. I look at Lyria. If they know I'm helping you, body parts, Lyria says. If we're compromised, then you'll have to retrieve them, Holiday says. I snort and laugh. Fuck that. Thought you'd say that. 
I know you don't care about your life, Ephraim, but something tells me you care about hers. She sets her hollow cube down on the table, and an image of a cell appears with a woman hunched on a bench with her head in her hands. It's vulgar. We found her at the Cerebrian Zoo, Holiday says. She was easier to find than you were. What wasn't easy was keeping the telemanesis from killing her on sight. If you touch a hair on her head, no, it's your turn to listen, your turn to obey. If you do not do everything I ask, then I will give her to the telemanesis. Liria looks as surprised as I am. Don't hurt her, I say. Holiday leans back. So? There is someone in there. She didn't want to do it. I don't care. You will bring me the children. Then you can have your friend back. She stares back at me without remorse. This is the game you decided to play. I look back at the hollow and wonder how I ever could have been cruel to Volga. She followed me like a puppy from the day we met. All she gave me was love. She never even asked for it in return. Since she was born, she'd been a slave, a monster, kicked down by everyone. Then she found me, and I treated her just the same. I feel sick. There's a way, I say, but I want a pardon for me and Volga. Pardon? After what you've done? I want it in digital with a third-party negotiator. No pardon for the rest of your crew? Liria asks. They're dead. Why do you think I'm even talking to you? So much for my code. Why do you think, my liege? Holiday says as she looks at me. She tilts her head. She wants to speak with you. Holiday touches her datapad and the face of the sovereign appears in front of me. Her eyes are a pure liquid gold that have seen fleets burning off the shoulder of moons and war criminals walk free on her warrant. I hate her without measure. Ephraim T. Horn Lionheart The informality irritates Holiday. I want Volga released immediately. No. Then we have a problem. She will be released when I have the children back. I will have a binding agreement drawn up via the Ophian Guild. Amani, I say. Excuse me? Ophion is in the pocket of the syndicate. You go there with a contract for me. We have a problem. Use Amani. It's a very strange thing telling the most powerful woman in the world something she doesn't know. And I want Volga to be pardoned on the event of my death. No. We both know how much you like handing out pardons. I know I'm not a gold rapist or mass murderer, but in the spirit of the amnesty, surely you can find it in your heart to forgive. Do you want to die, Mr. Horn? Irrelevant. Volga deserves life. She's not pleased by my intransigence. Tough shit. The man she shot was like a father to me.
he's still fighting for his life. Then I certainly hope you don't lose a father and a child on the same day. She doesn't react. Her gold calm is so perfectly preserved and haughty that I want to reach through the hollow and throttle her. Very well, she says. Holiday will fit you with a transponder. When you locate the syndicate base, you will signal with this transponder and a strike team will arrive at your coordinates. The syndicate will check for a transponder. It will be hidden and they'll find it. Subdermal, isotope, they'll find it. These aren't street folks, you might have noticed. Then what do you propose? Give me a pad number, and I'll call it. Then your kill squad can track its GPS and fly in and murder everyone in whatever way gets you off. She doesn't like it, but neither of us has much of a choice. Very well, Mr Horn. You have a deal. But I would like you to know one thing. If you attempt to escape, or if you defect to the syndicate, know this as a certain fact. Your friend will die. And be it on Mars, Luna, Earth, the Rim, or Venus itself, one night you will wake in the middle of the dark and find a shadow standing over you. If you are lucky, it will be me. If you are unlucky, it will be Severo, or my husband, and you will die shitting yourself in a foreign bed. Chapter 52 Darrow, Host of the Minotaur It was not long ago that a grey could boast of his allegiance to the Minotaur in a bar, and expect his drinks to be paid for wherever the pyramid flag flew. But that was at the fevered height of Apollonius's warlord ascendance, before his betrayal and decline. Now, a mere nine hundred and eleven men remain of a host that once numbered two hundred and fifty thousand. The rest are found employ with House Carthii, or House Grimus. These men stay because they could not serve the betrayers of their master, or because they have nowhere to go. Orphaned by duty, severed from all ties of family by their service to their house. Devoid of any underlying patriotism, they float along through life like the stubborn jetsam of a once great ship that refuses to sink under the waves. Once it might have seemed a dream to live out their pension days in peace on a Venusian island. But these men were not made for peace. The novelty of bedding local sun-browned pinks from the coastal cities and swimming amongst the coral shoals of the Guinevere Sea is gone, and they hunger for something more. I thought there would be several thousand at least to assist us once we gained our audience with the Ashlord. But there will be no audience, and this paltry remnant is all that we have. Severo, Thraxa, and I watch via hollow from Tharsis's library as Apollonius addresses them. He looks out to his soldiers. They stand assembled on the ill-kept tarmac on the south side of his island. 
Tiny, azure-shelled crabs skitter between the weeds and the cracked concrete. The uniforms of the soldiers are untidy. Their necks wreathed in huge shells, hair long in local braids. Apollonius spits on the ground. I fear a dread illness has fallen upon the house of my father and mother, he says, pacing before them with his proud shoulders hunched, his mane tied tight to the back of his head. Tharsus stands behind him like a scolded child. An illness that has leached the glory from our veins, the color from our banner. It was not brought by you. He looks at his brother. That blame lies upon the shoulders of another. But it was nurtured by you, sustained by your torpor. I look at you, and do you know what I see? He scans the crowd of them with wild eyes. Do you? The wind gusts mildly from the early morning sea, rippling their uniforms. I see... Venusians! They shift in shame. I see clam-eaters, men of war made into simpering sprites and disporting coxcombs. Where is the honor for your fathers and mothers? he cries. Where is the fury for your fallen brothers and sisters? The Ashlord and his simpering allies, the Carthii, sent them to their deaths on Luna, served us up to the Reaper like a Tremulsian feast. I watched as men and women you knew went to dark death. The Ashlord betrayed us. It was no secret to you that I languished in the belly of the sea— no, it was known from our homeworld to Mercury. He paces in venomous silence. Yet you let me rot. You let your brothers and sisters perish. And here I find you fattening yourselves like mulling kine, as if Calypso herself had besotted you with wine from her tits. Was your idleness worth the price of your shame? What would your father say? What would your mothers think? He hangs his head, and I find myself admiring the drama of the man. He knows how to play a crowd. I look at you, and I weep. Such shame is upon me that only Lucifer himself would know the depths of my pain. We have lost our halos, my children, fallen from the grace of heaven through the fabled clouds, and landed here in a boiling hell of debauchery and defilement, while our enemies laugh at what we have let ourselves become. But all is not lost. The unconquerable will, the need for revenge, the immortal hate— and the courage never to submit or yield are strong in my heart. He beats his chest so hard with his fist, I feel it through the hollow. I will not rest till vengeance is mine, for I am Apollonius Auvaliae Wrath, Imperator of the Minotaur Legions, Man of Mars, Iron Gold. 
Today I ride forth on the wings of battle from this island prison, to settle a debt and free myself from this foul affliction of shame. I ride to war, to glory. I ride for the head of the Ashlord. He lunges forward and lifts his razor. I would not ride alone. So I say to you, my darkest devils, awake, arise, and reclaim your glory. A roar answers him that chills the deeper part of me. I turn off the hollow and stand quiet in the echoing silence of the library as an ancient clock ticks on the wall. Severa runs a hand along his fresh-shaven mohawk. That's our army, he mutters. They're the scraps you leave behind when you eat a rack of ribs. They'll do, I say. They'll do, he repeats. On what do you base that? Apollonius? He's barking mad. Riled up for a suicide run. They'll get ripped to shreds out there, and we'll be left holding our pricks against a fortress. We didn't prepare for this. How do you prepare for a kick on the balls? I say. You don't. You suck it up. That's supposed to inspire me. His men are past their prime. He glares at me. He's been moody ever since we landed and saw the state of the Valley Irath holdings. And they ain't the only ones. You trying to say something? Obviously, because everyone else is sucking down your myth like it's milk from a cow's tit. Then say it. Go on, Thraxa won't mind. Thraxa looks awkwardly at her data pad. I've backed you this whole way. Someone mutters something, I knock them down and give them a good old speech. But you know why I've been loud as a mouse since we got here? I was waiting for you to realize how shit this is. They don't have the manpower. Apollonius is insane. This is not going to work. He crosses his arms and looks as if he's marveling at his own stupidity. I didn't even want to come. It's been a month since we got any news from home. A bloody damn month. My anger flares. Then why the hell did you come? Because I don't want to raise your kid, he snaps. I came to keep you breathing, and to keep the rest of them safe from you. The words knock the anger out of me. You think you need to keep them safe from me? Don't I? Look where you've led your best friends. Look how many gravestones follow us. And you know why that is? I have a feeling you're going to tell me. You take shortcuts, straightest line through any field of shit, and trust that everything will be ripe and splendid. Seems to have worked out fine enough. We— Hold on, he says, cutting me off. Let me ask Ragnar if he agrees. He looks around. Oh, wait, he's not here. Let me ask Pax. Oops. Lorne. Oops. Pops. He holds up his hands. Can't ask him either. You're so hungry to end this that you're gonna gamble the whole mine on one half-assed hand. It's not half-assed, I say evenly. It will work. You're being emotional. He stares at me with wild eyes, my old red eyes, and realization dawns in them. 
Well, slag me sideways. You really are drunk on your own myth, aren't you? I didn't buy it when Clown said it. But you believe them all. You think you're a god. You can't die. Someone has to end this. You can be a father on your own time. Right now, you need to sack up and do your job. We shouldn't be here. All right. What do you have in mind instead? Run back to Luna with our tails between our legs. Turn ourselves into the wardens, and watch as the Republic gets gutted by Vox Populi, then carved up by the Ash Lord, and the Rim, whenever they decide to stop playing possum. That'll mean we broke out a gang of mass murderers for nothing. That means Wolfgar died for nothing. My voice loses its composure. That means we fought ten years for nothing. And then what do you think happens when the rim comes? This plan is wasted, he says. We should cut our losses. Go to Mercury with the fleet if we can't go home. I don't want to die for this fucker. I've heard your opinion, I say, trying to keep the anger out of my voice. Thank you for giving it, Imperator. I've considered what you've said, and I've decided the mission is still a go. I want the men fed and the star shells loaded onto the assault shuttle by 1600. Make sure they stay out of sight. Last thing we need is his legionnaires knowing who they're fighting with. I wait for him to curse me, maybe hit me. His own fear of not seeing his girls again is making him irrational, a coward even. But he just stares at me and then slowly raises his fist. Hail, Reaper! He turns on a heel. Servro, I say, before he reaches the door, the memory of Roke's departure echoing. He stands there facing the wood. Looking at the back of my friend's scarred head, I feel the distance between us. I'm sorry you don't agree with me. But I've told you everything I know, and I believe we have the initiative and the means to destroy the command structure. He nods. Course you do. He chews his lip. After this, I'm done. I won't be like you. Won't be like my pops. He looks at me, his eyes protective and spiteful. My girls will have a Da. If that's selfish, I don't give a shit. Let someone else be Ares. He leaves. His words play at my doubts, but I don't have time or room for reflection today. I look over at Thraxa. You have an opinion? Nah, ain't got the time. Shall I ready the men, sir? Two hours later, I stand in the shadow of the hangar bay, where the howlers make preparations on the Nessus and our rip wings. Over the clamor of loading gears and curses from Minmin and Clown, I hear the distant roar of engines as the mobilized might, such as it is, of House Valii Wrath lifts off the tarmac. Forty rip wings ascend from the concrete like ducks off a pond, their engines burning indigo and their shadows languorous and long in the late afternoon light. They fly due south. With them rise the five long assault frigates 
and assault shuttles, packed with grey shock troops in grasshopper suits. A tardy trooper rushes to catch the last shuttle, carrying a forgotten token of luck in his hand. The crooked, elongated legs of the grasshopper suit pivot backward along a joint behind his knee, then propel him in an inhuman jump to clear the five metres into the craft, where his friends grab his hand and hoist him in. Apollonius comes to say farewell. He looks at home in his armour. Unlike the stark, muted grandeur of modern Martian gear, his favours the Baroque of the core. At the centre of the purple chestplate is his minotaur. Hail, Reaper, he says mockingly. He closes his eyes and smells the air. This is life, isn't it? Your men don't know our presence, I ask. His eyes are still closed. The dogs yap of masked men in the night carrying mischief. He opens his eyes and smiles. Mercenaries, Ronan, sell swords, by any name they do suspect, except the one that's true. But I would ask you to dissuade your diminutive accomplice from displaying any lupine flavors. My dogs do hate wolves. We didn't bring the wolf cloaks with us, I say. We brought two Alpha Megan nukes instead. I search his eyes for some sign of duplicity. My men don't like the fact that you're not coming with us. Understandable. All suspect what they do not understand. But we understand one another, do we not, Reaper? Betrayal from friends cuts far deeper than the sword of a foe. We are both the spawn of a war god, favoured of his children, and stand astride the shadow of our lost brother Achilles. I make no sign of agreeing with him. He sighs. If I am late, if I am naughty, destroy me. He taps the scar where the bomb went in. But you and I both know I lead my men into hell's teeth. What commander would I be if I were not amongst them? That I can respect. In the dark zone, your bomb embed won't respond to our activation signal, I remind him. As soon as you enter, it will be on a three-hour timer for detonation that can only be deactivated by us. If we die, you'll follow. If you leave the theater of engagement, it is also programmed to detonate. He listens quietly. I'll see you at the waypoint. If you make it, Gold. He smiles. I shall wait on you, Red. He extends a hand. Grudgingly, I take it. Severo watches dourly from the ramp of the Nessus, no doubt misjudging my politeness for fondness. Apollonius releases my hand and backs away from me, singing loudly with his huge lungs as his minotaur helmet rolls out of the neck of his armour to cover his head. The horns, long and twisted, stab into the sky. Into this wild abyss the wary fiend stood on the brink of hell and looked a while, pondering his voyage, for no narrow frith he had to cross. With that, 
he rips up from the tarmac on his grav boots and bends across the sky to join his departing legions. Rona comes to watch him leave. Sir, Colloway says the Nessus is ready. Are you? I ask. Sir? We need the Nessus's firepower, but she's got no maneuverability in atmosphere. She'll be a slow cow. Colloway will be of better use in his ripwing. That means we don't have someone to sink to the Nessus. Minmen will be flying her, and she'll need gunners. You've trained with firing systems, I presume? She grins. Damn straight! Good. Go find Winkle. He'll give you access to the gunner chamber. She salutes. Thank you, sir. She leaps forward and gives me a kiss on the cheek. I won't let you down, Uncle. As I watch her run back to the ship, I wish I could say the same. But Severo sowed doubt in me, and something else gnaws at the back of my mind. No one has seen the Ash Lord in three years. Why? He always led from the vanguard. What is he hiding behind that curtain of darkness? Chapter 53 Darrow War God Minotaur One has contact. Engaging enemy, Apollonia says over the comm. On the sensor display inside my starshell, the curved edge of the Ash Lord's dark zone blots out the corner of the blue-hued map. The mass of gold dots from Apollonius's small fleet approaches the barrier. I listen to their comm chatter as they detect hostile patrols and engage with full force. Two ripwings go down almost immediately. A third disappears into the dark zone. Apollonius's squadron pursues. Soon their signatures disappear. Their massed assault will eat up the attention of the Ash Lord's forces and the bulk of the casualties. With the Nessus's stealth hull, we'll come in the back door and rip straight for the Ash Lord. Minotaur is inside the dark zone, Char says. Two minutes to breach. Inside the firing tube in the port side of the Nessus, my soft body is cocooned in the vestments of war. Thermal skin, pulse armor, star shell. A twelve-foot-tall mechanized armored suit. I'm like one of those layered wooden toys they sell down by the wharf in Thessalonica, the ones that are painted with the faces of rosy-cheeked reds and violets. I bought one for Pax when he was young. It was our first and only trip to Mars as a family. He sat in Mustang's lap, gasping each time he pulled apart the dolls to find yet another inside, looking to us, hoping we saw the miracle as well. Seeing the joy in my wife's face, I was witnessing another miracle. One, for a long time, I believed I would never see again. Love so potent, so whole and true that it hurts. Because even when you convince yourself that it will last forever, you know enough of the world to see how things break and fade. But somehow, some way, you believe this love will be the exception that it alone will last. An ache fills my chest, not just at the memory, but in thinking Pax was ever so young and innocent. It seems like it was just yesterday before we were pulled back to Luna. Where did the time go? 
I ask when I know the answer. I spent that time. And I spent it worlds away from those who needed my love. I sensed the claustrophobia now, and the fear of the coming violence beyond the hull. The Nessus roars over the sea, escorted by Colloway's rip-wings, my friends loaded in its spit-tubes. Enemy contact, six bandits inbound. They've seen us, Colloway says. Warlock squadron engaging. Colloway and his depleted warlock squadron race ahead of us to target the incoming patrols. They dance across the sensors, dots flashing in and out of existence. Bandits eliminated, Colloway drones, his normal insouciance replaced by the hard-edged voice of a master at his craft. Warlock One, crossing into Dark Zone. I watch through the Nessus's holocams from my starshell as the rip wings cross the threshold into the Dark Zone ahead of the Nessus, disappearing from our sensors to be swallowed up by the looming black curtain. We'll be deploying at their back door, I say over my com to my starshell squadron. Expect a firestorm regardless. We can't expect communications to work inside. You have full autonomy. Group up after initial threats are eliminated to reassess. Copy that, Hollow One, Alexander says, unnecessarily. How can you even breathe with your nose so far up Reaper's ass? Clown asks. I hold my breath, Alexander replies. Far easier that way, my goodman. No one can hold their breath that bloody damn long, Rona says from her gun turret. Ragnar could, Severo says. Well, Ragnar could lift a mountain with his gory damn pinky, Clown replies, and drink an ocean without needing to piss a drop. So powerful was his bladder. What's the quickest way to a peerless scard's heart? Pebble asks. Ragnar's fist. Severo cackles. Unlike mortal men, Ragnar didn't sleep. He merely waited. They make me miss my old friend more than I can say. Seems so unfair Ragnar died without knowing that Tinos would be saved and Luna would fall. Remember today what the Ash Lord did to our friend, I tell my men. Remember that he made Ragnar a slave, that he made him kill his own kind for sport. A debt is owed. Two grimaces have fallen. Two yet remain. Atlantia, our grimace. Magnus, our grimace. They recite as a promise. And I hope Atlantia is here with her father so we can end their family's saga once and for all. Tongless drones the death rattle of the obsidians. It fills my ears with righteous dread and I feel the bitter winter plains of Ragnar's homeland roll inside me. I wish I had my old friend here today. What I'd give to see him lead this charge on his old master, to see the golds quake as they did before no other man. Hergla, Ragnar! Severo snarls. Hergla, Ragnar! The men bellow back. The Nessus plunges into the dark zone. The external cameras go black, my calm silent with static. I am no father, no husband. I summon my anger, my hatred. I am Helldiver of Lycos, 
the Reaper of Mars come to rip the life from the last great warlord of gold. Yellow lights flash outside my suit on the firing mechanism's launch alert console. I stare at it hungrily, desperate for it to turn green and release me. I perform pre-flight checks on my interior dampeners and pulse shield, power my grav boots, charge up the particle cannon on my right shoulder, and the railgun that makes a stump of my left arm. A whine from the particle cannon draws energy from my suit's main reactor on the suit's hunched back. The light goes green. The firing chamber's hooks push me forward into the mouth of the railgun. I clench my teeth together and lower my head. Then the hooks propel my suit into the clashing current, and I launch forward at three times the speed of sound, punching through the dark zone, my heart in my throat. I tear into a scene of death. No time to orientate myself. Proximity sensors scream with incoming ordnance. A particle beam smotes the sky in front of me, a pillar of light as thick as a forearm and as bright as a sunbeam. The impulse sensors in the former gel that surrounds my body communicate with the suit and bank me hard. I pass the particle beam and feel the heat even through the layers of armor. My evasive maneuver throws me into the path of an anti-aircraft battery's fuselage. Fist-sized shells detonate in clouds of superheated shrapnel. A shell detonates to my right, spinning me through the air, my pulse shield screaming from the kinetic energy transfer. I boost out of my spin, diving blindly toward the sea. A bad start. We've come out of the Dark Zone's veil directly into the teeth of the enemy perimeter defences, so much for the back door. Beneath, atop a cluster of atolls garlanded with anti-aircraft batteries, six automatic turrets swivel on gyroscopes, filling the air with metal. The guns slam munitions into the underside of the Nessus's shields. She vaporizes an atoll with her main particle cannon. Colloway's three ripwings are trapped in a frenzied dance with a squadron of enemy first responder ripwings. Two of my star shells already smoke and limp away from the theatre of fire, but ten others race with me down toward the atolls. No way to tell who is who in our uniform black. I race headlong toward the largest atoll, a towering pillar of rock crested with a particle cannon installation. Light crackles in its meter-wide barrel and then erupts upward at me. I weave right of the certain death and bring my smaller particle cannon online and draw a bead. I expand my left hand, building the energy in the battery. When I'm close enough, I can see terrified parrots fleeing the island's canopy of trees. I clench my fist and the cannon roars. Lightning crackles from my right shoulder and slices a molten gash through the base of the gun installation. I sweep my closed fist back and forth, guiding the cannon and lacerating the installation's roof till I hit their power generator and the installation explodes. I bank up and see the howlers destroying the rest of the gun installations. When the last gun of the perimeter defense is silent, the star shells form up atop a rock formation on one of the atolls near the smoldering remains of a gun battery. Colloway's rip wings fly a thousand meters higher, the Nessus floating above them. She tears apart the sky as she fires at the main islands in the distance, but they fire back. It sounds like the planet itself is cracking in half. One by one, the howlers land on the rugged escarpment with me. 
The three-ton star shells, with their ape-like, elongated limbs and armoured carapaces, make them appear in the bright daylight like a dark band of crustaceous golems. They stare at me through the triangular duro-glass face shields. Smoke billows from the shoulder of Tungless's shell, but his flesh wasn't hit. Thraxa steadies herself as she lands. The nuke launch tube is still strapped to her back. Severo is the last to land. He hangs above us on the cliffside, holding on to an outcropping of rock. Our comms are down from the Dark Zone's interference, so I signal commands with a laser display on my armoured chest. When I'm through, Severo and I rocket upward from the island, gaining altitude to see the Ashlord's hidden world in its totality. A placid emerald sea, littered with volcanic islands, stretches before us. Twenty kilometres in the distance, at the epicentre of the Ashlord's realm, lies a humped island with an impressive white spire atop its central rock formation. Reaching out from the island is a spine of towering jagged atolls and islets of shattered arms and legs that claw out at the sea. Pale sand, visible under the clear water, seeps around the bases of the islands like spilled marrow. Fire laces the islands from the Nessus's gun batteries. Already the island's main antenna is melting slag, but a shield generator has activated over the main island and its spire, leaving only a hundred-metre unshielded gap above the waterline. Distant thunder rolls across the water. Thirty kilometres away, past the island on the eastern expanse of the Dark Zone, a war rages. I magnify my vision. Apollonius's rip-wings twirl in a kaleidoscopic firefight with the Ashlords over the sea. Streams of red railgun fire and electric white particle beams streak up from submerged gun installations and anti-aircraft batteries hidden in the crests of the islands. Concussions from bunker busters echo as Apollonius's heavy, spider-shaped thunder wings make runs on the main islands. His rip-wings have carved a hole in the defenders, and drop ships filled with his legionnaires race through heavy fire across the no-man's land of water to make landfall. Despite heavy casualties, he makes progress. Then I see something terrifying. On the second largest island, about four clicks from the Ashlord's spire, rip wings rise from a large airfield to join the fray. Three squadrons, thirty-six aircraft, Nearly two hundred more ships fill the airfield. Long metal buildings that look like barracks glint from the neighbouring islands. Hoverboats are already speeding across the water, carrying pilots to their aircraft. Seeing our presence to the west, an enemy squadron detaches from the wing from the airfield and slowly banks around to block Colloway's ships from attacking the rows of waiting ripwings on the ground. I glance up at his squadron of three. Warlock's going to have to earn his reputation today. Already long-range missiles streak between the craft. Severo and I lock eyes through our faceplates. We have to eliminate the pilots before they reach their ships, or we're all dead. I drop like a stone, Severo on my tail, and land amongst my men. I signal them to follow me. We plunge into the water as the rip-wings engage out over the sea, Railgun rounds eat into the water, but shatter on impact above us. We dive to twenty metres, 
and head toward the islands like a school of metal sharks. Two torpedoes fall into the water and detonate, bucking us sideways. Then, from the deep, I see something moving through the water toward us, a blur of metal no larger than a fist. It slams into one of the howler's shells and detonates, vaporizing half his body. More metal swims toward us from the deep. Minefield. I shoot upward out of the water, my howlers hot behind, the mines screaming after them. A lance of fire streaks down from a belly turret on the Nessus and cuts the mines out of the air. Good shot, Rona. I could kiss her. We surface just off the bow of one of the hoverboats. More than a dozen of them race toward the airfield. Two have already landed. I burst over to one and land on the deck just before the command cabin. Through a glass partition I see the female blue pilot and half a dozen orange and green crew members. I switch to the railgun implanted into the left arm of the suit and fire into the command cabin just as the pilot lifts her hands in fear. Superheated metal makes pulp of the men. Throughout the bay, my howlers in starshells leapfrog back and forth between the fleet of hovercraft, massacring the command cabins. Thraxa wades into one against pulse rifle fire and slams a grey twenty metres into the air with her power hammer. She disappears inside. Light flashes from the interior. Several floats above another, firing down onto it. I burst forward through the shattered command cabin into the passenger hold of my own hovercraft, where two dozen uniformed blues in flight gear stare at me in terror. Some are no older than Rona. I pull the trigger and make meat of men. Evaporated blood fills the air with a rusty mist as fragments of bodies twitch on the floor. By the time I make it out of the hovercraft, their fleet is a ruin of smoldering, sinking wrecks. Several has marshaled the howlers on the airfield island. I skip over the water and land next to him. There's no bloody back door, he says of the main island, popping his top. Places a porcupine. We'll have air superiority soon. Those frigates are pummeling them. Apples, boys, can fly, he says with a laugh. You see, Colloway, he slagged half a bloody squadron on his own. We peer up and see black specks swirling around each other in the clouds above. They look so peaceful. So, too, does the beach. It faces out to sea, away from the main island. Water laps against the feet of my starshell. Crabs skitter along the sand. And out in the bay, hulking wrecks of the hovercraft smolder and sink to the deep. Who is missing? I ask. Grana and Vandros, he says quietly. Eight of our twelve remain. I try to pull up a battle map, but static still distorts the sensors. It's infuriating how little of the battlefield I can see. But this is what Niobe teaches our children, what Severo and I learned long ago. Rely on tech, and you'll soon be dead as your batteries are. Doesn't look like he's going to try a shuttle escape, I say. Course not. For once he overestimated us. Probably thinks we have the whole fleet waiting for him to try and escape. Gonna make us dig him out. We should wait for Apple's forces to push inland on their side of the island, Severo says. Tongueless and Thraxa land together after scouting the coastline. Pebble and Weed watch the interior of the island 
where the airfields lie beyond white rock hills and olive trees. Alexander joins them with several howlers. Can't wait, I say. Chances are they got a signal out before we destroy the array. We'll be dealing with reinforcements from the mainland soon. Then let's move our asses, Severo says. The air's a deadly place to be, so we move as a pack across the rocky island toward the coastline facing the main island, low to the ground, skipping thirty meters at a time. I send Tungless, Alexander, and Milia inland to demolish the ripwings on their landing pads. Plumes of fire rise over the hillsides from the airstrips before they rejoin us. In the sky, we've had a drastic setback. The Nessus has lost its gun battle to the particle cannons on the Ashlord's main island and has been forced to retreat to a lower elevation to seek shelter. And another of Apollonius's frigates has fallen from the sky. Under the shelter of a ridgeline, howlers help each other check their star shells as Severo and I climb the ridge to look at the main island. A kilometre of open water separates the landmasses. Turrets line the rocky coast. To our far right, Apollonius's force has pushed in and landed troop carriers on the main island. Hundreds of mechanised soldiers storm the beachhead on grasshopper legs, supported by heavily armoured spider tanks and the remains of his air force. Into the teeth of death, the last legion of Valii Wrath charges. The first wave is mowed down by cluster munitions fired by drones and gun batteries on the high cliffs. The rip wings drop bunker busters and big guns fall silent. Ash legions, caught unaware, now pour out of the subterranean barracks. I see a flash of armour in the sky as Apollonius, flanked by bodyguards, exits a troop carrier mid-air and falls for the bunkers in the cliffs. His hollow banner glows in the sky above him three times his own size, the raging head of a purple minotaur inviting all to come dance and die. He lands amongst a squad of greys and decimates them. Clang! I'm kicked in the chest. Falling from the rock formation, I collide with the sand below and stare up at the sky, dazed. Sniper! Several shouts. Several lands next to me. Reap, where are you hit? Reap! Oh! Gory hell, he's gonna die, Clown says. Shut up, asshole! Severo shoves him away. Pebble kneels over me. Darrow, can you hear me? Darrow! Ow! I say. They help me sit up. The armour penetrating round pierced the star shell, but was stopped by the pulse armour underneath. The arms and legs of the suit won't respond. Pebble and Weed help me activate the ejection port. The mech splinters apart and I crawl out, still dazed from the shot. There's a dent in my pulse armour. Where's Thraxer? Severo looks around. Here, she says, rushing up. Still got that baby nuke? he asks, his face enraged. Yes, sir. Give it. She unholsters the nuke launcher from the back of her armour and hands it to him. Without even lowering his helmet, he jumps thirty metres upward to clear the ridgeline. He hovers a half-second in the air and fires. The small missile shrieks out of the tube. He lets gravity claim him and falls back to the beach as we rush to shelter against the ridgeline. He saunters over without a smile. There's a flash of blinding light. 
the earth shudders. A blast wave of sand and debris roars over our heads, and huge waves crash against the island. In the distance, the black distortion surrounding the Ashlord's island flickers and disappears, revealing the horizon. I climb back out to see the devastation the half-megaton missile has caused to the island's coastline. Smoke and dust particles clog the sky. A horrible wound has been carved into the Ashlord's island. The mushroom cloud blossoms. And above it, deeper inland, where the white fortress of the Ashlord towers upon the high peaks, sunlight catches on iron men. Finally, the golds have come to war. I unfurl my razor and look to my howlers. For the Republic! Chapter 54 Darrow Wrath of the Republic I soar with the howlers into the wake of the nuclear blast, skinned in mechanized armor, smeared with char and blood, aimed like a driven spear toward the Tower of the Ashlord. The kill squad of armored golds races to meet us. They are nearly twenty in number. Each will be a sworn peerless of Legio Thirteen Draconis, Dragoons, his elite bodyguards and exterminators. It was men wearing the Sea Dragon badge who liquidated reds on Mars by the millions and dropped the nuclear ordnance that destroyed New Thebes, and it dumped my men captured on the battlefield out the back of transport ships three kilometers up. They must all die. Fire and many missiles streak between the war parties. Shields flash and armor buckles as life is ripped from men. Thraxa fires an EMP missile. It detonates amongst the golds. None drop from the sky. They have the new EMP shielding, too. A howler's body is blown to bits in front of me. Two dragoons die as Severo's particle cannon slices through their ranks. Using Thraxa's star shield to shield me in my thinner personal armor, I fly in her shadow and raise my razor ahead of me like a charging knight, the blade straight and true. And then, just shy of the speed of sound, the two war parties of machine and men meet in the sky. They clang together like squadrons of fallen angels, a horror of metal, a scream of guns and fire and shimmering swords and engines. Melia spears a gold through his head with her razor, then is cut in two by a passing sword. Her body divides and spins down without a sound. I block the same man's blade aimed at Thrax's head as he rips past us. The force numbs my arm to the socket, but I hold on to the blade, plunging into their ranks. I launch off Thrax's flank and gore the chest of a gold as we slam together. I twist myself at the last second so his blade nicks off my helmet. Without the starshell's protection, I feel the wheeze of my bones as they nearly snap against the force of our bodies colliding. My vision wavers, and we tumble. We slam down on an outcropping of rock beneath, metal limbs tangled together. My helm is inches from his jaguar helm. He pushes his pulse fist toward my head. I let go my razor and use a cravat arm hold, pinning his arm to the side as I bring my own pulse fist to his belly and fire on full auto. His body melts in half, and superheated stone kicks up from the mountain cleft to skitter against my visor. 
I push his smoldering corpse off and struggle to my feet as his legs flop off the ledge to the white rocks below. But before I can rise again into the air, I'm shot in the back. My skin sizzles as my pulse shield caves in and my armor melts into my lower back. I bellow in anger and jump off the ledge, swerving madly in the air to avoid my pursuer. I glance back just as Severo smashes the Golden Knight down into the mountainside with his star shell. Using the mech's incredible power, he peels off the man's arms and stomps his armored head flat. Another gold rips past, strafing him with his pulse fist. Severo lurches one of his star shell's mechanized hands up and grabs the gold's foot. He jerks the leg so hard in the other direction that the opposing forces tear off the man's leg at the hip. He spins off and collides into the mountainside at two hundred kilometers an hour. Get inside the tower! There has to be a door on the landing pad! Severo shouts. He fires up at the dogfight above him. Without a star shell, you'll die out here! Get the Ash Lord! But it is my howlers who are dying. Our effort to pierce the gold formation has failed. The battle has broken down into aerial dogfights and men killing each other on the face of the mountainside and against the walls of the tower. Our star shells gave us the edge, but the golds are more maneuverable in their pulse armor and have the numbers. They're overwhelming the powerful mechs like jackals taking down lions. I see Thraxa's mech fending off six golds in an aerial cage, Men broken by her power hammer litter the mountainside below. She smashes another out of the air, but she's speared from behind. Another hacks off her mech's left hand, and a third stabs at her stomach repeatedly before Tongueless smashes into them. Below, in a ravine, Pebble stands fighting over Clown's broken mech. Rally to the roof, I call over the comms, signal going through now that the Dark Zone interference has gone. Severo echoes the call. The remaining howlers fight their way to the roof to join Severo and me as we fly up the mountain toward the high tower. At the top, the landing pad, nearly sixty meters across, is being used by a grey sniper team and obsidian reinforcements. They retreat as we land, seeking shelter behind the long wings of the Ash Lord's personal shuttle. Severo and I land on the edge together and fight back a squad of obsidians and greys. I rocket into them at full speed, breaking the ribcage of a grey against the concrete. Rolling up, I deflect the huge axe of an obsidian and shoot him in the head. His helmet takes the blast, but I stun him enough to hew through his legs with my razor. I'm hit from the side by a gold pulse fist before I can finish him. My shield absorbs it. I shoot up on my grav boots, then straight down in front of him to exchange a series of razor slashes that ends with his arm off at the shoulder. Someone shoots him from the side. Severo kicks a grey off the roof with the boot of his mech. An obsidian launches toward him and stabs a pulse spear into his cockpit. He moves his head at the last moment, then pulls the obsidian off. Blood showers his mech as he crushes the obsidian's head with a squeeze of his mechanized hand. Green plasma rounds pound the legs of his mech, melting them inoperable. A squad of hunched greys fires at him from across the landing pad with huge anti-armor plasma rifles. I fire at them, cutting a hole of steaming meat through their ranks. Too late. An EMP rocket slams into the chest of Severo's mech. Blue electricity fizzles out, frying his circuitry. 
He manually ejects, shooting straight up over the heads of Alexander and Tunglas, who fight like mad together against the tide. I lose Severo in the fray. The enemy presses in, firing at us from the air above, chewing into our ranks. I'm slammed sideways by a concussion munition. As I try to gain my balance, an obsidian, a head taller than me, hits me in the chest with a pulse hammer. My pulse shield shorts out. My armor caves inward. I feel several ribs crack and tumble back. He knocks me to the ground before I can lift my head. Stumps on my hand as I try to stab him with my razor. His axe lifts high into the air, the moment slowing. Thraxa lies pinned to the ground, a razor in her thigh. Alexander tries desperately to reach me. I roar in fear as the pulse axe comes down. It smashes through my helmet. The energy blade glows with a pale fire, its edge centimeters from my face, held back by squealing metal. The heat radiates into my eyeballs, filling them with aching pressure. The obsidian wrenches the axe sideways. My helmet rips from its sockets. He cries his war chant and kneels on my chest, a crooked knife in his hand. He grabs my hair with an armored hand and saws on the front of my forehead to claim my scalp. Bazoo! Bazoo! A trumpet's clarion call rides in with the wind. The obsidian looks up to see a flight of armored knights falling from the sky, a violent figure in purple minotaur armor at their head. The minotaur lands before the obsidian and hacks him in half with a running two-handed upward blow. Apollonius has come. His knights fall upon the ash guard, carving them with razors and smashing them off the face of the landing pad till not one is left alive. Apollonius sings as he kills the golds and lurchers who try to make a last stand at the doorway down into the fortress. I sung of chaos and eternal night, taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent and up to reascend. He picks up a grave with one hand and smashes the man's skull into the hull of the Ashlord's ship until there's nothing to hold on to. Fresh from the kill, he wheels on me, his minotaur helm blood-soaked and battered, and for a moment I think he will strike me down. But his helm retracts, and from his sweaty face and tangled hair, he stares at me with wild, loving eyes. What wrath we summon together, he roars. Reaper and Minotaur, legends unholy. We broke them on the beach. How in the hell did he do that? He was outnumbered four to one. One of his men helps me to my feet, I've lost my helmet, but my face is so covered in blood from the attempted scalping that even my own mother wouldn't recognize me. Apollonius skewers the heart of a wounded gold and turns to his bodyguards. Vorkian, Gaul, rejoin the hunt. Slaughter them to the last man. His men jump from the tower back toward the battle, which rages inland of their beachhead below. Apollonius comes toward me and extends his arms, taking me into a hug. Bewildered, I stand there as he pulls back. A divine spectacle, Darrow. He looks at my men with a smile. A more glorious band of devils there is none. What a path you cut, like fallen seraphs amongst mortal men. Several limps toward me. 
His left arm bends the wrong way at the elbow, and I can see charred flesh through fissures in his armour. I scan the remains of my howlers, and realise with a sinking feeling that Pebble and Clown are nowhere in sight. Thraxa sits propped against a retaining wall, as tongueless administers first aid. Alexander alone is uninjured. His shell is a smoking wreck, but he stands free of it, almost elegant amidst the carnage, despite the shell shock in his eyes. Alexander. Yes, sir. Call the Nessus, and hold the roof. I turn to limp toward the security door leading down from the landing pad into the tower. Severo, Apollonius, with me. Chapter 55 Lysander Requiem I wake from a fitful sleep and expect to see Cassius standing there, filling the door, asking me if it's the night terrors again. But he is gone. I remember slowly, then all at once. There's a presence in the room. By the window, an old brown watches me. I'm too tired to be startled. His bark-coloured eyes smile with deep respect from underneath cirrus-cloud eyebrows. Dominus Loon, I beg pardon for interrupting your sleep, but your presence is requested. By whom? A friend. Seraphina? He walks past my pallet, careful not to trod on the fabric, and sketches a strange symbol onto the stone wall. It rumbles very softly, dilating inward to reveal a hidden passage through which he seems to have entered. I hesitate, wondering if it could be some sort of trap. He wags his hand impatiently. Come, come, Dominus, she awaits. I follow the brown in silence through the tunnels. He leads on through the darkness till we reach another wall where he sketches another symbol and the wall retracts. The brown leads me into a sitting room and closes the new aperture behind us. He gestures to several silk cushions on the floor by the hearth. Wait here, Dominus. May I prepare refreshment? Tea, if you have it, I say instinctively. Then I feel my hunger. And food, anything will do. He bows and limps away. Excuse me, steward, what is your name? Aruka, he says softly. Thank you, Aruka. I dip my head in rim fashion. He bows again and leaves me there. This room reflects the pre-colour heritage of the Ra more than any other. It is traditional and austere, but for the use of wood. Tatami flooring, woven from pale igusa grass, stretches to a bank of windows overlooking the frozen waste. Entire tree trunks, stained a warm honey colour, support the stone ceiling. A length of cypress forms the toconoma, a raised alcove where a small tree grows and a razor hangs in midair above a grave well. I am drawn to the room's lone eccentricity, a grand old piano made out of heartwood. It is a marvel. Of course, Ceres and some of the larger asteroid depots have pianos, but those are cheap plastic synth chops. The wood to make this must have come from Ganymede or Callisto. I run my hands over the piano's keys. I was wrong. The piano is old, perhaps older than the society. Two golden S-shaped markings are imprinted on the foreboard above the keys. My hands run over the polished fiddleback grain. I close my eyes and imagine I can feel the energy that grew this tree on my face, that I can hear birds in the sky again. After ten years they sing like I heard them yesterday, a flicker of a memory no longer than the flash of a lighting match, burgeons in the recesses of my mind, a feeling, a scent of something lost. 
Am I just homesick, or is it something more? Do you know how to play? the woman asks. I turn to see Romulus's mother, Gaia, shuffling into the room. Her back is crooked, shoulders slumped. In her youth, she would have been a slight thing. Her wrists are fragile as the stems of wine glasses, and her skin paper-pale and veined like blue cheese. In fact, it seems all that keeps her from tipping forward and shattering on the floor is a thin wooden cane and the enormous arm of the grand obsidian who escorts her. She clutches to him as if he were an old friend. He is aged like her, a hunched grey golem with intense beetle-black eyes buried deep in the folds of an ancient face. His head is a boulder, his ears chipped and pointed at the tips, the lobes filled with gold discs the size of chicken eggs imprinted with the lightning dragon. A long, uncut white beard hangs down the front of his grey score suit and is tucked into his belt. No, I answer, I never learned. A child of Hyperion alien to music? What a crime. But you must have been a busy little thing, your grandmother no doubt teaching you the alchemy of turning moons to glass instead, or were those lessons the province of your godfather? The senile mask she wore before her family is gone. Curious. My godfather taught me to finish a fight, I say, two hours of strategic instruction every day. If only he had taken his own lessons, then Darrow would be a memory instead of a ten-year plague. My godfather is still the only man to ever best the reaper in battle, I say, and I rather think it the habit of an indolent mind to indict a single man for a civilization's failure. True, back and forth they go, but now a peace. So they say. What a thing it must be for you, Lorne for a grandfather, Octavia for a grandmother, Magnus, Arja, Moira, Atalantia, trapped between so many giants and having to watch the birth of two more. Two? Darrow and Virginia. I rather think it the habit of a boy's mind to believe the man could exist without the woman. She smiles. I feel a sudden surge of enjoyment at the repast. I like this woman. She reminds me of Atalantia. All others here call him the Slave King, yet you do not. That brat is flesh and bone. Why feed the legend? She wheezes as her obsidian helps her sit on the flame maple bench. Thank you, Goroth. He turns from her to take a place at the window, and as he does I see a screaming skull has been tattooed to cover the back of his head in blue ink. Don't let the old black eye frighten you, Guy says. He's as batty as I am. Goroth shakes his head in disagreement as he reaches the window. Oh, quiet, you. She pats the bench beside her as she produces a thin white pipe from her robes along with a match. Sit here with me, Lysandra. I will teach you. She strikes the match on the calluses of her heel and holds the flame to the pipe bowl. Glancing uneasily at the obsidian, I sit down in the cloud of smoke at her side. She pats the piano. My husband gave this to me as a gift when I was twenty-nine. Do you want to guess how old I am now? You hardly look older than sixty, I say with a smile. Sixty, she cackles. What a rogue you are. That Bologna philandra rubbed off on you, I see. She scrutinizes me. I hope you didn't catch anything from him. He was like a brother to me. Well, that's not saying much in the core. My home is Luna, not the core. Fah, it's all the same to us. Why am I here? In accepting the invitation, I've walked into some scheme. Is this a test of some sort? Just because I'm grieving doesn't mean the dance has stopped. If anything, the pace has increased as the coup solidifies and the dissenters are clipped one by one. While Cassius may be gone, I still have Pytha to protect. Seems a lofty goal at this point. Gaia is unaware of my inner turmoil as she touches the keys and strokes out a simple melody. A strange sense of belonging courses through me and I forget about the dance. 
must be grotesque for you, seeing age, she says. I know how the deviants in the core love their rejuvenation therapy. Pfft. She hacks something into a crusty handkerchief, examines the prize, then makes the kerchief disappear back into her thick kimono. Your grandmother never looked older than sixty, but I remember her when we were both girls dancing at her father's galas. I was a plain little thing to her. She had such jewels, such refinement, but was always so haughty, pretending she didn't know who I was. A sizable stick up her gaja ass, that one. But now I have the last laugh. She cackles again. How old are you, child? Twenty. Twenty? Twenty. I've ingrown hairs older than you. I laugh despite myself. You're not very discreet, are you? Ha! I've earned indiscretion. Her cloudy eyes soften and she pulls on her pipe before pointing it at me like a finger. I know you wear the mask of court. What do they call it again? The dancing mask. Yes, that. You loons are famous for it. The composure. I once saw your great-granddaddy bitten in the face by a Venusian manticore at his birthday gala. Took a chunk out of his cheek and he didn't even flinch. Just bit the thing back, threw it to its handler and ordered champagne. Terrifying man, Avidius. Might be too hot-blooded for the mask myself, but I see through yours. Your friend died today, and so did my grandson, granddaughter, and grandniece. She reflects on them for a solemn moment and drags from her pipe. I will miss them, even that noxious scorpion Bellerophon. But I will not say I'm sorry. That is life, nay? Play with blades, you get pricked. Like my kin, your Bologna made his bed long ago. But you were different. Your weapon is in there, she pokes my head. If you are wise and lucky and live long as me, you will learn this pain is just a drop in the sea. She sets a hand on my heart, her eyes intense. So feel all of it, boy, before time makes you forget. Could you play something for them, I ask? For them? The departed, Cassius in your kin, a requiem, perhaps? She laughs. Yes. Yes, I like your grey matter. She turns to the piano and begins a song, slow, mournful, that sounds like the wind in my dreams. As her fingers drift over the keys, the song wakes something inside me besides grief. A shadow, a shadow of a shadow in the library of my mind, something I never knew forgotten. I feel a presence at my back, that there is no one there. I smell a perfume that is not in the air, and feel a heartbeat against my spine that ceased to beat so many years ago. Gaia senses my unease. Are you well, child? Yes, I say distantly, only now realising that I've set my hands on the keys blocking her from playing. I should take my hands back, but instead press down on a key. The note sings through my body. The memory coalesces, warms, the shadow dripping from it like dirty snow from a statue. I find another key. My eyes close. My hands move and more notes emerge through me, taking me to another place, another time. A spirit inside guiding me, a spirit that has long been caged and hidden, so I did not even know it was once there. But now it flies. The cobwebs of my mind burn away. My hands glide along the keys and a song pours out, a requiem for Cassius and all those others I have lost. I am swept away by its music to a far-off study where a fire crackles and a small leopard paces around my legs. She is behind me, her hair falling around my cheeks, her earthy scent filling my nose, her dazzling eyes and truculent mouth, all of it, all of her in that moment rushing back on the wings of the melody. When the last mournful note hangs in the air and my hands linger on the keys, I sit there breathless, tears streaking my face. I look over at Gaia, confused. I thought you couldn't play, she says. I can't, I murmur, unless I forgot. How could you forget something like that? It was splendid, child. I don't know. 
For a breath, for the briefest flicker, I saw her, the face of my mother, the soft skin, the small nose and strident mouth, those eyes that burned in a face time stole from me, or was it something else that stole it away, a lock placed upon her memory that the music unfastened? My mother played, I say, remembering now. And she taught you? Yes, I... I don't know why I couldn't remember. Sometimes bottling pain is the only way to survive. No, I don't forget, I say, somehow knowing there's more beneath the shadows that I've yet to remember, a whole life buried in my own mind. I never forget anything. My grandmother said it was my greatest gift. Sounds more like a curse to me. She watches sympathetically. My mother died when I was young like you, even though she would be a withered fossil now. I remember her as she was young. Young death is divine. It freezes the flower in time. A gift, in a way, to remember her as that instead of watching age ravage and devour. Her blue-veined hands pull absently at the loose folds of her neck, till she is a shadow of what she was. I don't think you're a shadow, I say. I think you are rather marvellous. I don't need your pity, she snaps, startling me. Then she smiles and taps me with her pipe again. You're not as good at being a rogue as the Bologna, are you? You flatter an old fool, but I think it's another who has stolen your heart. Her eyes twinkle with mischief. My granddaughter. You're mistaken. There are easier women to fall in love with. But you know that, don't you? Love? There are more important things than love. Like? Duty? Family? She let my friend be butchered. His death is on her. I hang my head. It is on me. There is no love between us, only a slight mutual curiosity, understandable and now fled. She kept you from being tortured, Gaia says. When her mother discovered it was Cassius behind that mask, Seraphina begged her to spare your life and to let Bologna have an honourable end. Before she knew who I was, I say, the only thing Loon and Ra share is responsibility for losing the society, for allowing Darrow to divide us and spending precious resources and ships against one another. I turned to her. What do you want? There's a dull ache between my shoulder blades that now is working its way into my head. I'm weary of this. She's talking like we're old friends, pretending that we mean anything to one another. On another night, I might have patience for it. Why did you bring me here? It wasn't to commiserate or show me your piano. I know I'm going to die. Is that why you've stopped pretending you're senile? Because you know I won't last the night? No, it's because I want your help. My help? I laughed bitterly. Why would I ever help you? I gave you the war you all seem to want. Isn't that enough? Who said I wanted war? She tries to get up from the bench. Goroth rushes to help her, his own knees crackling as he comes. She shoes him away and manages on her own with great difficulty. She extends her hand to me. Come, I will show you. I hesitate, then take her hand. I support her as she leads us back through the door through which Aruka disappeared earlier. It leads us into a humid artificial solarium that smells like flowers and pastries. Luminescent ivy crawls up the walls. The steward is there, pouring tea at a low table at which sits a lone, hunched woman with short, dark blue hair in a prisoner uniform. Pytha? She bolts upward and bowls toward me with her spindly limbs, shocking me by wrapping her arms around me in an embrace. She holds tight the top of her head under my chin. The latticework of her ribcage presses against mine. You're alive, she says into my chest. You're fucking alive. I did not expect an embrace from her. I would not have given one myself. Pytha, there's something I have to tell you about Cassius. She pulls back, eyes red. I know. I swallow the stone in my throat. Where have you been? 
We sit sipping tea at the table as Pytha recounts her trials. She was not accorded the same comfort, Cassius and I were. She was tortured by Pandora on the first night we were captured and has trouble remembering what she revealed. Here on Io she's been treated well, but she's still famished and devours a plate of thin sandwiches that Aruka serves. I nibble on one without tasting it, mulling over what she's told me. Gaia picks tobacco from her pipe with a short knife. You still haven't told me, I say. Gaia looks up, confused. What do you want from me, from us? As you said, you're going to die. Soon, both of you. I believe Dido will execute you after Romulus's trial tomorrow. Perhaps before. It will be quiet. A black-blood scorpion in your room, a needle drone, a poisoned cup of tea. I set down my cup uneasily. She will want the Grand Son of Loon to disappear. You complicate her plans, Lysander. She can stand no challenges to her authority. So disappear you shall, regardless of Seraphina's intervention. Damn, you're depressing as an empty stimp back, Pytha mutters, but she's not depressed enough to stop eating the sandwiches. So what do we do, just wait to die like Cassius? No, Guy says, I suggest an alternative. Survive. It's not the answer I expected, but it fits. And how do you propose we do that? Pytha asks sharply. Even if we get past the guards and steal a ship, we need to get past Sungrave's guns. Then we need to get to orbit before warhawks shred us with railguns. Then we need to outrace the orbital guard. Then the fleets themselves. Prolly won't even chase us. They'll just send a long-distance missile and it'll do the work. We run, we die a dozen ways. She loses interest in her meal and pushes it away. We're trapped on this shit old moon. I understand you're angry, Guy says. But to speak to me in that way again, Lowborn, and your tongue will fertilise my tobacco garden. Gaia puffs away on her pipe as Pytha blanches. And yes, you are trapped. Unless... Unless what, Domina? Pytha asks nervously. Unless Dido's not in power, I guess. Unless Romulus defeats her coup. Then he may let us go. Romulus, who let me be tortured by that Pandora? Pytha spares a quick look at Gaia. Woman? Didn't you say he wanted to cut your head off and send the Archie into Jupiter? Aren't you a little raw about that? It's in the past, and it made sense, considering his predicament. Killing you made sense. Technically, she considers. Well, I have thought of it a few times. I mull over an idea, seeing Guy's intention. You want us to help you. You want us to free Romulus from the dust cells. Gaia nods at me through her pipe smoke. So we can get killed by those turbaned psychopaths? Are you space-mad? Pytha crosses her arms. Don't you have your own men, Domina? All my men have been arrested or displaced, Guy says. She gestures to Aruka and Garth. We crones are all that's left. What mischief could we do, feeble as we are? Garth bears his black teeth, chilling me. Golds wanting us to do their dirty work? Typical, Pytha mutters. I don't want to die for them, Lysander. This might be the only way we don't die today, I say with a smile but inside, behind the dancing mask, my logic is cold and clinical. Don't tell me you're actually thinking about this. Dido is preparing for war, Pytha. We're afterthoughts to her. She'll delete us or use us, use me as a bargaining chip somehow. I won't have that, not at all. I turn to Gaia. Would Diomedes help? No, the vain boy is a slave to his honour. He's bound by his oath to the Olympic Knights, and they've accepted Dido's coup. Romulus's trial begins tomorrow. Diomedes will deliver him to that trial for justice to be served there. His own father? Pytha asks. It is our way. You have a plan, I assume, I ask Gaia. So you'll do it, she says slyly. I did not say that. What is your plan? My daughter, Vila, waits in the desert with legions loyal to Romulus. They will begin an assault on Sungrave to capture Dido. But she cannot attack if he is a hostage. I need you to go to the dust cells, free him. 
I've arranged for hover bikes in a garage. You will need them to cross the waste and reach Vila. It's not just about my son, she says, bearing all her cards. I was friends with your grandfather, Lorne. He was a stuck-up old goat, but so am I. She could be lying. He came to Europa because he tired of the ambition of the young and the pride of the old. I tire of empire, just like old Stoneside did. War eats families. I told my husband that when he went to Augustus's war and raced to fall in the lion's reign. He did not listen. My son did. All he's done, all he's hidden, has been for the good of the rim. Did Romulus know Darrow destroyed the docks, I ask? No. I suspected, and I counselled my son not to seek war with him. Logical at the time, considering your losses, but dishonourable. Stupid boy. Do you know how many proud humans I've seen die for honour, melted onto the floors of landing craft, crying on the battlefield for their mothers as they try to push their guts back into their bodies? Honour. She sips her tea. Romulus knows the cost. A leader may not always be logical and honourable. At times he must choose. I'm surprised of all people your grandmother did not teach you that. Or are you trying to be lawn? I say nothing. She makes a small noise of amusement. My son, for all his powers, is a humble man. He listened to me. Because of him, our civilization survived the destruction of the docks and the starvation and economic collapse that followed. We built new ships out of the ruins of the very docks that fell on Ganymede. Now we have peace. I want to die knowing that it will last and that the Venusian strumpet won't pull us into her planet's endless war. Gaia does this to protect her family in the Rim. She could care less about the interior and their people. Seraphina suddenly seemed so very noble compared with her grandmother. The young girl's eyes were incandescent when she spoke of bringing peace to the core. There's only one answer I can give, Gaia, that will let me walk out of here. I will do it, I say carefully. I will free your son. Pytha, you can stay here. Last time I did that, you slagged things up good and I got thrown in a cell, she says. She pushes away her tea. I come with. I eye her frail arms. Then you must hurry. Gaia stands with Goros' help. Dido is in council with her praetors now, but soon she'll learn I brought you both here. We follow her back into the main room. I'll need something, a letter, a recording, so Romulus knows you sent me, I say. You'll have a guide, she says. He knows, Gareth. Then why not just send him? Gareth is not what he once was, she looks at the obsidian with grave affection. And he does not know how to pilot the hoverbikes, I assume you do. I nod. Appraising Gareth, I look back at Gaia. I'll need a weapon. Yes, Aruka, my haster. Aruka rushes to the Tukanuma and, using tongs instead of his hands, brings back the razor from its gravity perch. Show him this. I have not held her for many years. Her name is Shizuka. She is yours until I ask for her again. Take it, boy. I take the haster in my hands. It is cold and alien and outlandishly long. Its handle is pale brown leather and is as long as my forearm, its blade clear as glass, like Seraphina's. My hand touches the small activation toggle near the top of the handle, and the whip snaps rigid. Gaia glances nervously to the door, no longer the collected woman who sat with me at the piano. It took all her energy to make that show of confidence, to sell herself, the gambit. Now her own nerves and exhaustion betray her. You must leave now. Gareth will lead you into the tunnels. She guides me to a wall where she traces her fingers over the stone. The wall rumbles backward, revealing a dark passage. We know the secrets of this mountain better than that Venusian tramp. She hands me a transponder. Remember, as soon as you have him and can hide, signal for the legions. I will. The old obsidian joins us there and looks sadly down at Gaia, torn by the parting. 
Tears glisten in his black eyes. Oh, don't weep, you old brute, she says to the giant. Tears do not become us. He bends down suddenly and kisses her upon the brow with his tattered lips. She's so startled she barely has time to be offended. Farewell, Domina, he rumbles. She shakes her head and shoves him weakly in the chest. Go. Gareth tears himself away and presses into the darkness of the tunnel. Thank you for the sandwiches, Pythas says to Gaia. If they find out you helped us, won't they kill you? Stupid girl. Not all who live fear death. She backs away, the door closes between us, but I hear her last words weakly through the stone. Save my son. Chapter 56 Lysander, War of Dragons Gareth, Pytha, and I wind through the bowels of the ancient city in a darkness so complete memory guides the man instead of his large eyes. Up and down and in twisting turns we go, passing whispers that leak through the stone, machines that shudder in unseen alcoves and rooms, thin blades of light slice through the darkness from peepholes. I glance through them, hoping to catch sight of Seraphina, but the deeper we plunge, the farther from the golds we go. What I see through the walls are yellows hunched over hollow displays, studying diagrams and videos. White hierophants reading in cloisters, carver laboratories alive with experiments, barracks of greys and great cisterns and botanical gardens abuzz with bees and reds plucking fruits from rows of subterranean bushes growing under artificial light. The tunnels are old and have their own humours. Wind rolls through them, whispering eerily, and deep in the darkness, as it bends around turns and passes over apertures, the wind howls. I walk closely behind Gareth. Without him, Pytha and I might wander until we starve to death. At each turn, Gareth glances back to make sure we still follow, and I worry that he knows what I'm thinking, knows what I plan. He continues to guide us until we reach a freezing stretch of tunnel where I slicks the stone under our feet. Here, he says. We stop, and I hear his finger on the wall. The stone grumbles in complaint and then light seats in through the expanding aperture, revealing a storage room on the other side of the wall. Gareth goes through first. I put a hand on Pytha to stop her from following. My hand trembles on the haster. What if I miss? I find the toggle with my thumb, my fingers shake. Some ill wind, Dominus, Gareth asks, turning back when I do not follow. Now he senses my intentions in the air. I say nothing, his eyes narrow as he sees my finger on the toggle. Without a word, he lunges at me. His speed uncanny to his age and size, I activate the razor. The long blade springs into the space that separates us. I lunge for his kneecap, hoping not to kill him. It impales the bone and tendons sliding through them as if they were not even there. Gareth's momentum carries him through the blade. His huge hands reach for my throat. Pytha screams and slips on the ice. Her legs knock out mine from beneath me. I slam down just as Gareth sails over me and crashes into the wall. He rolls over, reaching for me. I scramble away down the tunnel, trying to gain my feet. He manages to grab only my left hand. I try to bring the razor around, but he jerks me down. I fall face down, and he almost throws his body atop mine. A narrow miss. Still on my belly, right arm and razor pinned under my body, I kick blindly backward at him, hitting his face and shoulders, leveraging my legs against him to prevent him from crawling up my face-down body to pin me there. With his strength and weight, he would nail me to the ground and shatter my skull into the stone. We flail there in the darkness, grunting, his immense strength slowly overwhelming my cravat-learned leverage. I can't twist my right arm with the razor out from under me. Pytha, I shout. Pytha, kick him! 
I glance back and see her in the dim light that bleeds from the storage room into the tunnel. She's gained her feet and rushes up behind Gareth's prone body to kick him in the back of his head. His grip doesn't slacken. He's reaching up my body, trying to take the transponder that will signal Vila. Pytha kicks him again with the heel of her foot, and using the distraction I manage to wrench my body around so that I'm on my side and can free my arm. I stab down at him again with the razor, this time in the arm that holds me. The blade gores his shoulder. He doesn't let go. His huge hand closes around my left hand, squeezing till I hear a popping like green wood over a campfire. The bones crackle and splinter under my flesh. Pain races up my left arm. I grunt and swing the blade down at his arm in frantic desperation. His grip slackens. I scramble to my feet, his severed hand still clutched around my left. I wheel around to kill him, but he's rolled back away from me into the shadows of the tunnel past the storage room aperture. One breath. Two. He does not reappear. I rush to Pytha, razor pointed warily at the darkness, and shove her inside the storage room. Lysander, what the black hell was that? My hand throbs with pain. In the light I can see the mangled fingers and the swelling underneath the skin. We weave through boxes, fleeing the tunnels till we find a door and go through it into a cold hallway. We're in the dust cell's prison facility. Cameras blink on the ceiling from behind small glass globes. They'll see you. I go to my knees in front of one and throw the razor on the ground. She retreats to the doorway of the storage room. Lysander! An alarm begins to howl out of the camera. Doors slam somewhere in the distance. Boots hammer on the ground. Pytha, get on your knees with me. They'll be here soon. Lysander, what are you doing? Choosing a side. An hour later, Dido watches me after I finish my story. Pytha stands nervously with me. We're surrounded by a handful of soldiers along with Dido and Serafina, both of whom look to have been woken from their sleep. My left hand is in agony, swollen like a water skin and throbbing a deep black purple. The shot wore off half an hour ago. My teeth don't chatter anymore, but I'm sweating bullets. I compartmentalize the pain along with the fear, putting it in the void and focusing on my breathing. The pain becomes manageable. He had this with him, the centurion of the platoon that captured his hands died to a plastic container that holds Gaia's razor, taking care not to touch the blade with his own hand. It is the matron's razor, is it not? My evidence. It is. Serafina, what do you think? Dido asks. Serafina scrutinizes me from the corner of the room. I wouldn't trust a loon farther than I can spit, she looks at her data pad as it glows. But they found a hand in the tunnel, an obsidian blade. Field DNA inspection says it's Gareth. And that monster wouldn't take a piss if Gaia didn't tell him to. Dida cradles the transponder that Gaia gave me. So he is telling the truth. Your grandmother is not so senile as she appears. Should we send a platoon to her quarters, Domina? The centurion asks. Dido's finger glides along the activation button. No, no, that would look tawdry. More family squabble. Serafina breathes a sigh of relief. Dido's eyes glitter over at me. We're not loons, after all. She is my mother-in-law. No, search for Gareth, Centurion. His men swallow nervously behind him. Dido doesn't notice, but Serafina seems to have a better gauge on the pulse of the men. Even with one arm, I don't like the idea of a stained in the walls. And not a word of this to anyone. Last thing I need is all our new allies shitting themselves for fear of being skinned in their sleep. The soldier waits expectantly. Something else? Pray tell. I don't have clearance for the tunnels, Domina, or maps. Did you know they existed before today? Seraphina asks. Only rumours, and I was born in Sungrave. I can go, Mother, Seraphina says. I know most of the... No, I won't risk you chasing a stained in the dark. 
Who else knows the damned tunnels? Some dragon guards, Serafina says, but most of the centurions are loyal to father. Gory hell. Isn't there a map in the servers or something? There was, Serafina says. When Fabii's hacker battalions corrupted the mainframe, the tunnel maps were casualties of the data purge. You mean they're lost and we're strangers in our own gory damn home? Dido laughs to me. See? Always at siege. Marius was mapping them with the Cryptea, but I don't know how far he got, Serafina says. Of course he would. He won't help us, not without father's permission. I know, I know. Dido rubs her fingers into her temples, thinking. Sira, summon Kurat. I want a hundred obsidian bloodstalkers and coon hounds in the tunnels by morning. Let them hunt their own. The greys breathe a sigh of relief. And Marius's maps? Serafina asks. There's thousands of kilometres of tunnel. I'll deal with the maps and your brother. Dido dismisses the greys. The centurion asks if he should take me to a cell. Let him stay. The greys leave and Dido fondles the transponder that I gave her while looking me over. I stay silent, knowing the die is already cast. Serafina closes the door behind the greys and looks at the transponder. Are you going to summon Vila? Perhaps, Dido purses her lips. It seems the only proper move in the game. I can recall the legions I sent to take care of Cardiff and Iola. Under that shield, Vila can last for years. We lure her into the waste, we can destroy her legion in an hour, solidify our control. Without Vila, who will they rally around once Romulus sees reason? You think you'll see reason if you kill Aunt Vila? Serafina asks. You kill her, you lose him. That's not what I agreed to. We've done this without tearing our family apart. That is a victory to build our war on. I watched Dido for her reaction, gauging. Yes. Dido's thumb continues to trace over the activation button. Yes, of course you're right. We shall reason with Vila. She tosses Serafina the transponder. Do something with that. She turns to me. Now, young loon, this is the second time you've helped me, considering the death of the Bologna. I'm curious to know why you choose to betray my mother-in-law. Was it that you could not simply bear to be an honourable little boy? Cassius died for his honour, I say. No, he died because he murdered my brother, my daughter. Are you too cowardly to follow him? I look past her to Serafina. Death begets death begets death. It's something my grandfather once said, and it's why I did not free Romulus. Gold blood would spill, and there's precious little of it left. Lorne Alarchus once said, It is the duty of every man to listen to his enemies. When you spoke, I listened. Your war is just. Cassius did not believe that, but he is gone, and to honour the dead at the cost of the living is a vanity none of us can afford. Seraphina has had some difficulty in looking at me since I entered the room, even when I recounted my story, but now I have her attention. I saw the rising claim Luna, and I have watched for ten years as their supposed liberty gave way to anarchy. It is time order and justice return to the realm of man. That is why I helped you. Not because you wish the slave king's head on a pike, Dido asks. The worlds would be better without him in it, I say. If you wanted that, you would have tried already, Serafina says. You would have gone to your godfather in the corps, but instead you hid. Cassius saved my life. I owed him a debt. I do not say that I was afraid my godfather would blame me for the fall of Luna and my part in it. But with his death, that debt is gone. Noble platitudes, Dido says, eyes wary. But loons have ever had silver tongues. I imagine you would have me free you. I nod. Many of my allies cry for your head. I would hate to disappoint them. I have committed no crimes. You are the residue of tyrants and genocides, Seraphina snaps. You are a loon. 
So you judge me by the faults of my ancestors? I thought better of you. Interesting. Dido examines me with a Venusian eye, wondering if I'm more valuable, dead or alive. But as it is, the decision is not mine. I frown. Then whose is it? Tomorrow's trial will be a sham, Dido says. I've spoken to Helios, who will conduct the trial. He agrees there is no evidence my husband knew about the recording. His containment of Serafina's return can be excused by saying he was trying to protect the peace and his daughter from harsh judgment. There was no treason, but the docks were destroyed on his watch. He will be impeached only for negligence in wartime for not investigating the reaper's duplicity. But then he will be freed, and we will be on our course to war. As Rome had two consuls, we will have two sovereigns, husband and wife, equals. He will have no choice but to lead at the front with me. So the fate of your life, Lysander Aulun, heir of empire, is not for me to decide alone. Together, my husband and I will decide if you live or if you die. When Dido is through with me, Serafina escorts me back to my cell. There is little conversation between us, but when she goes to close the door, I block it with my foot. Did your mother send you to my cell, I ask? I want the truth. She stares back belligerently. Since when has truth mattered to a loon? Chapter 57 Ephraim Fit for a Duke Over the comm channel, Gorgo gives the address of a restaurant and tells me to meet him there tonight. I manage to keep the nervousness from my voice, for my hand trembles when I hang up the comm. It's a one-way ticket I'm buying. My only hope is that when I call in the cavalry they come fast and hard, otherwise the sovereign's pardon will be for one. I know Volga will use it better than I could anyway. Holiday tries to get me to go to a government facility to wait out the mean hours till the meeting, but I finally convince her that it's better for the syndicate to see me street-side during the day before miraculously showing up at the restaurant. She says goodbye without a smile and departs not back into the terminal, but through a maintenance door that leads under the docking platform. Lyria pauses at the door and turns back to me with my omnivore in hand. You're probably going to need this, she says. Holiday unlocked the trigger lock before she left. Sure you don't? I ask. No, she frowns. I didn't make a deal like you. Don't think they let you keep weapons in Deep Grave. That's why you never do anything for free, I say glibly. I'll keep that in mind. She turns to go. Rabbit! She turns to look back at me, and for a moment I wonder if I see hatred pass through her eyes. Did she say all that about Trig just to get me to agree? She did. She was the honey to Holiday's vinegar. There's no forgiveness in her. Just exhaustion and anger at me and the world. What? she asks. The fleeting notion of apologising vanishes. Bit of advice. Get as far away from them as you can, as fast as you can, or they'll just chew you up and spit you out. If I wanted advice, you'd be the last person I'd ask. With that, she leaves. I arrive via taxi at the restaurant, a glitzy joint, 
on Upper West Promenade and have to wait for an hour before Gorgo arrives. Nervously pushing aside my drink, I follow him from the restaurant to a flyer where several slick thorns in dusters search me for weapons and, as I said they would, look for tracking devices. They take my pistol. When they've decided I'm clean, they put a distortion hood over my head that's set to submerge my senses in an arid desert world. Digital tumbleweed rolls across the cracked ground in front of me. In the distance, hungry wolves howl as my body jostles in the back of the flyer as she ascends into the flow of traffic. Time distorts inside the hood as well. I can't tell if it's been an hour or four when I feel the ship's landing thrusters kick in and the gentle bump as she sets down. They unload me as I see wolves approach across the false desert, hunting my digital presence. I'm pushed along till I'm guided onto a couch, and at last the hood comes off, just before the wolves pounce. I face an immense ant colony that stretches the length of a wall, all the way up to the ten-metre-high ceiling. Acid yellow ants, the size of my pinky, toil behind the glass. They swarm in a mound of legs and teeth over some carcass above the surface of the colony and make a line to carry the food from the top desert level down into the belly of their labyrinth, past storage rooms, barns for aphids, egg hatcheries and nurseries filled with squirming larvae. In the centre of the colony, an obese queen the size of a small cat with a swollen purple abdomen excretes transparent eggs that are ferried away in the mouths of workers with black mandibles. A nauseating cocktail of curiosity and revulsion grows in me. Gorgo lounges on a couch across from mine, his huge body out of place in the finely decorated room. He lights a burner. His data pad sits on the table, omnivore next to it. Lo, Gorgo, what's with the ants? Duke says they soothe him, he says, watching me through the smoke. Got another one of those? I gesture to the burner. He hesitates and then proffers me a pack of white dwarfs. I reach across the glass table and take one. He tosses me a lighter. I light the burner and lean back to admire the place. It's a trophy room. A rare diamond stolen a year after the fall sits on a glass desk by the window as a paperweight. A war helmet with a crescent moon of house loon hangs six metres up on the wall. A hundred other priceless treasures litter the room. Not one is nailed down or secured beneath glass, as if to say, no man would dare take me. The arrogance is magnificent and balanced by menace. On a table sits the Duke's bone saw. Did he steal all this? I ask. In admiring the room, I've come to the conclusion that there's no way I can get across the table to my gun or his data pad before Gorgo kills me. He could crush my skull without breaking a sweat. He also has that weird locomotion they seem to breed into black ops obsidians. He was probably a berserker, or maybe even a stained. I've never seen one in the flesh. 
How easy would it be for him to peel my arms from their sockets? I've seen rising obsidians do it, to capture grey legionnaires and golds. Would I scream like those poor bastards? Everything here he stole with his own hand. There was a duchess before him. He stole her crown too, Gogo says. Surprised he doesn't have the children in here on a pedestal. I fish for a hint of their whereabouts. Would be a shame if I called Holiday and the cavalry and had nothing to show for it. Gogo doesn't take the bait. Back to the ants. They soothe him? Is the duke an entomologist as well? Gorgo doesn't reply. He just sits there, like a cultured yeti with those eerie eyes bugging out of his cadaverous face. You don't like me very much, do you, Gorgo? No. May I ask why? You talk too much. So? Talking wastes wind, slows cogitation. Unlike you, I don't need to wag my tongue to soothe my nerves. Communication is the soul of civilization. Otherwise, we are like them, aren't we? I nod to the ants, carrying, ferrying, digging and toiling. If you express yourself only through your work, what are you but an ant? I want to get a rise out of him. His quietness irks me. You should really try it. I told him he should kill you, like that green. I take it back. Maybe stick to silence. I still think he should kill you. Gorgo isn't the sort of man you want envisioning your mortality. But death is so permanent, you'd miss me. I puff a cloud of smoke between us. Any particular reason you want to put me in the ground? My lungs feel tight tonight. Gogo doesn't answer. I eye his black duster and black boots. I've always wondered, the dusters, do they give them to you when you sign your employment contract, or do you go out and buy your own from a criminal apparel store? You're funny, he says. Thank you. How's that working for you, Grey, being funny? I look around. Pretty good. How's being the Duke's dog work for you? He just smiles, that eerie, metal smile of his. The man puts the fear of hell into me. You can read most men, but not this gilded golem. I've no idea what he wants. Feigning boredom, I stand and walk the length of the ant colony. On closer inspection, I realise there are two species of ants, the colony separated by a sliding glass partition near the ceiling. Hundreds of each gather at the partition. They're little trundling war machines, larger than the worker ants, with thick plates of shell armour, oversized heads and comically large mandibles, the yellow ants crane their bodies upward like howling dogs and wave their mandibles in the air, while the blue ants throb their stingers in and out. I look again above the yellow ant colony and peer at the carcass that feeds them. I step closer to the glass to see past the squirming bodies. Oh, hell. 
Mrs. Severed Hand nearly picked clean of flesh. Too large for the children. An obsidian's crescent metal sigil can be seen fused to the bone of the metacarpals. Dread rises from my balls into my belly. So the Duke collected on his debt. Belog? Wasn't that the obsidian's name? I have a sudden urge to vomit. They're going to murder me. That's why they brought me to see the ants. They're going to kill me and feed me to the fucking ants. I turn away in disgust. Gorgo's watching me with those quiet eyes that promise so much pain. He gathers his data pad and my gun and stands when the Duke enters several minutes later. My heart plummets even further into my intestines, hitting each rib on its way down when two obsidian bodyguards follow the pink into the room. Have you two been playing nicely? the Duke asks. Relatively, I say with an earnest smile of relief. Gorgo is a bit taciturn. Eats his chart. I don't need you any more tonight, Gorgo. Go play with your little toys, the Duke says. I took the liberty of refreshing your stock. Metal glints between Gorgo's lips. He's gone. Gogo hands over my omnivore and leaves with a short bow. The Duke wears a black robe with a purple sheen and black slippers. Ephraim, darling, so dreadful of me to keep you waiting. I hope Gogo wasn't too much of a bore. Quite a vocabulary on that coal fish in there. Where did you find him? Oh, we've been acquainted for some time. Let's just say that we melted that gold in his teeth down together. Come, come. I hope you're hungry. He keeps my gun and sets it next to the knives on his side of the table. Close enough for me to reach. I could get it and take his data pad to signal holiday, but the obsidians would peel me apart. I watched them on the far side of the room while the Duke's servants open the bottle of La Dame Chanceuse as we sit across from one another at a long table. The Duke eyes me playfully. I must admit, I did not expect to hear from you so soon. I feared I might have been a touch too enthusiastic about killing your friends. What friends? They betrayed me. Fuck them. Cold-blooded the Duke says. I do like reptiles, almost as much as insects. He nods toward the ants. Still, I thought it would take at least several weeks for the ennui to set in. It seems you are like me after all. How's that? A restless minds make restless men. It's a terrible fault of mine, I say with a small smile for his benefit. I grow bored quick. The man isn't bothering with coyness now that we are in relative private. His eyes rove my lips as he slips an apricot into his mouth. Not too quick, I hope. I let him see me eyeing the servants in the room, playing up my discomfort. Lamont, 
Bring the food and let us alone, he says. I think we can pour our own wine tonight. The servants bring several silver trays of food out and set them on the table before disappearing from the trophy room. He doesn't mention the trophies, but he wants me to see them, else we wouldn't be dining amongst them. The two obsidians didn't follow the servants from the room. As long as they're here, I won't be able to get his datapad. They linger at the far door. I can't very well assault him with those two monsters in the room. They'll rip off my arms and beat me to death with them as easy as they would kill a cricket. I look at them pointedly. Pretend they're statues, he says. Heads are full of stone already. I'm not used to having witnesses, I admit. Yet you left so many when you stole the children. I thought you would detonate a charge in the shuttle once you left, as I recommended. If you wanted murder, you should have sent Gorgo. Do I detect squeamishness? I prefer to think of it as precision. I glance at the guards. Can't we be alone? I feel like they're going to eat me. I'm sorry. They are here for my protection. I never go anywhere without them. A flaw in my physical design. Weak bones. The lithe man sighs as if he shoulders the greatest of burdens. They never tell you this. But the peril of power is the people that come with it. Servants, bodyguards, aides, so many eyes and ears and little reptile thoughts in their brains. All those years I wondered what the Gauls would do if they knew what went on inside our skulls. I don't think they did, or they would have exterminated the lot of us. Now I sit where they sit, and I know what my men think. It's an advantage. And what do they think? I ask, sipping my wine to try and calm myself down. My heart slamming in my chest. It hasn't stopped since I saw the obsidian hand in the ant colony. I dry my palms on my pant legs. Oh, tedious things. That they could cave my skull in with a wine bottle or slit my throat as I sleep or throw me out a window. The little fantasies of murder are what keep servants sane. They tell themselves they allow me my power, and if ever I become too dreadful, they will do me in and maybe take over. But of course they never do. They procrastinate their vengeance because, deep down, they are afraid not just of me, but like all people, they fear their own fantasies. Easier to cherish them and keep them inside where they are in control. Possible. He forks a serving of charred octopus swimming in a dark vinegar sauce onto my plate. The sweet scent combined with my nausea almost makes me gag. Do you think I'm afraid of you? I ask. Isn't that the heart of desire? No one wants to fuck what they don't fear, because then there's no validation from it, no power derived. 
interesting opinion. That is why roses were created. The first pinks were more beautiful than we are now, but there was nothing inside them, no content beneath the shine. They were toys. Once you used one, the lust evaporated. So, the Gauls made us into inscrutable enigmas to hold their attention, masters of art, sex, music, and emotion, enigmas they could never fully understand. And that lack of understanding is the heart of fear. So that was a yes? That was a yes. You are afraid. I refill his glass my hand trembling only slightly. He notices and thinks it's from desire, not Zolodone withdrawal and sack-shriveling fear. I am curious, Ephraim. Why did you come back so soon? You have all the money you could ever need. Can people like you and me ever have all we need? I ask. He smiles. You're insatiable. I love it. The best thing about this new world, he waves to his trophies, there's always more to take. But you didn't answer my question. His eyes go cold, and he ignores the wine I poured for him. Come now, answer it. I want more. I pander, praying he can't see through this two-bit bullshit. More than contracts. More than filling a bank account. There's no satisfaction to it. I want more out of this life than just money. And what do you think we make here? After the kidnapping, I see there's more than money at play. You make power. Yes, yes. That is a good reason to return. That and to visit the kiddies, I say with a laugh that comes out too loud. He smiles but watches me, the comment arousing his suspicion. Damn it, F, stick to the script. I glance at the ant colony. What do you imagine my role would be here? I ask, deflecting. He drinks his wine and plays a finger on the edge of his glass. Well, you would work under me, of course. The rest would depend upon your imagination. I look past him to the patio outside. The glass is smoked, but I see the obscured outline of his personal yacht. The keys dangle from a gold chain on his neck. There's my exit. And uh, professionally? I ask. He smiles. As you have no doubt noticed, the era of the freelancer, the prowler, is coming to an end. What an era it was. So much art, so many treasures ripe for the picking. It gave birth to you, to me. But now most of the treasures are consolidated and hoarded by a small enclave of individuals. We must turn our gaze outward before we cannibalize ourselves, find new ways to steal. That is where you would come in. He pours himself more wine. I will need an architect who can create new, unconventional streams of income. 
and I think that man could be you. It's going to go like this for hours, I realise. The dance is more than half the fun to a man like him. But that still won't take the obsidians from the room. If I ask about the children again, it might cost me my hands, and I'm not a good enough liar to keep pace with this prim courtesan. So instead, I lean back and slide my leg under the table to the inside of his right calf. Bored now, I say. Let's change topics. He watches me, eyes sparkling. He wets his lips, small, warm breaths escaping them as I slide my foot up his leg to the inside of his thigh. I feel him harden, so I push my foot gently down, encouraging him. Then, with a sigh, I pull my foot back to its original position on the floor. But I don't play with an audience. Vardin, Jornak! He snaps his fingers at the obsidians, and they leave the room through the double doors. The Duke smooths out his robe and moves his fingers along the controls of an audio system. The deep percussion of synth music thuds through the room like the heartbeat in my chest, but the lights stay bright. He leans back. Come around the table. I walk around the table, my body numb with trepidation, my gut grumbling for Zolodome. He's moved his chair back so there's room for me. He reaches for the tie to his robe, a bright, hungry look in his eyes as I stand over him, blood thundering in my ears. The ghost of a smile plays over his lips. His slender hand runs from my knee up to my hip. The music beats faster and I realise it's synced to his heart rate. Go to your knees. I stand there looking down at his soft face and see the predatory selfishness there. It eats the beauty like a cancer. On your knees, he says in irritation. My heart sticks a beat, like I stand on the edge of a cliff. Time to jump. Nah, I'm good. I said I flatten my hand into a blade and lurch it forward into his nose with a locked elbow. My basic instructor would applaud the strike. The base of my palm pulverises the bottom cartilage of his nose. Afraid of killing the pink, I don't use all my strength. Still, the blow rocks him back in his chair, stunning him. He reaches up to his face. I snatch up my omnivore and point it at the door. No obsidians come through. Knowing he must have some sort of panic device, I grab both his hands and slam them down on the table. I frisk him and pull his data pad from his pocket. I wipe blood from his face on the pad for the DNA lock and rip the keys of his ship from the chain on his neck. Move your hands or scream, I shoot you in the head, I say under the music. His nose is shattered, flayed up like a pig's. I grab it between my fingers. Are the children here? I squeeze. He gasps and nods. The music is throbbing now with his heart. I dial the number Holiday gave me. Her face appears in the air above the pad. Ephraim, the hell have you been? I'm with the Duke, I say over the music. Been hours since you were picked up. How long? Four. The children? They're here. Come save my ass. 
Four hours? Tracking your beacon, she says. She curses under her breath. F, you're on the far side of the moon. You're an endymion. The dread that I feel whenever I hear the name wells up in me, formless and absolute, threatening to pull me down into the darkness. I hear their screams, the whir of the laser scalpel. Endymion, I whisper. While I was in the hood, we must have gone sub-orbital. I thought it was still in Hyperion. How did time pass so fast? Don't you have local assets? I ask. Not to punch in there, and none that have been vetted. I'm with Team 1 in Hyperion. Team 2 is closest to you. They're already in the air. How long? Two hours? Two hours? I repeat quietly. The adrenaline killed my nausea when I struck the Duke, but it comes slithering back now, accompanied by horrifying flashes of what the Duke's men will do to me. I can't keep him for two hours without his men knowing. They find out I have him, they'll move the kids or kill them, then make me wish I'd never sucked down air. Then it's a long good night for Volga. I look around the room with its trophies and thudding music, and I laugh. Slag it. What the hell's so funny? She asks, annoyed. Life. Same as always, I sigh, knowing I'm going to die and knowing I made my peace with it hours ago. But maybe I can get the little shits out and Volga will walk free. Maybe. If you've got to leave the field, best to do it in style, Holly. Ephraim, tell those bastards to fly faster, I force a smile. Be seeing you. I close the connection. The Duke was listening, and he's recovered his senses, if not his looks. Why were the children? He spits blood at me. I wipe it off my face. Stay. I train the omnivore on him and fetch the bone saw from its table. Its shape is an acute triangle. Now, how does this work? I toggle the switch. The teeth saw the air with a low hum. A cauterizing laser glows above the teeth. You rat. Sorry, Slick, can't hear you. Speak up. Goggle! The music drowns out his voice. I slap him anyway and turn up the music with his data pad so his screams won't be heard outside the room. I come close to his ear and hold his right arm on the table. You killed one of mine. You owe a debt, Duke. He looks up at me. Kill me and she will skin you alive. I am a duke of the syndicate. Where are they? He just stares back, madness clawing out from inside his eyes. All right, time to collect. I lower the bone saw into his wrist. The saw shakes in my hand as the tiny teeth serrate flesh and bone. Blood hisses as the cauterizer burns, close the capillaries. He thrashes and drools, screaming like my friends did all those years ago. Being on the other end of the saw doesn't make the screams any better. I clap a hand over his mouth. Shh! You weren't meant for this sort of pain, I say in his ear. You feel too much. Your nerves are too raw. There's no shame in telling me. Where are the children? In the vault, he whimpers. Where is the vault? Two floors down. East wing. 
What is the combination? He hesitates. You have only one hand left, Sir Duke, I say. It's biometric, his teeth chatter. Voice and retinal. Shit. I was betting everything that he'd have them nearby as part of his collection. But I gauged him wrong. He sees me doing the mental math. You need me. You're right about that. Anyone guarding the vault? No. That's why we have a vault. I let him go, and he cradled his arm to his chest, whimpering in pain. There, there, I say. Let me see. Tentatively, he shows it to me, and as I bend to look at the damage done, he lurches up at me with something long and sharp emerging from under the skin of his left hand. I twitch my head at the last moment. Blade misses my throat but goes into my face, through my cheekbone, rattling along the upper right molars and sticking into the gums. He twists it. I grunt and stumble back as he tries to pull the wrist blade out and stab me again. I grab one of the spent wine bottles and swing it at him. The bottle hits him in the right cheekbone, collapsing the frail bone. He grunts and falls down to the ground, his body heaving from shock. I pull his blade out of my gums, hissing when it grates along the teeth and then slips out through the cheek. A subdermal blade. I hurl it to the ground and drool blood out of my mouth. The Duke is crawling away from me, his face bloody, stump on his right arm, weeping blood from the charred skin. Stupid F, stupid. I grab him by the back of his robe and hoist him up. He's feather-light. I shove the gun under his jaw. You try anything again, and I peel your head off at the root, I say through the blood. You're going to take me to the kids. Then I'm going to leave with them, and you can go back to your life. Do you understand? He looks at me with wild eyes. I slap him in the face. Do you understand, Duke? He nods. I drag the man to the door. I don't know how I convinced myself this would go more smoothly. Can't believe the extent of the plan was to call in the cavalry. Rolling in my own self-loathing, I tear off a piece of my shirt, ball it up and stick it into my mouth against the wound. My eyes tear up. Be slick. Calm down. But I can't stop the hammering of my heart. It feels like I'm going into cardiac arrest. Gotta move. With a finger trembling from adrenaline, I unlock and open the door. It hisses back. The hall is empty. No sign of thorns. I stare down the barrel of my trembling omnivore. Nothing moves after a minute. I guess they went together drink, I say with a laugh. Never trust a crow to do a grey's work. I push the duke forward, letting him lead a little through the halls. We pass a doorway where his bodyguards are watching a race and smoking. I grind the pistol into the back of the duke's head in case he might call out to them. Then we are passed, and to the lifts. My body is pulsing with adrenaline. I press the button and wait for the lift, my bloody fingers leaving a smudge. I'm about to wipe it off when voices come from around the corner. I drag the duke hard away from the lift to the hallway adjacent and hide around the corner just as the men come to the lift bank. They say she's coming tomorrow. 
Not just sending the collector? Thank Jove, no. I hate that pervert. Something wrong with him, down to the bone. Word is she's coming up from Lost City in the flesh to pay the Duke a call. Something to do with the big prize he just scored. I heard it was missiles. Idiot. It's not missiles, it's a howler. It's missiles. The howlers have all disappeared. Not all of them. Arrested a few on Mars and Earth and out on Mercury. Don't you watch the news? Why, you watch for me. What do you reckon she looks like? Big tits. Obsidians don't have tits. They have pectorals. I heard she was a white. The lift arrives and they disappear inside. When the doors close, I drag the Duke back out. The blood is still smeared on the call button. I wipe it off as I call another. Sweat slithers down my armpits. The next lift arrives, no one inside. We enter, and I press the button to carry us down. The doors take forever to close. My mouth aches with pain. The cloth is already saturated with blood. I spit it out and stick in another swab. The Duke stands quietly facing the doors. How do you think this ends? he asks. Probably with me in a furnace, I admit. They will catch you. The things they will do. If I'm caught, you won't be around to worry about me. She won't just torture you, Grey. She takes her time. His voice has caged the madness, but his fingers work at the bars. This job was supposed to end with me dead. If it comes down to it, I'll put the pistol in my mouth and eat iron. Better my way than theirs. I position myself behind the Duke and the doors open. I push him out and down quiet halls. Blood drips from my chin onto the floor. We come to a set of double doors, through which, ostensibly, is the vault. Remember, keep your head, I tell the Duke. He makes no reply. I lean past him to open the door and push him in. Three men lounge outside the vault, smoking burners in the windowless room. Their guns are on the table. They turn from their Karachi cards to see us, and they freeze. I shut the door behind me. Not a move, or I kill him, I say, just a little less surprised to see them than they are to see me. One twitches toward his weapon. He stops when he stares down the barrel of my Omni. They watch it like it's the head of a snake, eyes darting to me, their guns, the Duke. Not a move, I say, inching forward. Tell them to get on their bellies, I tell the Duke. Get on your, with a sudden scream, the Duke rears his head back into my nose. I hear a wet pop and see stars. Then I pitch sideways as the Duke throws himself onto my arm, resting the omnivore sideways. Kill him! He's screaming. Kill him, you fucking half-wits! I punch the Duke in the side of his head and wrench myself away from him so that he sprawls out in front of me. The obsidian has picked up his rail rifle and is raising it. I shoot wildly and miss. I stare down the barrel of the obsidian's rail rifle. I shoot again. The bullet lances forward at two kilometres a second, sparks off the tip of his rifle, and carries on to take off the top half of his head. The other men grab their guns. One crouches and fires a pulse rifle. 
The sound consumes the room. I fall to my belly as a stream of fists of rippling, translucent energy spew over my head, raining debris down on me. I fire from my belly on full auto. The bullets eat into his knee and torso, chewing half his body into a flopping, oozing mass. The last man drops his gun, surrendering. I stand, my eardrums throbbing, the smell of ozone thick in the room. Holes from the hot metal smoke in my suit's long tails. The last man, a brown, with tattoos consuming the left side of his face, holds up his hands. I shoot him in the chest. He flies back into the wall and drips down, his suit catching fire at the edges of the entry wound. The barrel of the omnivore smokes, so hot I can feel it on my knuckles. Sounds come to me like I'm underwater. Numb, I haul the duke from the ground and push him past the ruined bodies to the door as the brown's burning suit fills the room with smoke. My omni has one slug left. I strip open the magazine on the dead obsidian's rifle and push the larger caliber rounds into the hilt. I close the bottom and the autonomous forge heats the handle as it forms new slugs for the hungry gun. Open it! I push the barrel to the back of the duke's neck, singeing his flesh. He presses a series of commands into the door with his good hand. I'm out of my own body, numbed even to the pain of my mouth, the barbarism of the scene, and what the gun in my hand did, bringing back the hell of the block battles. I don't know how far the sounds went. A scanner slides open on the huge doorframe. The Duke presses his eye to the little light. It flashes, and the green positive code flickers on the door's display. A murder of crows is nary a flock, he says hoarsely. The light blinks yellow and requests he try again. He clears his throat desperately. A murder of crows is nary a flock. This time it takes. A second light blinks green on the display, and deep inside the door, the tumblers begin to rotate and metal bars roll back. With a satisfying thunk, the massive door unlocks. I edge past the duke and haul it open. I push him through. The inside of the vault makes me stumble. It's like the dragon hordes from one of Volga's little storybooks. Mountains of cash and jewels and priceless works of stolen art fill the cavernous metal chamber. A fifteen million credit diadem lies errant beside a stack of Titians and Renoirs and Philipses. A chest of gold razors lies open. Signet rings are heaped together like a child's collection of pebbles from an ocean shore. Samurai masks and framed documents in illegible cursive, and real ivory tusks, and precious gems as big as duck eggs. And amongst all this, in a clear space on the floor lies a cage, with a single mattress inside and plates of chicken bones, a half-empty jug of water, a bucket of human waste, and the most valuable children in all the world. Chapter 58 Ephraim Half-Breed and Hatchet-Face 
I rush to the children's cage. A curtain of humid, urine-filled air hits me as I enter the unventilated room. Throwing the duke down on the ground, I look through the cage to the boy and girl. The singing of my eardrums is fading. Hello, little humans. You might remember me. The girl spits at me. Syndicate scum! That's no way to welcome your saviour. Your mommy sent me to get you out. My mother, the boy says. Did I stutter? I realise then that I'm slurring my words. I spit out the rag. Bits of skin from the wound cling to it. If mother sent you, where are the lion guards? The boy asks. The telemanises? In the citadel, shining their armour and jacking it. How should I know? Are you a lurcher? Hell no. I bend to unclip the lock and then twist it so that the teeth of the lock disengage. I'm about to open it when I catch the girl's eyes again. I'm on your side, girlie. If you little brats want to see your parents again, you do just as I say. Otherwise, we'll all get peeled apart like onions for a stew. I watch them expectantly. This is the part where you nod. They both nod. First the boy, then the girl. Good. I open the latch and step back, keeping my gun trained on the duke. The girl bursts out, but the boy follows more tentatively, eyeing the duke and me curiously. He's more tender and scientific than the girl, it seems, more willing to cooperate. I'll talk to him. Then I feel something cold and metal against the back of my spine. I turn slightly and see the girl holding a solid razor to my back, which she must have fetched from the stack. I laugh at the size of it in her hands, but there's no humour in the pale girl's eyes. I'd call her bluff if I didn't know who her psychotic parents were. The kid is feral. Very smart, little lady. Kill your ticket out of here. I step away from the razor. She shuffles forward, the blade never leaving my spine. I look to the boy. Will you tell her to stop slagging about? We're wasting time. Electra, he's right. The girl twitches her blade to the side and cuts me shallowly on the arm. Damn it! I'm bleeding enough, I say. That's a down payment, she replies. She reaches into the box of razors, trying them till she finds another blade. She tosses it to the boy. He catches it nimbly and spins it in his small hands. Little warlords, I remind myself. What's our point of egress? The boy asks me, like he's a real soldier. There's a ship on a private dock two floors up, I say, holding up the key. There's also a main garage, but it'll be swarming with thorns. Place will already be swarming, the Duke says bitterly. Your dead flesh walking. He's right, the girl mutters. You made hell coming in here. Soane might not have travelled, I say hopefully. We heard it through the vault, Grey. What's your name? the boy asks me. My name? I laugh. Ephraim. He extends a small hand. The little half-breed is mocking me, but his eyes are sincere. I laugh again and take the small hand. 
There are no sigils on it, but I'm surprised by the calluses I find there. Pax, he says. Are the telemanuses alive? The rest of the staff? Don't know. I grab the Duke and haul him to his feet. Up, Highness, you're our human shield. I straighten his jacket and leave him between the little monsters with their razors at the mouth of the vault. The Duke cowers. He's already attacked me twice. I was surprised. I thought he'd wilt like a flower soon as I threatened him. Watch him for a moment. Stick him if he gets out of line. Immobilizing strike or just a flesh wound? The girl asks. Gory hell, just watch him, little psycho. The boy grows quiet and serious as he sees the bodies outside the vault. Unfazed, the girl turns back impatiently as I cram the bag I brought full of gems and bearer bonds. It breaks my heart to see how little I can fit in the bag and how much loot I'll leave behind. I could spend days in here. Place would have melted Sierra's circuits. What are you doing? the girl says, scowling. Sorry, I have a problem. I zip shut the bag and throw it up on my shoulder. I contemplate taking a razor for a souvenir, but the things are damn terrifying, so I settle for an old iron ring with a three-headed dragon snarling out from its surface. I'm about to leave when I catch sight of a familiar splash of blue and yellow paint on a canvas out of the corner of my eye. It can't be. Gray, we have to go. I ignore her and rifle through the stacked canvases, tossing several million credits worth of paintings on the ground and pull out a small framed oil-on-canvas painting. I laugh incredulously at the picture of Dali's dread monster. In bright, cracked colours, soft watches drape over a tree branch and against the corner of a brown shelf. It is la persistencia de la memoria. I'm suddenly conscious of the blood on my fingers. Grey, the girl shouts. Wiping my hands, I carefully cut open the back of the frame and slide the canvas out, rolling it gently and slipping it into the bag. Feeling a bit lighter, I join the children. I once investigated this claim. They said it was lost in a fire, I say with a laugh. I knew they were lying. Stealing even now? The girl sneers. You're disgusting. Quiet, hatchet face. I grab the Duke by the back of his collar and push him through the entry room to all the double doors. Everyone stick close to me. If anyone comes close, you stab them right in the jewels. Understand? They both nod. The boy is a model of concentration. He paled when he saw the bodies I left on the floor but now he's lowered his head in anger. Same dead-set jaw as his father, but his hands shake as they hold the too large razor. Pretend to be spawn of the reaper all he likes. He's just a terrified boy. You ready, little monsters? They nod. I look at the closed door leading out of the antechamber back into the hall and feel the dread of what lies beyond it seep into me. Let's go. We open the door. Half a dozen guns roar. The door shakes and wood shatters as bullets and energy chew into it. I slam close the door and duck with the children, hauling the duke down into my lap. You blind idiot, I shout over the duke's head. 
I have your duke. No one responds from the other side. You, peek out there, I tell the girl. Her eyes widen. What? You're the most expendable. Look out there and tell me what you see. Slag you. Fine. I grab the duke and shove him out, then jerk him back. What do you see? Fuck you. Will no one cooperate? I'll do it, Pack says. Before he can move, the girl shoves him back and darts her head to look through the holes in the door, then dips back to shelter. Four obsidian braves, six greys, three browns, six EFC-37 rifles, two GR-19 pistols, two Eagle 4 PR-117s, a Vulcan 8K pulse fist. Couldn't make out the rest. I stare at her. So, no dolls for you, huh? Was this your plan? She asks. How is this your plan? Yap, yap, yap. You're the one who got kidnapped, dumbass. I rise to a crouch and push my gun against the Duke. Tell them not to shoot. Don't shoot. Louder, obviously. He glares at me like he has a choice. I grab his balls through his robe and twist. Don't shoot! This is your duke! Don't shoot! I dare a quick peek out through the door. A row of thorns clog the hallway. They look at each other in confusion. Tell them to put their weapons on the ground. Put your weapons on the ground! I look out again. Well, look at that. They're obeying. We're coming out, I say. I push the duke up and rise myself, using him as a shield keeping an arm around his throat and the gun to his head. We shuffle out the door. I have to kick it open. Their fusillade knocked it half off its hinges. The children follow. Well, this is a bit awkward, I say, facing the line of cutthroats. Some are in their dusters, others look just roused from bed by the commotion. Their guns litter the floor. I need you to back away, down the hall. Then put your sacks and clams to the floor. If anyone rises or looks at me in a way that displeases me, I'll relieve the Duke of his head. Crystal? The men look to the Duke. Do it! he hisses. Obey him! The thorns back away from their weapons and lie on the floor. There's four obsidians amongst them. Those I watch most carefully. Gorgo isn't there. Not good. We move quickly through the seeded floor. Pax grabs a small plasma pistol from the ground. The girl turns up her nose at this in favour of her razor. They follow tight behind me as I lead them to the lift bank. Electra hits the button with her razor's hilt. Pax's pistol suddenly goes off. The sound explodes in my ear. Plaster rains from the ceiling. Half-breed? What the hell was that for? I snarl. One of them was reaching for something. Well, then shoot him, not the ceiling. The lift dings behind me. We back into it. The Duke laughs a little mad laugh to himself, but says nothing of substance. The children are terrified, even the nasty girl. Professional recommendation, I say, looking back at the boy. Use that pistol on her, then yourself, if it looks like we're slagged. He looks down at the pistol. The girl glares at me, 
just trying to help. There's no one waiting for us on the Duke's level. Word must have travelled, but still I expected Gorgo. We move quickly through the abandoned halls and make it back to the Duke's suite. Our dinner still sits on the table. Electra grabs a handful of octopus tentacle and jams it into her mouth as we pass. We access the patio outside, crossing a small gravel park with swirling white angel trees to reach the Duke's sparkling CR-17 hornet. There's no sign of any thorns. Something's off. I keep the Duke between me and the building. Then I have an epiphany. They're in the ship, I say. Don't. Pax activates the door controls and the door hisses upward, revealing a dark interior. No one comes from inside. I look back to the building, not seeing any pursuers. Then I catch the glint of metal. Three stories up through a plate glass window, I see Gorgo's pale face to the side of a long barrel. There's a small flash. The window shatters. In this moment, I suddenly realise why Gorgo smiled when I called him the Duke's man. Something that feels like a hot hammer hits me in the right side of my chest. Everything goes very quiet and focused. Confused, I rock back on my heels, barely moved, and sway with the Duke. Like we're slow dancing. I take a step backward, trying to pull the Duke into the ship. My heel catches and I fall backward, with the Duke on top of me. I stare at the back of his head and part of the sky and breathe his hair. I try to push him off and get up, but he doesn't move. I try to crawl out from under him. The Duke is making a rattling sound with his mouth. I crawl free of him and twist myself to my belly to try to stand. I can't get up. My right arm is too weak to push. Help, I say distantly, quietly, confused at why I can't rise. Help! I'm not even sure who I'm talking to. I feel hands under my arms, the boys hauling at me to get me up. I almost tip over again. Leave him, the girl cries. Come on, the boy shouts in my ear. I push with my legs and use him to stumble toward the door, leaving the duke behind to bleed out on the edge of the ramp. I feel better with each step. The girl stands there with her legs spread, both hands on the boy's stolen pistol, firing wildly up at the window. The panes around Gorgo vaporize. Another shot from Gorgo slithers under my left ear, taking the bottom of the lobe. It slams into the metal of the ship and ricochets till it embeds itself in the floor. I duck away from the door, now inside the ship's main hall. Must fly away. We have to take off, I say. With the boy following, I stumble to the cockpit and then sit down in the captain's chair. I stare at the controls, acclimating. I push the key in and twist. Lights come on the console. Greetings, your ethereal majesty, the vessel purrs. I press the engine ignition. The hornet's twin ion engines thrum to life. Close the door, the girl is shouting. Close the gory damn door! I look for the ramp retraction button and can't find it, still dazed. The boy reaches past me from the co-pilot seat and presses it. I feel the ramp retract into the ship. He asks me something. I turn to look at him. Hm? Can you fly? He asks me. 
Of course I can fly. I reach for the elevation thruster controls and activate them. The Hornet levitates up off the landing pad. I push forward on the main engine throttle and we rocket away from the landing pad out into Endymion's cityscape. Gory hell, the girl says. The tower shrinks behind us. That was manic. You prime, Electra? Pax asks. She nods. Is the Duke dead? I ask. Hell if I know, the girl replies. Where are you taking us? The boy asks. Back to the Hyperion. It'll take us an hour's flight time in this. I can get your mummy's men to rendezvous halfway. Syndicate will have this thing tracked, but short of military ships, nothing can catch a hornet. Long as we don't set down, we're safe, and you're home to mummy. We should hail the local watchman, the boy says, and roll the dice that they're not on the syndicate payroll. I thought your parents were geniuses. They are, I grunt. Mustn't be genetic. They're both staring at me funny. What? I ask. Got something on my face? Are you prime? The boy asked me. I'm shiny. Shiny? He asked. Dog tongue, the girl says. You don't look shiny. You look like you're going to die. A regular font of cheer you are. A localised burning pain on my right pectoral begins to grow and grow until it's a horrendous agony. My entire chest is starting to cramp. Something wet and hot trickles down my flank and soaks into my underwear. I look down and see a small hole in my suit. I stick a finger in and feel a sharp pain on the torn skin. It comes away covered with blood. Cool shock ignites in my cells from my nipples down through my legs and toes, like I'd been dunked in ice water. Oh, I've been shot, I say. It must have gone through the duke into me. It seems obvious now, but in the moment I couldn't figure what happened. Have you been shot before? Pax asked warily. Not exactly. Congratulations, you just saw me get my cherry popped, I say through chattering teeth. It hurts worse by the minute I look down at the wound. I thought I'd go into shock sooner. Fighting alongside the sons, I saw golds bleed out from scrap metal to the thigh. Others I've seen take bullets or pulse blast to the face and keep ticking with half their jaws hanging off. A red once kept fighting for an hour with his arm a shredded stump from a grenade. Died after, but still. Everyone is different. I'm a little proud of myself. But the pride is quickly eaten up by fear. The wound is bad and there's no exit hole on my back. My fingertips are going cold. My teeth rattle together and the pain becomes unimaginable. I look over at the children who talk amongst themselves as we fly over the manufacturing districts of Endymion, areas hard hit by the Battle of Luna and not as well loved by Quicksilver, and wonder if they know how bad the wound is. I shift over to the ship's holopad, which rests to the right of the flight control console, and tap in Holiday's number from memory. She answers the call almost immediately. I face her, the Sovereign, and several others. Ephraim, she says in relief, did you... Right here, 
I say. I expand the camera view to include the entire cockpit so they can see the children too. Pax, the sovereign says, her voice almost breaking. Tears fill the gold's obnoxiously symmetrical eyes. I'm here, mother. Did they hurt you? No, he lies. I'm safe. The sovereign looks to someone off camera. Call Victra. Tell her Electra is alive. She'll hit the syndicate if she knows. I'm counting on it. The sovereign looks back to the camera. Where are you, Ephraim? Send us your coordinates and my men will rendezvous. No, I say. I'm not going to risk you shutting me in prison. Release Volga, and soon as she's safe and tidy, I'll dump the kids on a rooftop. Then your men can find them. That wasn't what we agreed upon. Tough, bloody look. You're bleeding everywhere, Electra says. She looks past me. He's going to crash the ship anyway. I'll trust a back-alley yellow's clinic before I'll trust a gull's word, I sneer. We're going to the Citadel, Pax says from behind me. Maybe you didn't hear... I turn and find the tip of a razor centimetres from my right eyeball. He stands in a fencer's position. Comply, citizen, or I'll be forced to learn how to fly a ship. Chapter 59 Lyria Forgiveness From a balcony, I watch a squadron of ripwings rise from the palatine landing pads up into the night. Their engines plume blue and shrink in the distance, leaving the citadel wall behind and crossing the trees toward Hyperion. The children are safe, and so is Ephraim. My own relief in knowing the bastard lives comes as a surprise to me. I've never been the forgiving type, but I feel pity for the man and his pain. I recognised the fear in him when he saw the obsidian the Sovereign's men captured. He's a man, like my father, like my brothers, raised in a place without love, trampled by the same clumsy republic that brought us from the mines. I can't hate him any more than I can hate myself. Maybe that isn't forgiveness, but it's all I have to give. Just because he has pain doesn't mean he should bring others into it. That's on him. Holiday stands motionless beside me, watching the ships, a wistful expression caged by the hard lines of her face. The Sovereign held her back from the mission, says it was because she hasn't slept in forty-eight hours, but even I know it's because of Holiday's connection to Ephraim. There's no forgiveness in the hard woman. I wonder if she was always this intense. What odds did you give him? I ask. At first I think she doesn't hear me and might be listening to the pilots and commandos on her internal calm. Then I realise she's just ignoring me. I don't gamble, she says after a moment. Course you don't. Ephraim won't die she says. He blessed or something, touched by the veil. No, not blessed, she says distantly. 
He used to work for the sons, you know, joined after my brother died. Her voice is slow and robotic. Served as a recruiter before becoming a scar hunter. Back before House Loon fell. Before the Battle of Ilium, even. When the Society's agents owned this moon, he brought in people like you. Like me. He taught them how to fight. How to survive so they could take back just some of what been taken from them. After Luna fell to the Rising, he was given a mission in Endymion to find a gold who was organizing raids. It was a trap. They interrogated his men in front of him, skinned them alive, and made him watch. By the time we got there, he was the only one left. The gold was captured with the peeling knife in hand. She pauses, disliking the memory. But... The gold had information the Sovereign needed. Information he exchanged for a full pardon. Ephraim watched the man who skinned his friends walk free. She looks at me. Point is, Ephraim wants to die, but he can't. That's his curse. That's why you took the obsidian, I say. Because he couldn't watch another friend die? She shrugs. I know where to hurt. There's no regret in her eyes. She seems a person made all of flint and iron, one who came into the world full-born, without mother or father or past or future. Less a woman than shovel or an axe. If there is more than that to her, she would never show it to me. What sort of person does that make you? I ask. She doesn't answer immediately. She points east to the new forum on the far side of the citadel grounds. The domed building is pale in the night and rises out of the trees around it like a hill of snow, stark in contrast with the brutal lines of the pyramid forum the society used. Beautiful, isn't it? I nod. She stares on at it. You think clean hands built it? The Sovereign is in conference with Theodora and Daxo when we join them. I keep my distance from both pink and gold, my arm still itching from the torture. Above the table, a map shows the progress of the squadron toward the stolen shuttle. The Sovereign watches it coolly as she converses with Theodora, but I can sense the underlying tension in her. Her eyes are bloodshot and heavy bags have formed under them. Coffee cups and the remnants of a meal littered the table. How long can a gold go without sleep? Could not have done this alone, Daxo is saying to Theodora. He cuts short when he sees me enter the room with Holiday. Continue, the Sovereign says. Daxo hesitates for a moment with me in the room. The Syndicate is working with someone. I recommend we conceal this from the Senate until we know more. My spies will have names by the morning. 
heads by the end of the week. Theodora, the sovereign asks. You know my thoughts, she says. The longer we hold this from the Senate, the more it discredits the transparency you promised them. Senator Caraval is already inquiring about the unusual traffic over Hyperion. It's stupid to go before them until my son is safe here by my side, the Sovereign says. I won't have those men saying a mother can't govern when her child is in danger. They'll smear me and call a referendum to make me step down before the vote. With Caraval and the coppers lost, we're going to lose six to seven... My veto is all that can stop this absurd peace process. Who would replace you? Theodora asks. The Senate would vote. Majority rules until next election, Daxo answers. Until we know who did it, there will be suspicion that this is a ploy to delay the vote, Theodora says. I already know who did it, the Sovereign replies. Theodora and Daxo exchanged confused glances. The syndicate was hired. But by whom? Who has the most to gain? She waits for an answer. None comes. It was the Ash Lord. He can't beat our legions, so he's after our Senate. Darrow was right. This happened because I was weak, because I was tired. I never should have let the Vox chase him away. She focuses back on the hollow of her son's ship, making its way back to Hyperion, her long fingers tapping her side. Lyria, she says, eyes boring into me. I don't bow my head this time, but stare back at her, knowing this is when the axe falls. Yet her tone surprises me. You made a dire mistake, girl, one that should end your service to me, to anyone. But without you, we would not have found this vulgar and... She spares a glance to Holiday, Ephraim. Soon my boy will be back with me, because you were brave enough to own your mistakes. I must now own mine. How could she ever understand what her mistakes cost me? She's lost her son for a few days and she thinks she knows. She'll never know the mud, the flies... You lost your family, she says. You trusted the Republic, and we broke that trust. Then I'm struck dumb. She goes to a knee, her eyes on the ground. I do not deserve it, nor must you give it, but I ask all the same. Will you forgive us? Will you forgive me for not doing better? Forgive her? I don't understand the idea, nor do her counsellors. They gawp down at her, as off-footed as I am. Her golden braids are even with my eyes. There's loose strands, the faint, earthy smell of oil and the coffee from her breath. I hear the air enter her mouth and fill her lungs and whistle out her nose, see her shoulders rise and fall. The power is shed, her naked soul there in front of me. She's just a woman, just a mother with more children than any other. Maybe she does know my pain, 
Before this, she was a freedom fighter, a soldier. It's easy to forget that. She's seen mud, and now I think she remembers it. I can't hold on to the anger or the pettiness or the pain. I want only to help her, to protect families like mine. Letting go of that anger doesn't spit on the memories of Ava or Tyran or the children. It honours them. And for the first time I can remember, I feel hope. With a trembling hand, I reach and touch her head. She stands afterwards. Thank you. I nod, unable to put what's inside me into words that don't sound stupid. A storm is coming to the Republic, she says softly. This was just the first breath. You still have a part to play in all of this? What could I ever hope to do? I ask. You have a voice, don't you? When I go before the Senate, I will need you as a witness. Your testimony will save lives. It will bring the men behind this to justice. Will you help me, Lyria of Lagalos? If you promise me that Liam will be looked after and his eyesight given to him, I know there's a way, but I don't have the money. She looks down in amusement. Are you negotiating with me? I won't help you if you don't help him. Very well. It's agreed. I spit in my hand and stick it out to her. She looks down at it in surprise, then shakes my hand. I'm guided by Holiday to the door. There I turn back around. I wonder, could I see Cavix? No, the Sovereign says. I don't think that would be a very good idea right now. I nod and follow Holiday out of the room. At the doorway to my room, I stop. Could you tell Liam I'm all right? I ask her. He must have been worried. He was told you were on an errand for Cavix, she says. He wasn't worried. All the same, could I see him? I won't say a thing to him. I'm sorry. It was risk enough bringing you to speak with Ephraim. We can't have any more security risks. She watches my face fall without sympathy. Then a sigh escapes from her thin lips. What if I take candy or little cake or something and say it's from you? Would that cheer you up? You'd do that. She shrugs. What's his favorite flavor? Chocolate. All right. I wait expectantly, looking up at her. What? You want a hug? Get inside. She shoves her fingers against the opening mechanism. The door slides into the wall. Oh, I say, and step in. Thank you for the... The door shuts in my face. Fucking greys, I mutter. The room is not grand, but it's clean and has a full water bathroom. Exhausted, I turn on the water to the shower till steam rises. I wriggle out of my borrowed clothes, awkward with the shoulder sling, and stand under the stream of hot water, thinking of how lucky I am to be alive, to not be on the run.
You'd be proud of me, Ava. Ma, I know that. And there's more I can do. Help the Sovereign till this is through. And maybe we can bring all those bastards down. But it wasn't the Syndicate who killed my family. Whatever happens here, those red-hand butchers will go unpunished. How can that be fair? How can it be right? I turn off the shower and stand near the exit fence so the hot air can evaporate the water from my stomach and breasts. When I open my eyes, I see a pair of white maid shoes on the wet white tile. My eyes track upward. The woman is a brown in her mid-thirties with two great moles, a hooked nose and a bird nest of hair. She holds a gun in her hand. At the end of it is a large hypodermic needle that she pulls out of my chest. I take a step toward her and lose my footing. I don't even feel the ground come up to greet me. The world fogs and spins, and the last I see is the woman patting my face. Hello, traitor. House Barker sends their regards. Chapter 60 Darrow Ashes to Ashes Apollonius, Severo, and I cut our way through the fortress guards. It seems most of the manpower was sent to fight beyond the walls, likely to stop Apollonius's forces from ever making landfall. Those who remain offer thin resistance to our combined violence. After shattering a trio of gold bodyguards near the gravlifts, we divide to search more efficiently for the Ash Lord. Several and I stick together while Apollonius sets off on his own. The search does not take long. This has to be it, Several says outside a set of double doors gilded with gold. They will be stained inside, I say. We should wait for Apollonius. You need him to wipe your ass, too, Several asks. He kicks open the doors. Time for your bill, ass lord. The room is quiet. Despite the decadent floral mouldings and whitewashed walls, the room is cavernous and sparse, but for a large four-poster bed that looks out an open balcony window to the sea. A pulse shield ripples faintly outside the windowsill. Around the bed squat a legion of hulking polymelian forms, at first I think they are knights, but as a column of light from the outer suite illuminates the grey metal, I realise that they are not men at all, but medical machines. Small displays glow with life readings. An old pink in a nightgown and two brown servants holding fire pokers guard the foot of the bed, shielding its inhabitant from us. The browns charge, screaming at the top of their lungs, we take them down, trying not to kill them with our metal-covered fists. The pink at the bed is wailing. No! she screams. Stay away from him! I pull her from in front of the bed as Severo approaches it warily. She slashes at me with her nails, breaking them against my armor. Monsters! Her spit sprays my face. You monsters! Severo punches her in the back of the head. I catch her as she drops to the floor. 
A deathly stench fills the room. Severo stands at the base of the bed, his hand pulling back the silk curtains. His face is pale. Darrow. He jerks the silk curtains off the frame so I can see. On the bed, lying in a nest of blankets, are the remnants of a giant. When I met the Ash Lord as a lancer to Augustus, he stood over seven feet in height and weighed as much as a Telemannus. At that time he was edging past a hundred, but he was still stately and spry, despite his girth. That vigour he retained throughout our many bouts in the early stages of the war, and though his face has spoken on core broadcasts over the last years, I see now that it was a ruse, and why he hides here in his sea-swept citadel. Barely a third of the man remains. What does is emaciated and skeletal. His arms have shrunken in on themselves, the muscle withered away. The skin, once dark as onyx, is now loose and scabrous with yellow flakes, oozing pus into white bandages. His once bright eyes are sunken into his head, which is bald, the skin tight and dry like a thin layer of scale over his titanic skull. Wires and fluid lines connect to the machines that guard his bed, cycling his blood and removing his waste. It's as if he has been devoured from inside. I wondered who knocked, he murmurs. His eyes, stained with a rotten yellow infection, watch me without malice. A hologram floats beside his bedside, showing us the battle outside. I thought it was the Saud, finally come to reclaim their planet. But now I see it ends as it should, with wolves. The simple words brook no anger. The voice alone remembers the man. It is drum-deep, defiant, and proud, even trapped as it is in his wasted body, like summer thunder captured in a tattered paper lantern. For ten years we've been adversaries, have danced across the worlds in a never-ending duel, each move counted by the other, then recounted in one giant game on many boards, first the metal jungle of Luna, the plains and seas of Earth and Mars, then the core orbits, till finally the sand belt of Mercury, where I took the planet and he broke my army. Now all those vast theatres and the millions of men shrink down to this moment, to this small room on this far-flung isle, and none of it makes any bloody damn sense. Am I not as you expected? he asks with a smile. Let's just cut his head off, Severo says. Not yet. What are we waiting for? This piece of shit needs to meet the worms. Not yet, I snap. Severo paces around the bed in agitation. You are precisely what I expected, the Ash Lord says. The destroyer of a civilization too often resembles its founders. 
He wets his mouth from a water-feeding tube and follows that up with a grotesque clearing of his throat. I must apologize, Darrow, for not seeing you sooner, when you are just a boy who broke his institute. Had I opened my eyes and noticed you, what a world we would still have. But I see you now. Yes, and you are immense. It's admiration in his voice. It's familiarity. How few people left breathing could understand this man— how many men know what it is like to give a command that kills millions? I swallow, my hatred for him quieted by the wretched thing he's become, and my fear at heading down the same broken road. This is not how I pictured our final confrontation. What happened to you? I ask. How long have you been like this? The Ash Lord ignores the question and searches my face. I see you kept our scar and our eyes. Then what of the red remains? Enough. Ah, he says quietly. I suppose that is what every man must tell himself in war. His voice rasps and he sucks again on the water tube. That there will be an end, and when it is done, enough of himself will remain, enough to be a father, a brother, a lover. But we know it isn't true, don't we, Darrow? War eats the victor's last. His words make a heaviness settle on me. I wish I could say I was different than him, that I will survive this war. But I know day by day the boy inside is dying, the spirit that ran through the halls of Lycos that curled with Eo in bed. He began to die the day he watched his father dangle from a noose and did not cry. It's a price I'm willing to pay to be done with you, I say. That is part of your red genetic character, your yearning, your need to sacrifice. Brave pioneer, toil, dig, die for the good of humanity, to make Mars green. We designed you to be the perfect slave, and that's what you are, Darrow a slave with many masters. Change your eyes, take our scar, break our reign. It won't change what you are at your core, a slave. Bombs rumble outside. Severo spits at the corner, nearing the end of his patience. Lorne once said you were his greatest friend, I say, that you were once a man to be admired, before Rhea, before you crowned yourself with ash. Rhea was a rational transaction. Sixty million lives to keep order for eighteen billion. His shrunken lips curl. 
What do you think Lorne would have done if he saw what you were? Do you really think he would have spared you? No, I think he would have cut my heart out, I say. He could walk away from his society, but he would never let it fall. I hear a sound at the door. Apollonius enters, alone. The Ash Lord's eyes darken with hate. But in seeing the state of his nemesis, Apollonius does not look as dismayed as he should. Ah, I see the Ash Lord has become most literal indeed. Apollonius sits on the edge of the bed and pulls back the sheets to see the cadaverous legs of the old warlord. He makes a clucking sound with his tongue and prods the flaking skin at the thigh, peeling off a small strip of the scale and grinding it between the metal fingers of his gauntlets till a fine powder sprinkles the bed. Did the bite hurt? So it was you, the Ash Lord murmurs. Atlantia did not believe me. Even from the deep, I have teeth, Apollonius says. I served nobly, without deceit or graft. But you betrayed me to steal from me. You turned my blood against me. That, my goodman, was a dire mistake. I feel a reptilian fear slipping into me. I back away from Apollonius. Severo points his pulse fist at him. You knew he was like this, and you did not tell me, I say. You son of a bitch! Severo hisses. Apollonius smiles. The warden did not just buy me tomatoes and whores. You're dead, shithead. But Severo doesn't fire. I did not know it worked, Apollonius says innocently. But I am delighted by the results. The Ash Lord tries to spit at him, but the feeble saliva catches on his own chin. Is revenge worth sounding the death knell of your race, spoiled cur? My race? Apollonius stands. No, no, my lord. I am a race unto myself. How long ago? I ask, grabbing Apollonius by the throat. How long ago did you do this? Three years, he says, not liking my hands on him. Are we not allies any longer? He steps back measuredly, touching his throat. At the news, Severo looks light-headed. Three years. Three years like this. He can't have led his men or fleets on Mercury from here. The time delay would make battle command impossible. But how then did they resist me for so long? Who commanded them? Who is responsible for their new tactics? Who was really behind the hollows of him on his bridge when he spoke those half-dozen times? Yes, the Ash Lord rasps, as if he can hear my thoughts. Do you feel the dread yet, slave? Knowing you came all this way, fractured your republic, your family, made a pact with this devil.
to kill a sick old man at the end of his days. I fight the urge to scream. I feel like I'm falling. What a waste. What an unbelievable waste. Who was it? I ask. The Ash Lord looks at Apollonius. Who else? The only daughter you have left me. Atlantia, I whisper. My last fury. He smiles with pride. You destroyed her home. You murdered her sisters. Now you come to take her father. She was a frivolous girl. She would have lived in peace, Darrow, but you have brought her nothing but war. He mocks me. All of this for nothing, several murmurs to himself. We killed Wolfgar for nothing. We came all this way. Darrow. I don't know what to say. Where is Atlantia now? Apollonius asks. Far from here, the Ashlord says. The peace talks were her idea. She expected you to dissolve the Senate, take the reins, but you left. You should have gone to your fleet, Darrow. There were too few ships in orbit. I assumed most were on the far side of the planet. But now I know what he means. Impossible, I say. They would have been detected. He smiles. Ten years ago, you came upon Luna from the fog of war. She will fall upon your fleet over Mercury. It is at half strength because of your... tantrum in your Senate. It will burn, and your fabled army on the surface will burn. Something inside me knows that he is right, because it would be too fine a world for this to end with him today. If Atlantia has led his forces... If they are en route to destroy the Republic forces, then the war is not ending. It is beginning again. Around and around it goes. I do not know if the Republic can last another blow. It is my fault. I never should have launched the Iron Rain. But for hubris, for so many reasons... I let the rain fall, and it has not stopped since. I shattered my family, killed Wolfgar, came here all for nothing. The Ash Lord watches me realize this with little satisfaction. There is no joy in his final moments, no cruel relish, just a great exhaustion. Orion and Virginia have to know that Atlantia is coming, I say numbly. We have to go. Do you think I would tell you this if you could hope to influence it? Darrow, we have to let them know, Severo says. You came all the way here, the Ash Lord continues, across the great ink 
thinking you could kill me and return home to your family. But now there is nothing to return to. No republic. No family. No family, I echo. Severo takes a step forward. Say that again? You left your children behind, didn't you? Several lurches forward and grabs him by the neck. What the hell are you talking about? The Ashlord smiles at him, their faces inches apart. You are like me in the end. I spent my children for my war, and now so have you. Severo's grip goes slack. Your daughter, he looks at me, and your son, they have been taken. No. My fingers curl around the wood post of this rotted man's bed, and I feel the shifting of something inside me, the whisper of formless dread that attends when I wake from a horrible nightmare and for a moment forget my human delusions and see the world for as cold a place as it really is. Dark, hollow wind channels through my heart, and I know I have lost. I left my boy behind. You're lying, several whispers. We're each in our little worlds of dread, each sinking into the darkness, each unable to grasp, to believe that he is telling the truth. This is the spite of a dying man. That is all it can be. That is all I can accept. You're lying, Severo says again. His face is milk pale. But he's not. There is too much satisfaction in him. Was it you? I whisper. If only it was one of yours. Who? The Ash Lord watches me and then turns his large head to look away from me out to the bright sea, where his spirit has already fled. Lon was right, he says in a rough whisper. The bill comes at the end. Who took my son? I shout. Who? With an animal scream, Severo launches himself past me and slams his fist into the Ash Lord's face. Again and again, till blood coats Severo's hands to his wrists and the Ash Lord's lips are mangled. I pull at Severo. He hits me right in the jaw. I hold on, sagging against him as he hyperventilates. He shoves me off, wheeling back to the Ash Lord with his razor drawn. We need him alive, I shout. We need to know more. There's a soft pop, and I look back to the Ash Lord to see foam bubbling from his mouth. He spits a false tooth onto the sheets. Apollonius picks it up and brings it to his nose. Poison. Who stole my child? I say, gripping him. Tell me. He smiles, baring his rotting gums. He won't talk, Apollonius says. Severo grunts. 
doesn't mean he gets to go easy. I agree with the half-breed, Apollonia says. He grabs something from atop one of the medical machines. A bottle of antibacterial spray the nurses must have used on the equipment. He takes one of the candles from beside the bed. No. The Ash Lord's eyes are wide with fear. His words slurred from the poison. Apollonius. I move toward him. Several shoves me back. Burn the bastard, he sneers. But Apollonius looks to me. Reaper. The sorrow in me is fathomless. I killed Wolfgar. I broke my family. I lost my son. For this rotted slaver. Burn him. No! The Ash Lord tries to rise from his bed. Stop! Ashes to ashes. Apollonius turns the canister so it points at the Ash Lord. Dust to dust. He depresses the canister's release button. Antibacterial residue hisses out onto the Ash Lord, coating him in chemical sheen. Then Apollonius tosses the candle onto the bed. Blue fire explodes as the candle flame catches the alcohol. The Ash Lord screams. Fire races over the dry husk of his skin. He flails against the inferno like a thrashing mantis, his skin contracting and boiling and swelling and blackening as the air of the room fills with acrid smoke. The plastic tubes connected to his gut and arm snap taut and jerk the medical machines toward the bed. Apollonius stands back from the horror in delighted satisfaction. The inferno dances in his eyes and casts maniacal shadows over his high cheekbones. Beside Severo, I feel no satisfaction, only a gaping loneliness. All the friends and families tattered and torn by my war, my choices. Anguish saws at me inside with crueler teeth than these flames, and as the Ash Lord breathes his last, I turn from the murder, as lost as I was when I walked the scaffold seventeen years ago and felt the rope around my neck. All I wanted to be then was a father, and now my son is lost. Chapter 61 Lysander, the Moon Lord The idle chatter that fills the Hall of Justice in the Ionian Gold's capital city of Sungrave evaporates when Romulus Alra enters the room. He comes in dignified silence, clad in a grey kimono of rough-spun wool. Flanking him are his loyal kin, misshapen Marius, ancient Pandora, a host of die-hard praetors and white-haired veterans. What is missing and notably absent is the younger generation, those of my age or thereabouts, the brilliant students of the post-rising generation all cluster worshipfully around Serafina, her dust-walkers, and several other notable captains of Ganymede, Callisto, Europa, and a contingent from Saturn's and Uranus's moons up in the stone stadium seats. The Hall of Justice itself is a dark treasure. All its surfaces are faced in a shiny black stone. The nave is triangular, the south, north, and west aisles steeped stadium rows. 
The towering ceiling narrows until it makes a pyramid, the peak of which is iron. In the winnowing east chancel, twelve Olympic knights sit cross-legged in a bowed line on an elevated white marble podium, looking out at the nave. Each wears a long cape in harmony with their title. Diomedes's is storm grey. Helios's is brilliant white. Behind them, a marble, gold-tipped pyramid floats. The old justice sits to the right of the pyramid in her living chair of elm. The young chance from the duel sits to the left in her chair of bone. One remembers, one promises. After a welcoming benediction and customary rites, Romulus and his men take their seats in the centre of the nave on thin cushions. He has been set apart at the peak of the forty others. Helios, our luxe Arab knight of the Olympics, stares out from the shadow of his cape like an imperious falcon, long-necked, bald but for a long white moustache, the ends of which are held together by two iron clasps. Diomedes sits at his right hand. A toadish woman with huge eyes sits to his left wearing the badge of the Rage Knight. Romulus, Helios begins, his voice a hammer and lacking the nuance for duplicity. Sovereign of the Rim Dominion, Dominatus of House Ra, you have been brought before the Olympic Council for an impartial hearing on charges brought against you by your accuser, Dido Aura. Alone, Dido sits beneath the council, cloaked all in black. To accuse before the council is a perilous endeavour. If Dido's charges are deemed false, she will suffer the fate that would have befallen the man were he convicted. Draconic. Accuser, present your charges. Dido stands without flourish. First, gross negligence during wartime. The Olympics wait for her to continue the list, but she sits down. Whispers are exchanged in the crowd. She brings no charge of treason, just as she said she would not. She played everyone like a sitter. Once her husband is forced to step down or accept co-rule, she will solidify her position. I overhear the two men next to me voicing a different opinion. Base cowardice on her not bringing treason charges, one says. Nepotism there, he knew, he had to know. The room quiets as Helios confirms. You seek no charge of treason? I do not, she says, nothing more, and watches her husband evenly. Very well. The accuser may present her evidence or witnesses for the charge of gross negligence during wartime. This first evidence you may have heard by now. She throws the hollow up into the air and plays Seraphina's evidence of the reaper's deception to predictable silent response. Romulus sits implacable on the ground, watching the docks die in the air above him and bathe him in the brilliant light. The next item of evidence is Romulus's own communication with Darrow, taken from the sealed communications records of the Battle of Ilium. Romulus's helmet cam feed appears in the air. He's in a hallway filled with smoke. Dying men writhe on the ground around him as he stands, armor spattered in blood, surrounded by mechanized golds and obsidians in the middle of a firefight. His two sons, Diomedes and Aeneas, provide cover for him as he makes a desperate call to Darrow. His face is frantic with fear. Darrow, listen carefully. The Colossus has altered trajectory and is headed for Ganymede. He's going for the docks. Can any ships intercept? The Reaper asks. No, they're out of position. If Octavia can't win, she'll ruin us. Those docks are my people's future. You must take that bridge at all costs. I'll do my best, are the last words of the Reaper. Thank you, Darrow, and good luck. First cohort on me. The connection to Darrow cuts out and we see from Romulus's headcam as he and his sons charge down the hallway. A blinding flash of light goes off. The hull to the right ruptures open, and Aeneas, Romulus's eldest, is speared through the side of his head by a fragment of metal and then sucked out to space. The clip ends. On the floor, Romulus sits in solemn silence. One final clip is loaded. 
It is a conversation between Romulus and Darrow after the Battle of Ilium concluded. Romulus was in the hanging palace of Ganymede. Darrow was on his ship. Their two faces float in the air. As promised, you have independence, Darrow says. Romulus sits on the floor, his face haggard, the stump of his right arm wound with white bandages. And you have your ships, he says very quietly, the spirit stripped from him. But they will not be enough to defeat the Corps. The Ash Lord will be waiting for you. I hope so. I have plans for his master. Romulus pauses. Do you sail on Mars? Perhaps. The Red's eyes mock, his tone insinuates, while Romulus maintains an even air of military civility. The man had just lost a son, an arm, to say nothing of the destroyed docks. What a picture of a gold. There's one thing I found curious about the battle, he says icily. Of all the ships my men boarded, not one nuclear weapon over five megatons was found, despite your claims, despite your evidence. My men found plenty enough. Come aboard if you doubt me. It's hardly curious that they would store them on the Colossus. Rock would want to keep them under tight watch. We're only lucky that I managed to take... There's static interference. Bridge when I did. Docks can be rebuilt. Lives cannot. It sounds like a threat. Did they ever have them? Would I risk the future of my people on a lie? The slave king smiles cruelly. Your moons are safe. You define your own future now, Romulus. His eyes narrow to two thin slits. Do not look the gift horse in the mouth. Indeed. Romulus's silence is heavy as he swallows his anger, his pride, and lets the slave king mock him. I would like your fleet to depart before the end of day. It will take three days to search the debris for our survivors. He insults Romulus's request. We will leave then. Very well, my ships will escort your fleet to the boundaries agreed upon. When your flagship crosses into the asteroid belt, you may never return. If one ship under your command crosses the boundary, it will be war between us. I remember the terms. See that you do. Give my regards to the Corps. I'll certainly give yours to the sons of Ares you leave behind. The connection with the Reaper cuts off, but the image of Romulus floats in the air. He shudders, the calm wilting away and giving a glimpse of the broken man beneath. The image sputters out. Dido looks at her husband, sharing the pain of Aeneas's death all over again. Noting the duplicity of the slave king's actions, it stands as plain fact that more investigation was warranted, not only into the veracity of the nuclear threat, which was supposedly levied against us by the sovereign, but toward the veracity of the slave king's actions throughout and preceding the Battle of Ilium. The inquiry which was commissioned by the council was quickly scuttled by my husband. I do not believe there is evidence he knew the dark truth of the slave king's actions against our docks. She says this to temper the fury of the Ganymede Golds, who built the docks and saw them fall on their cities. But I am not beyond bounds by saying more effort should have gone into assessing the truth. Now I would like to call Serafina Alra to the floor. Serafina defends and stands between Dido and Romulus. Dido addresses her daughter. When you acquired the hologram evidence of the destruction of the docks and returned with it into rim space, were you arrested by sworn men of the Sovereign? I was, as I should have been. Did you divulge to them the nature of the information you carried? I did not. Did at any point Romulus admit to knowing the truth about the destruction of the docks? He did not. Seraphina looks at her father. His actions toward me and the secrecy under which they were enacted were done to protect me from capital punishment for breaking the Pax Solaris. It was a father's love, not a man's schemes. He knew I entered the gulf. I did not know if he was aware of the reasons why, but he knew he would have to bring me before the Moon Council. Do you believe he committed negligence during wartime? 
It is not my duty to judge. Thank you, Ariette. Seraphina salutes with her fist to her heart and returns to her place amongst her friends. Dido closes her argument. My charges are limited because, while I believe my husband misstepped by not investigating further, I do not believe there is evidence to prove he was complicit in hiding information from the council. I do not believe anyone here could call him a traitor. One of the Ganymedes shouts their dissent. Thus I ask only for impeachment from his position as sovereign. She sits down. Helios continues. Romulus, do you contest these charges? Romulus stands. I do not. You wish to offer no mitigating evidence? I do not. In the charge of negligence, I am guilty. Heads nod in approval. This is an honourable response, one they expected, one that an iron gold would give. On Luna, this trial would have stretched out over the course of years with endless appeals and warehouses of evidence and armies of copper lawyers. By the time it was through, half those involved would be dead or have had their relatives kidnapped and tortured till they came to the correct judgment. My grandmother would have burned the government to the ground before releasing her clutch on power. She could have learned a thing or two from this man. On the dais, Diomedes looks like a man freed from the gallows. His father will be stripped of the sovereignty for negligence, but any prison time will be commuted on the grounds of the pending war. Romulus will likely even lead his family's forces under Dido's command. It's a marvel. But then in the chancel behind the Olympic knights, a fragile chime shatters all well-laid plans. The council turns to look back at the sound. Chance, hardly ten years of age, stands barefoot and quiet in front of her chair, holding a small iron bell. Her white eyes stare out at the terrifying host. Dido frowns, confused. Seraphina whispers to her friends, I feel the rush of impending doom. The memory howls with warning because I remember my tutor, Hieronymus, droning on about ancient codices outlining the rules of an impeachment trial. Most forget that the whites are not set behind the Olympics for show. They cannot decide a verdict, but they do have one unique, archaic power. It is where the phrase, unless chance strikes, originates. Helios beckons the small girl forward. She comes to whisper in his ear. His face tightens. She returns to her seat, and the knights discuss amongst themselves. Whatever is said turns Diomedes sheet white. I glance up at Seraphina and can sense her distress even from across the room. Diomedes is shaking his head at Helios, as are two of the younger knights. The death knight, an older woman, walks from the end of the dais to confer with Helios and vehemently stabs her finger in the air. The younger knights don't like what she said, but after Helios seems to agree, their objections fade and they slowly nod their heads in compliance. Helios calls order to the room. We have discussed amongst ourselves and have come to an agreement. While it is seldom invoked, the fates are afforded the right to levy additional charges against the accused on behalf of the state. It brings us no pleasure to voice these charges, but we, the Olympic Council, are bound by duty to charge Romulus Aurar with one count of arch-treason. The room upturns. Peerless, bound to their feet, Dido raves on the floor. I do not seek that charge. It does not matter, Helios says. This is my trial, my charges. It is the purview of the fates to request to add charges. You know this, now sit down. Diomedes. The council has spoken, mother, Diomedes says. He looks like he's going to pass out. You must desist. Enraged, Dido sits, casting a horrified look at her husband. The punishment for treason is death. While his men behind him are in a holy rage, Romulus alone seems unaffected and waits patiently for Helios to continue. While the fates may demand additional charges, it is not in their power to present evidence. 
Thus it should be a simple matter, and one that should be stated for the record, so that there are no lingering resentments that might eat at the foundation of our dominion as we enter our most dire hour. Our chance was wise and correct to invoke her right. Let us clear the air and move forward as one people. He looks at Romulus with a sigh. My friend, it annoys me to insult you, but I am bound by my office. Of course. Two simple questions, two simple answers, and we move forward. Did you know that Darrow of Lycos destroyed the docks, and did you conspire to conceal this from us, yes or no? Romulus wears a tranquil expression, the same I saw in his face as he dissected his razor when we first met. He stands slowly and steps off his small cushion and lets his lone arm fall down his side to tug on the cape so that it is smooth behind him. He lifts his head to the council, then to his wife, with eyes that seem to gaze far beyond the people in this room. Romulus, his wife whispers, knowing the spirit of him. Don't. Yes, says the Moon Lord. I knew, and I did so conspire. The silence of the room shatters a second time, an uproar from the stands, from Dido, from all but Romulus's men and the council itself. Diomedes sits stunned. Seraphina looks around like a lost little girl. He does not mean it, Dido hisses to the council. He does not mean it. Strike it from the record and convene a new trial for that charge. Helios is just as astounded. I cannot. He's perjuring himself, Dido says. It is a lie. He had no evidence. Supposition doesn't count. We all saw the recording. It can be inferred but not proven. All we have evidence of is his negligence. Diomedes, tell him. Mother, Diomedes says helplessly, by his own admission. Damn his admission, boy. He's your father. He's Romulus our gory damned Ra. My heart breaks watching her spin helplessly about, as if she were a drowning woman the rest of us could not help. I am as lost myself. Dido, Romulus says from behind her, please. She turns to him, still in denial, but slowly as she looks into his eyes, she knows that there is no going back, and all at once a shiver goes through her that I can see from forty metres back, as her reality, her family, are irrevocably shattered, and she knows it is her doing. Tell them you're lying, she whispers. Tell them you had suspicions but didn't know. But I knew, Romulus says. I knew because the holodrop you sent Seraphina to collect was offered to me first. What? He looks up at the council as if he's already parted from the world. It was offered to me. Several images were sent. I invited the brokers to the rim, where they met around Enceladus. I relied upon my reputation of honour to lure them and the original copy there. I took out a warhawk and killed them all and burned their ship. Of course, as you have seen, there was a copy. You did this by yourself? Helios asks, looking at Pandora. I am Romulus Alra, he smiles sadly. You might ask yourself why I did this. Why I tell you this now when it will cost me my own life? All my days I have lived as honorably as a man can, but I have carried this secret for too long. And, as my father would ask, what is honor without truth? Honor is not what you say. Honor is what you do. A cold stone settles in my throat as I watch Seraphina's heart break. Tears leak down her cheeks. We live by a code. I broke that code, even if my reasons for doing so were just. Let it serve as a warning to you all. I lied because I knew if we saw what the slave king did to the docks, we would have no choice but to declare the peace void and sail for war. I believe that war will destroy us, all of us, rim and core alike. All that the colours are built together, all we have protected, the legacy of the society will vanish, not because our arms are weak, not because our commanders are frail, but because we are fighting against a religion whose God still lives. At this moment he is mortal, he strains under the burden of rule and the seams of their alliances fray, but if we sail on Mars or Luna, the colours will unite, 
They will become a tide, and their now mortal general will become once again their god of war. And if he falls, another will rise, and another, and another. We are too few. We are too honourable. We will lose this war just as surely as I will now lose my life. I urge you to feel my death, to let it be the last casualty and not the first of this war that claimed my father, my daughter, my son, and now me. Seraphina bursts into tears. Dido hangs her head, her body limp. I feel the stirring of my own grief, a reflection of the grief I felt for Cassius's death. It is tragic to see a man's nature doom him, especially when it is a nature so fine as Romulus's. Helius stands, his voice barely even a whisper. Romulus Aura, you are found guilty of the charges levied against you. Guards, seize the convicted and prepare him to return to the dust. Chapter 62 Lysander Iron Gold Amongst a host of moon lords on a frozen sulphur dune, Romulus says farewell to his children. Only Ra are in attendance. I do not know why I have been invited. Wearing a krill and a score suit, I watch from the end of their ranks as he bends to press his forehead against young Palerans. The child weeps for his father. The tears freeze on his cheeks. Romulus stands before Marius. The two men press their foreheads together stoically. Forgive your mother, honour me, and serve the rim, Romulus says. As you wish, father. Marius watches icily as his father moves on to Diomedes. The warrior looks down at his father like a giant child, hoping beyond all hope for the man to perform some miracle and make this all a dream. I'm sorry, father, he says, a huge sob stuck in his chest. His father lays a firm hand on his shoulder. I have failed you. No, I should never have involved you in this. But what luck I have to call a man like you my son. It is an honour you cannot understand. One day you will have children, and if you have just one who is as dear as you are to me, you will understand how blessed my life has been. Stay true to your own heart, no matter the cost. They say farewell, and Romulus goes to Seraphina. Guilt and grief rack her. He puts his forehead to hers. My burning one. She recoils from him. You don't have to die. If I live, I divide the rim. You might forgive, but how could the Codavans? How could anyone on Ganymede, who lost a son, a daughter? They've been denied justice because of my lie. I hope this cools their blood, but if the rim does go to war, it must go as one. Seraphina says nothing. He touches her face. The same spirit is in you that was in my brother. Do not let it consume you like it did him. You have nothing to prove. Glory for others is nothing. He touches her heart. What matters is in here. Honor your conscience. Honor your family. His eyes crinkle as he smiles behind the krill. One day you will understand why I've done this. I will never understand. He tries to embrace her, but she pulls back from him and walks away from the family across the dune as Diomedes calls to her. Romulus watches her go. He does not move on to Dido or his mother, who chose not to come, watch her son die, but instead he walks to me. Lord Ra, I say, lowering my head. There are some who would say I should bow to you, heir of Selenius, he says. Most who'd say that are dead, I reply. Besides, I am a guest in your home. Very true. He motions for me to follow him, and we walk a few paces away from his family. The cold wind howls around us, flinging debris into the reflective goggles I wear. The krill warms the air as it passes through the membrane into my mouth. Romulus looks back to his family. They wonder why I've brought you here. They're not the only ones. He examines me with his lone eye. You look very much like your mother. You knew her? Not well. 
He sees me look at Serafina, who sits on the edge of a distant dune watching us. Why did you ask me to come here, my lord? There is still a chance to stop this war, Lysander, maybe not to stop it from beginning. I fear the blood has risen too high for that. Even my death will not stop it. But there is a chance to stop it from destroying us all. Our strength before the rising did not come from our arms or our ships. It came from our unity. Long ago, Selenius Aulun, your blood, and Akari Ra, my blood, stood together. One the scepter, one the sword. They gave birth to the Pax Solaris. They freed us from Earth's dominion. You face a choice that will touch lives far beyond your sight. Run as you have these last years, or become the echo of those great men. He leans forward, his voice husky and full of emotion. That lone eye seems suspended in his face, celestial and untethered from its mortal body. He sets his hand on my shoulder. You saved my daughter. Can you now save the world's? He does not wait for a response which I am far too stunned to give. He walks back to his family to say farewell to his wife. I am left overcome with the weight of his question. I already took the first step in ignoring Cassius's dying wish. The second with the betrayal of Gaia. Do I have the strength to take the rest? Can I bear the burden of my blood? I watch Romulus say his final farewells. The great man looks at Dido with so much love I know I can't fathom it. I have never known love like theirs. Seraphina sits alone on the dune, and I wonder how Romulus felt when he first saw Dido all those years ago on Venus. If he loved her so much, how could he be so brave as to choose to say farewell? Is it really true, pure honour? After having been ripped from my family, I'm at a loss, unable to understand how a man, a father, a husband, could value something more than love. It awakens something deep inside me, a desire to be as noble as he is now, a need to honour his memory, though I barely knew the man. These ten years I've been looking for the man I married, Dido says to her husband. I strain to hear them over the wind. Now I see him again, the young moon lord who burned a city for a girl of the Pearl Shore, Romulus the Bold, Dido of Numidy. What a pair they were, what an end they had. No, he whispers, this is not the end. I loved you before I ever met you. I will love you until the sun dies, and when it does, I will love you in the darkness. Goodbye, wife. Stepping close, he removes his krill and, holding his breath against the toxic air, gently unfastens Dido's to pull her into one last kiss. Steam billows from their lips as they cling at one another. Then Romulus pulls away and tosses his krill on the ground to step backward down the dune. Seraphina watches from her perch on the dune. It does not seem right for her to be alone now. I find myself walking toward her up the frozen sulphur. She says nothing as I sit beside her to watch her father's last rite. Under the watchful gaze of two obsidian adjuncts to the white justice, Romulus removes his boots, his cloak, his scorer suit beneath, his liner and his undergarments, till he is naked and pale there on the frozen sulphur. Across the waste he must walk for eighty steps to reach the resting place of Akaria Rao, the founder of his house. The dragon tomb is a giant black obelisk shaped like a winged beast at the top of a stubby crag of rock. Hunched, frozen bodies litter the dune around the tomb and cling to the rock formation itself. Ra, who in old age or punishment or shame came here to die, and in death seek to reach their ancestor, and erect a humble monument to their own strength. Only four have ever made it to the dragon tomb. Romulus seeks to join the honourable dead. It is below negative one hundred degrees Celsius. Convulsing from the cold, he turns to face us, hiding nothing. His chest is scarred and pale, his stomach flat and muscled, his ribs stand out. His remaining arm is corded with stringy fibres, and as the wind ripples across the waist, his extremities begin to purple from the cold. 
His hair unbound behind his head whips till the moisture in it freezes. He roars. I am a son of Io, a child of the dust. Steam clouds his words as he spends his last breath. His fist thumps his chest with each proclamation, leaving a shadow of pink over the paling skin. I am a dragon of Ra, an iron gold, a Kari bear witness, he whispers something to himself. Then he turns and walks down the dune toward death, his hand at his side, his shoulders proud and square, head held back in defiance of the cold and poisoned air. The frozen sulfur crystals crack under his feet, wounding the skin. By the tenth step, blood smears a glittering red trail behind him. By the twentieth, his body shudders against the wind. Twenty-nine, Seraphina whispers, counting her father's steps. Romulus clutches his chest with his one arm, desperate to keep his spirit of warmth from the gnawing moon. Thirty-two. His spine stands out as he hunches. Thirty-seven. His hair is frozen and no longer whips in the wind, but clumps to the back of his neck like a dead animal. Forty-five. He drifts sideways, his path bending away from the monument. Fifty. He falls to his knees. Paran sobs at his mother's side. Dido watches without blinking. Frost crusts her eyelashes. Romulus wills himself up. Blood pours down his knees and freezes to his shins as he stumbles on, his will inexorable. One foot after the other, they are black and red now, blood frozen onto the bottom of the dead flesh to make a shoe. Sixty. Seraphina's voice grows louder, wishing her father a triumph in the end. Sixty-four. The man will not stop. His will is immense. All the pain of all the years has culminated into this single testament of will to prove to the moon that despite its horrors, it is under his power. Sixty-eight. I find myself wishing strength. Seventy. Romulus takes another impossible step up the side of the dune. Then his legs betray him. He falls hard to the ground ten steps from the monument, striking his head on the ice before sliding back, supine. His black hand paws at the ground, steam seeps from his mouth, but with one arm he cannot lift himself up. He heaves himself upward one last time. The effort is in vain. He does not stand again. Soon he does not move. Ice crusts over his white body amongst the corpses of his humbled ancestors. Ten steps from the honoured golds who reach the monument lies the greatest man of a people. Pulvis et Ombrosumus. Seraphina whispers, and I alone hear her. Below the family weeps, the moon howls, the darkness quickens, and the Ra leave their father behind, and, like the dust, fly away with the wind and fade into the ebbing twilight. Chapter 63 Lysander Lux ex tenebris Dido sits slumped in a low chair by a window that looks out over the sulphur plain. The weather is clear, her arms hang off the edge of the armrests, her large angry eyes look out into the waste but are trained on her past. She is an island of regret, bled of pride, of spirit, and swollen with the torpor of loss. What is it you want, Loon? she asks this without turning around when Seraphina and I enter the room. The young woman escorted me in silence. I'm sorry for your loss, I say. She does not respond. I glance nervously at Seraphina, knowing my presence here is unwanted in this moment of grief. The girl looks back at me with cold, inhospitable eyes. He was the noblest of men. What do you know of my husband? she asks harshly. From what he said to me before he died, I learned enough. He was something out of time, a paragon, his life spent honouring the conquerors, but he was greater by far than they could ever have been. Now, such a waste. She shakes her head. Uncurl your tongue, boy, and leave me to my grief. I wish to join your war, I say flatly. 
She watches a lone volcano vomit ash into the chrome horizon. Seraphina scowls. There's no place for a loon in our army. I beg to differ. And what good would you do me, Lysander, our loon? Dido asks. Can you skim a dune like a dusk walker, or fly a warhawk in a storm, or operate a star shell in an iron rain as your friends die around you? She snorts. You have no scar. You know theory, games. You were raised in a palace, raised to be a king, and there is no more wretched a creature than a king without a kingdom. I am not a king. Then what are you? What am I? I have been asking this of myself for a decade or more. Little has been certain since my grandmother fell. I looked out at the worlds in flux, in constant motion beneath my feet, denying me a foundation, filling me with uncertainty, fear. I did not know my own heart, but no matter the shifting of the worlds, I know the bedrock of my soul. I know the foundation upon which I stand and no longer fear my blood. Just because my grandmother was a tyrant does not mean I will be. I see the faces of those I left behind on the Vindabona. They need a protector, a shepherd. I know who I am, or at least who I want to become. And with that realization, I feel the culmination of the souls who have filled my life. I feel my father's calm, Arja's love, my grandmother's brilliance, Cassius's honor, and even the faint heartbeat of my mother. And I know that Romulus spoke wisdom I somehow already knew deep in the heart of me. I am no heir of empire or conqueror of men, I say slowly, but I have the same birthright as you, the same inheritance. We were created because earth broke itself, because man disintegrated into tribal strife. Chaos is the nature of man, order the dream of gold. We were made to shepherd, to unite despite our differences. That is what Romulus said to me in the end, and he is right. Seraphina stares at me, a rebuke frozen on her lips. You called my grandmother a tyrant. She was, but I am not her. I am not Arja. I am not my godfather. I am an iron gold. Slowly, Dido turns around. As you gather your armada to sail on the rising, send me to the core with a cohort of your best. I will find my godfather. I will tell him that the rim is coming, that the sins of the past must be forgotten, and that you seek an alliance against the reaper so that gold may be united once again. If peace must be brought with a sword, let us hold it together. The silence stretches between us. She stands imperiously over me. Then her eyes narrow and slowly on Dido's dour, grieving face. Her lips curl into a smile. Chapter 64 Ephraim Locust Queen I slump over the controls, guiding us over the grey cityscape at high altitude. Electra sits in the co-pilot chair with the razor pointed at me from the side. Of course, the little warlords know first aid. Pax has cut open my shirt and sealed the hole in my chest with res flesh from the ship's medkit, but I'm in shit shape. Need a doctor and blood packs, or I'll die, and soon. I'd rather bleed out in this ship than die in a cell, but that's not much of a choice anymore. I eye my Omni in Electra's lap, and wonder if I could throw the ship hard to port and get a jump on the little bastards. How far are we? Pax says. Republic escorts the twenty out. I eye the roofs beneath us and the flow of pedestrian traffic in the airspace below and wonder if the syndicate can still reach us here. You're going to make it? Electra asks me. Do I look like a yellow? Can you feel your hands? She asks. No. 
She looked back at Pax. Don't look at him, hatchet face. I'd rather fly unconscious than let a kid behind the grip of a... I grimace at the pain. Of a hornet. I fly grav bikes all the time, the boy says. This ain't a grav bike, kid. A cold sweat soaks my body. I wipe my face and wish that Volga were here now. I feel naked without her, just as I did the entire time I was with the Duke. What's that light? Electra says, pointing to the communicator. Incoming message, Pax says. Could be mother. He opens the channel, and a noseless face, distorted by a facial scrambler, appears over the holopad between the pilot and co-pilot seats. The pixels swirl together, looking like a plague of marauding locusts forming a head with gaps for the mouth and eyes and the twirling black tips of a ghost crown. Ephraim T. Horn The disembodied head of the syndicate queen rasps over the ship's speakers. Whatever blood is left in me chills. The children are struck dumb, smart enough to know when to be afraid. Let me guess, you'd be the queen bitch, eh? I say thinly. You will return the children. Course I will. In exchange, I'll take a private island on Venus with a legion of pinks to bring me cocktails and little coconut shells. Not a bad life, eh? I laugh at the locust face. Let me guess. You're going to offer me three islands. Well, fuck that and fuck you. I'm not afraid of dying and certainly not afraid of you. Ephraim out. I reach and shut off the communicator, but the hologram doesn't obey. The empty eyes stare at me from the mutinous pixels. I gave this ship to the Duke, the shadowy face rasped. I own it. I own you. Soon I will see you in the flesh, while you still have it. Till then, thief. The ship suddenly banks hard to port, throwing Pax sideways behind me. He slams against the bulkhead. My body jerks against the pilot's restraints. What's happening? Pax asks, picking himself up. His forehead is bleeding. The ship's turning around, I whisper. Back to the syndicate? Pax says. Well, turn it back, Electra shouts. Good idea, I'll just do that, I snap. The steering has gone dead. The secondary electrical controls are off. It's being flown remotely. Comms are dead. My mouth's gone dry. I look frantically for some sort of override, but the control isn't physical. It's coded into the ship's computer. The escorts won't reach us in time, I say. They'll land us at some syndicate facility, and that will be the last the world ever knows of us. But it won't end there. No, they'll draw it out for years. And what will happen to Volga then? Slag this. I totter to my feet, almost falling down. Pax catches me. I sway there, trying to slow down the spinning. Thanks. What are you going to do? Electra asks. Something stupid. She reaches for her restraints. Stay, hatchet face. I grip Pax by his collar and shove him to the chair. Both of you strap in. 
I leave them exchanging confused glances as they strap themselves into the pilot and co-pilot chairs. I stumble back through the ship using the wall to support me. Where are you? I shove open doors and lockers, finding fridges of champagne and caviar and dining sets. Come on! Blackness is creeping into the fringes of my vision. I fall down, catching myself on the cushion of an inset dining area. I fumble with the Zolodone dispenser in my pocket. I drop it on the floor and pick it up. I pop three Zolodone between my molars. An electric thrill vibrates through my veins, numbing the pain in my chest. I struggle to my feet, and in the back of the ship, near the disembarkation ramp, I find what I was looking for, a walnut-panelled locker full of weapons. Beneath a row of pulse rifles and elegant rail guns rests a stack of thermal grenades in former foam. Someone is laughing. It's me. I pull the grenades out, clutch them to my chest, and shimmy to the back of the ship toward the engines. I cluster the grenades on the ground near a cooling unit and shudder out of breath. Here goes something. I set the timer on one of the grenades to thirty seconds and, with a laugh, drop it amongst the pile. I race back the way I came. Well, I try to race with rubber legs, pulling myself back toward the front of the ship, using my arms to hold myself up, counting silently to myself. I reach the front cockpit, seal the door behind me and collapse into a passenger chair along the wall behind the pilot's. Pax and Electra stare at me as I buckle tight the safety restraints. Jove on high, let there be crash-webbing in this seat. What did you do? Pax asks. Told you, something stupid. Four, three, assume the position! Their eyes widen and they cover their heads with their hands. A deafening roar comes from the back of the ship. The door to the cockpit buckles inward, the ship pitches sideways and begins to spiral down as the gravity thrusters fail in stuttering gasps. Then they give out and we're plummeting down, the city and sky whipping past outside the cockpit windows as we careen down into the wasted skeleton city landscape of one of the jackal's craters. I can't help but laugh bitterly. I knew this was going to be a one-way ticket. Chapter 65 Darrow The Rending Walking out of the Ash Lord's fortress, I am an empty shell. The howlers wait on the landing pad at the top of the tower. The Nessus hovers to the left of the Ash Lord's shuttle and is readying her to depart. Colloway's battle-scarred ripwing is docked on her topside. Far below, the tattered remnants of Apollonius's forces and those of the Ash Lord fight a desperate running battle on the south end of the island. Our injured and dead have been loaded up. I don't yet know the tally. The jubilation my friends expected to feel with the Ash Lord's death never comes. Not when they see our faces. And when they hear of Pax and Electra, and Atlantia's fleet, they turn as pale as several. Rona is stunned. No, she whispers, 
It's bullshit. Virginia would have protected him. I know it. He fed you a line. Society fleet rip wings are eight minutes out, Pebble says. We'll have to burn like hell to escape. At current orbit, we can be back on Luna in four weeks. I barely hear her. My mind is apart from them, from this place. If only I could go back in time and never come to this hope-forsaken planet. I just want to hold my boy again in my arms. I would protect him from the world. I would never leave him. Is he even alive? Would I feel it? The horror grips me again. The world swims and I feel the tears of anger itch behind my eyes. Severo is locked in his own rage. He storms up the ramp, shouting for the howlers to load up. But my feet do not follow. They cannot. Darrow? Pebble murmurs. What are you doing? Severo turns at the top of the ramp to look down at me. I'm not coming, I say. And as I say it, I feel the last of my soul empty itself from the vessel of my body. Severo watches me with contempt. I'm not going back to Luna. Boss, Colloway says. What are you talking about? They have your kid. We have to go back. Pebble comes back to touch my shoulder. Her hands are coated with dried blood, likely her husband's. You're in shock. You need to get on the ship. Whatever happened, it's over, I say. If he was taken, Mustang will get him back as well as I can. If he is dead, there is nothing to be done. Even to myself, my voice is like that of a condemned man. Pax, I see his eyes as he watches me rise from Wolfgar's body. The key is so heavy on its chain against my sternum, it's all I can do to remain standing. Don't say that, Darrow, Pebble says. Mustang needs you, Thraxa says. Her own love for my son runs deep, just as it does in her whole family. Where were they? Why didn't they protect him? Your family needs you. I think of my wife. She won't survive this with the Senate. They'll say she's unfit to rule. Compromised. She might already be deposed. The life I left behind is shattered, and my fist put the first cracks in it. Whoever took my child did it to wound me and my wife. Our sins passed down to that perfect, innocent boy. Death begets death begets death. How many sons did Lorne bury? Four. I have made my choice, and it kills me to know I chose not to be a father, not to be a husband. I failed at both when I chose the rising over my family, and now it teeters on the razor's edge. Orion might already be lost. 
Our fleet, cobbled together, the product of ten years, might already be debris. The red boy inside me would run home to his family, but I cannot. The Ash Lord was right. Nothing of the red remains. I am trapped in my duty, like Lorne, like Magnus himself, like Octavia. Severo and I did not understand them when we were boys, but now that we are men, we become them. My army needs me, I say. Atlantia might already have destroyed the fleet. That means our men on Mercury are trapped. Fathers, wives, nine million of them marooned under the city shields. They'll be exterminated like the suns in the rim, like the reds in the mines. I took them there. I will not abandon them. So you abandon your child instead? Severa asks, finally coming back down the ramp to face me. The howlers back out of the way. And steal me from mine? We don't even know if they are alive. Shut up! His sorrow finds a home in his fist. It trembles at his side. Slag you! How many times have I followed you? How many times have I trusted you? You were wrong. You didn't listen. But I followed like a good little dog. And now my daughter... His voice falters. My baby... I'm sorry, Severo. I am. You're a father! I'm not asking you to come with me. Oh, trust me, I won't be. Take the nurses. Reach Victor and Mustang and bring our children back to us. How will you get off planet? Pebble asks. I turn to look at the Ash Lord's shuttle. If I can't turn the tide on Venus and Mercury, they'll be coming for Luna or Mars next. You have to prepare the defences. Done with me. Severo turns to walk up the ramp into the Nessus. Severo. He doesn't turn around. Severo. He disappears inside, and his name lingers in the air. Too little, too late. I stand alone in the Ash Lord's shuttle. The grim walls press in on me. I sit in the pilot's chair and begin the pre-flight procedures. There's a sound behind me. I turn to see Alexander coming up the open ramp, leading the gold prisoners we took from Deepgrave. Colloway, Tongueless, Thraxer, and Rona follow him, their star shells left dented and smouldering on the landing pad. They toss down several bags of gear, lock the prisoners in the cargo hold, and settle into the passenger compartment. Severo says you'd need them, Thraxa says. Colloway saunters up, a burner hanging between his lips. You're in my seat. I get up and find my way back toward the passenger compartment. A lone figure stands at the bottom of the ramp in bloodied armor. Apollonius, I say. The clock's still ticking, he says, tapping his head. 
Severo and I, in our despair, forgot about the man entirely. I look down at my dented data pad and pull up the program. Ten minutes left before the munitions in his head go off. Are you a man of your word? he asks. I look down at the man and see nothing I value. Just a murderer who saved my life. But all the evils that have befallen us today, all the mistakes I've made, have come from my pride and the duplicity I've sown. Today I am. I deactivate the bomb. Venus is yours, if you can take her. And the hostages, he asks, the Carthii and Saud family members you promised me. We need them more, I say, and hammer my hand on the door control. The ramp rolls up, and the last I see is Apollonius staring at me in rage. My men say nothing as I rejoin them in the passenger hold. I settle into my chair as Colloway lifts off, and we trail in the Nessus's wake. Thunder rolls outside as the frigate fires at the society ripwings that pursue us. Colloway says something about capital ships cutting off our escape as we breach orbit. Over the comm, I hear Severo snarling at the society praetors, showing them pictures of the gold family hostages we had in the Nessus's brig. Just as planned. Even as I mourn for my own son, we use the sons and daughters of the golds of Venus to escape. The dark irony is not lost on me. All that holds the guns of Venus from destroying us is the love of parents for their children. They do not fire, and I wonder if I had my enemy in my grasp, would I have done the same? I say no farewell over the comm to Severo and Pebble and Clown, friends who have been with me for half my life. People think I believe my own myth, that I'm a singular whirlwind of nature. I know I am not. I was the concentrated force of the people around me, balanced, hardened, inspired by Ragnar, Fitchner, Lorne, Eo, several. Now I sit a world apart, in silence, as my friends lie dead and the rest return to my son, while I race away from him toward the war accompanied only by the tattered remains of the howlers, an old prisoner, and a girl of barely twenty years. I feel lost. But in the void, drifting away from my friends, I feel something else, something I have not felt for some time. The Ashlord claimed he did not take my son, but I know his designs. It was not a friend who took them. He and Atlantia played me for a fool. She thought I would abandon my army, my fleet, and rush home to save my son. But she does not know what she has awoken. 
I pulled the key Pax gave me from my neck and put it in my bag, setting aside the father, welcoming the reaper, and letting the old rage take hold. The End We hope you have enjoyed this production of Iron Gold by Pierce Brown. Narrated by John Curlis, Julian Elfer, Aidan Maloney, and Tim Jared Reynolds. Recorded Books offers a wide selection of bestsellers, mysteries, classics, histories, and more. So look for us at your public library or on download sites online. And thank you for being a Recorded Books reader. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.